Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. Yes. We finally get to talk about, in great detail, Captain America Civil War. Yes. We have yeah. a couple other little topics, little news things to get to. Well, I, not all of them are little, John. Not little. It, yeah, a lot. Ha- even though our last podcast was on Wednesday, it was a couple days late. A bunch happened in those yeah, like four days. This is going to be a, a, a significant podcast, I feel. Significant podcast, but why don't we start as we always do. Our main topic will be spoiler-filled, but spoiler-free reaction to Civil War. Just your basic up-down review. Right. What do you think of Civil War, Sean? Uh, it's a great it's a great movie. Like It's a great action movie. It's a fantastic superhero movie. It's something that, like, if you have watched all the Marvel movies up to now and you've enjoyed them, like like most people, like you know, enjoy some of them less, some of them more. But this is a fantastic follow up to everything that the Marvel movies have been building up to. It makes incredible use of the entire cast, especially Captain America and Iron Man, with their like core prominent main roles in the film. They are both incredible. Like Robert Downey Jr. gives his best performance as Tony Stark, which is saying a lot. In this movie, and it's just it's it's a great film. And also, if you are a huge fan of Spider Man, and you were concerned about having like the third movie Spider Man within like fifteen years, don't be like because Tom Holland is really really great in this movie too. So is Chadwick Boseman. If you're a Black Panther yeah. fan, yeah. If really, if you're a fan of any character in this movie, you will be giggling in the theater. Yeah. It, it is so good. It just does everything that Marvel has done so well with their movies up to now to like 120%. For Just for fun, I published an article on Thursday because I was going to see the movie Thursday night of ranking the 12 Marvel movies up to now because I haven't... I want to do that like for myself. Like, where do I stand? Yeah. yeah. And I did that and this would be number one. I have no compunction saying that. I think this is easily their most impressive movie as a movie to me. And we are going to spend a lot of time and a lot of people have spent a lot of time praising Anthony and Joe Rousseau who are the directors. Yeah. And they deserve praise. But even more to me, this is an achievement in screenwriting. Yes, And you have to praise Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely, who, I think that's their names, they have written all three Captain America movies solo. You know, there weren't, like, multiple rounds of rewrites on these. They wrote all three, and they're going to be writing the Avengers Infinity War movies. And no one in the Marvelverse has done these characters better. I think yeah. if you look at that Captain America trilogy, that is the most solid series of sequels Absolutely. they've ever done. Those guys have, frankly, out Joss Whedon in terms of balancing a cast and yeah. all those things. And this movie is so on theme. It is so devoted to theme. And it hits that theme through so hard to the end. I am amazed by this movie. I'm amazed by the emotional impact it has. I'm amazed by the way it leaves the Marvel Universe at the end. I am just amazed at what a good piece of writing it is fundamentally, and everything else is built on top of that. You know, Spider-Man and Black Panther are there because the script needs them to yeah. be there, not because, hey, we can do Spider-Man now. Yeah, exactly. It, yeah. Was, it was built the right way, and yeah, we're going to talk about it, because you can't not. 
as a counterpoint to Batman v Superman, it's, this is yeah. fascinating. It's it's insane. Like there's it's like it was something that I don't think uh, personally going into it, I wasn't expecting this to be so like like it's not that similar to Batman v Superman, but there are things about it just being two superheroes having to like fight each other that there are going to be certain like structural similarities to the two of them. And there were moments sitting in the theater where I just like had did this double take of like, oh my god, this just like this is basically kind of equivalent to what Batman v Superman tried to do in like this scene, this scene, and that scene. But it just did it in like two lines of dialogue a hundred times better than that other movie did it. Yeah, you know, it's Iron Man doesn't sit down at a computer and watch trailers for other movies. Yeah. He meets Spider-Man, and Spider-Man is a character who matters thematically yeah. to the plot. A beautiful movie. I think it is a fantastic movie. I think I would be frankly surprised if in 2016 I don't have a Marvel movie on my top ten. Never happened before. I think Civil War could push it over the top. Yeah. So, just fantastic all around. And I can... Sean, I don't know if I've ever been this excited to talk with you on the podcast about a movie because there's so much worth talking about. Yeah, it's a, it, it is a dense movie. Yes. Yeah. And in the best way possible. Mm. All right, so let's hit a couple of pieces of news and stuff. My first piece of stuff, always have to do this. Yep. Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth. Yeah. I finished it. Congratulations. I beat the game. I was talking last week how I was thinking, you know, I've got a lot left on the side I want to do, but maybe I'll just go to the end and then come back to it later. No, somehow, I don't even know how it happened. I got into the grind loop. And Great. I ended that game with about 40 level 99 Digimon. Yes, okay, yeah. there. That's how you do it. Yep. That's the right way to play that game. I pretty much leveled up everyone I could. I have a couple more who I could go through and do some crazy stuff with, but I, <laughs> that, that's a level of insanity I don't have time for at the moment. Right. Um, but no, I did every great challenge. I did all the Digimon I could. I have well over 200 Digimon registered. Yeah. And then I beat the game, and my final play clock was 67 hours. So yeah. that is a beast of a game. Phenomenal ending. Yes, that game, yeah. plot-wise, they went so far above and beyond what they had to do with that game. Mm-hmm. And it is kind of this beautiful, metaphysical ending that yeah, is yeah, thematically... The very, very end of that game is fantastic. Oh, oh my god, it's good. Yeah. Just the entire... I think the entire last few chapters are just sublime, but yeah. the ending in particular... Yeah, it is in particular, like, it's the last, like, five minutes or so. Because it's just so many video game stories botch the ending so hard. It's such yeah. a, th- it's a thing you come to expect, usually, when you're playing a game, is for the ending to just be kind of, like, whatever. But, yeah, it has... Like, Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth does have a very poignant, powerful ending to it. Again, we're saying a game called Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth has a poignant, powerful ending. Yeah, yeah, it's, right. It's a, but it's a great fucking game. It's a great game. It, as I've said before, if it were not for the looming presence of Persona Five, this would be to me like easily game of the year. I don't know yeah. what could top it. In part because there's such an immense sense of surprise for me to this game, having never watched Digimon, yeah. never been into Digimon. It was just for me all about the surprise of getting into this world. And I, it's so rare these days. You play a game, you know. Not, I only knew what you had told me about it, and even then, I understood very little of what you'd yeah. said. And it's so special. I really cannot... I hope no one thinks we're talking about this ironically. Yeah, because it, so, it would very, be very easy for it to sound like that, but we really sincerely are not. If you have a Vita, if you have a PS4, the second of those being more likely, yeah. get this game. It is worth every penny. Frankly, even if you don't get into the story, it's such a good just game yeah. on its own. I mean, I spent hours grinding just 
forcing a random encounters, going to auto battle yeah. while I was sitting there watching Breaking Bad because I'm rewatching that series. And it was just kind of how I was, I was doing that with my hands while I'm watching Breaking Bad. Yeah. And it's addictive. Every time I grind in a game, I eventually get to a point where I want to break the game because it just, I get tired yeah. of it. Nope, not with Digimon. Because they make it so easy to do. And it's yes. like, it's so great that it's like when you just remove all the restrictions on it, when it's just like, you know that I'm just, like, cheesing out levels here game. Like, it's fine. Just and let me force this random encounter and just press a button and let my overwhelmingly powerful team just stomp these, like, very weak <laughs> monsters. Like, let's just get this and, over with. And I should say, the only other game I would say that for is Bravely Default slash Bravely Second. They do that, too. It was a very similar feeling for me because those yeah. games are also very user-friendly in terms of knowing... It's a JRPG, and they know what you want. Yeah. They're going to give it to you. It's I want dig- some goddamn Digimon. <laughs> I think that's the name of our new podcast. Yeah. I want some goddamn Digimon. You know what else I want? What? I want Overwatch, the new game by Blizzard, yeah. to be officially released tomorrow. I don't want to wait till the 24th. I'm sad this beta is ending. So, again, we like to talk about betas here. Usually it's Sean yeah. who's played the beta. No way I was going to let Overwatch pass. I just love Blizzard games. I've been looking forward to this forever. I never got into one of the closed betas in part because I don't have a PC that could play it. Right. And it really had not been on consoles yet. And if you don't know, Overwatch is the new game from Blizzard. It is a competitive multiplayer-only game. It is for Xbox One, PS4, and PC. Yep. Um, not for Mac. One of the only Blizzard games in recent memory not for Mac, which mm-hmm. is kind of interesting. But that's the case there. It is a, as I said, competitive shooter, but a little different than what you might think. It is, in some ways, very pared down in fascinating ways, and then also bulked up with the structure they have, where you have a series of 25 heroes grouped into four overall classes, kind of. It's a little more complex than that. And you can pick any of those heroes. They are pre-built loadouts, and you have big maps that have basically moving or stationary objectives, and it is competitive. And I have played a shit ton of this game over the last two days, and I think it is utterly brilliant. I love this game. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. I've also played quite a bit of the beta as well. I think it's really, really good. It's. I think the the other comparison point, because I know you haven't played this game, but, but I have, is Team Fortress 2. It's very similar to Team Fortress 2 in the sort of gameplay style that it is that sort of class-based first-person shooter. But whereas Team Fortress 2, I think, has nine different sort of classes with, like, Scout and Medic and, and Heavy and all those guys, this game takes... Like you said, there's these sort of four very generic character roles of attack, defense, uh, tank, and healer, or support. And then just like puts in a bunch of hero- heroes. So there's a hugely expanded sort of cast of characters that you can play as. And they ha- all have very distinct, very individual powers that are like as... Some of the heroes have much more steep learning curves than other ones, and they kind of let you know that through the interface of which are the more difficult characters to learn to play. But all of them feel very viable. All of them feel interesting and fun to play. And and for me, like honestly, like I enjoy the game, and it's a very well made sort of uh, class based first person shooter, and I really like playing it. But really, the star of the game to me is everything to do with the character design of the game. Yeah, is yeah. so unbelievably good. Like it's. And it's something that like can so easily just be very generic and bland in the way that Battleborn, which which also released this week, uh, the the Gearbox first person shooter that is has some vague similarities to Overwatch in terms of the hero kind of stuff. That I talked about the beta when I played that and really didn't like that beta. And it seems like most of the reception to the game now that it's launched is tepid. That game has a very generic sort of sense like some of the heroes are a little bit more interesting than the others but most of them feel like sort of rejected borderlands characters in a lot of ways and overwatch like every single character like you just like 
I just completely fell in love with. I spent like the first two or three hours with the beta just going into the like character interface and like going and looking at all the different taunts and stuff you can unlock because there's all these unique animations and things and, and a bunch of unique skins that are very interesting. And it would just like, I would be like, oh man, this character's got some, like, just seems really cool. And then I would switch to the next one. It's like, oh man, this is this like awesome, like, Chinese girl with like this big parka on with like a freeze gun and all this stuff. And I like that it's a very diverse cast that, that represents a lot of different like cultures and ethnicities. And they tend to let the different characters speak in their own language in some of the voiced lines and stuff like Genji that. Genji is so cool. Yeah, Genji's really good. There's two Japanese characters that they're good. And, and, and like, and the, the characters feel like, and maybe this isn't true for all of them, but they tend to feel like they are voiced by people. Like, I, like definitely the, the, the two Japanese characters, I can tell, are Japanese people voicing yes. those characters. And, that's, and it's, there, it's just like little touches like that, that it feels like the, the cast of characters just feels so alive, so interesting. They have so much personality. When the game doesn't have a story mode or anything like that, it's just all in the design of the characters and the handful of lines they have that are like taunts and stuff. We're in this period of these competitive multiplayer-only games coming out for consoles. That's not like an uncommon thing for PC, but it's becoming a much bigger mainstream thing, and most of them have failed or fallen off. You know, Titanfall, Evolve, um, I'm probably forgetting some, but I just know those are the two that I think of right away. Star Wars Battlefront fell off right away. Yeah, just like multiplayer-only games. If anyone can overcome it, it's Blizzard with Overwatch. Because I immediately, I put this in, and I'm like, yeah, I will be playing this for a long time to come. Because immediately you get into it, and it is so easy to just pick up and play. And yet the level of depth there is mind-boggling if you start to think about it. Not just with the mechanics, but as you say, with the characters. Of like, I've spent a good amount of time with many of the heroes, but by no means all of them. I've probably, you know, touched all of them at some point. But I want, you know, like terms of really getting to know them. I want to do that. I have fun with every one of them. I love being in that world. I love exploring those maps. I've played on that Hollywood map like six times. Yeah. And every time I go back, I find new things that I just laugh out loud at. It is a Blizzard game. It is Blizzard at the top of their game. Yeah. They have a sense of voice and style and polish that is just at the top of the industry in all manner of speaking. Yeah. And I love this. I have not, you know, this is called the beta. It's the release version. It, it's, yeah, yeah. It's a network beta, if anything. Yeah, it is the release version of the game. It's basically a demo to get people to play it. And But the game has been in alpha and beta for a long time now on yeah. PC. And they've clearly, like, I have not, I feel like I have not played a game on launch day that was this polished in a while. At least with network functionality. Yeah. Because it just, the networking stuff works flawlessly. You get into a match fast and it keeps moving you through those. The game, the technical performance, I've played it on both PS4 and Xbox One. Perfect on both. 60 frames per second. Graphics look colorful and gorgeous and fun. And it's just, it's a rock solid game to just pick up and play. It feels like the game knows what it is. And that is one of those things with most competitive multiplayer suites these days, I feel like we're in this period where there's a lot of identity crisis. Yeah. It's kind of rare I play a competitive multiplayer suite and I know, I feel like I know what it knows what it wants to be. Mm -hmm. Halo 5 being maybe the best example of that recently. But Overwatch, no. It knows what it wants to be right away. I just, as soon as I realized, like, you go into the tutorial and it's, there's no aim down sights, there's just your gun, there's a couple of abilities, here's how you do it, and now there's 25 heroes for you to play with. I'm like, yeah, this is cool, this is what I've wanted. Obviously, it harkens back to things like Team Fortress 2. Yeah. But it feels, in this particular moment, very fresh to me. Yeah, no, definitely. Because also, like, Team Fortress 2 is an old game. Right. Team Fortress 2 came out in 2007. Yeah. And, and like, and I was, I'm one of those people who... 
I liked Team Fortress 2 a lot when it launched, but then as Team Fortress 2 aged, Valve did a lot of weird things with it where they added like loot and stuff to the game that really changed the sound snobbish. It changed the purity of the game. That it was like it used to be back in my day when you played Team Fortress 2. That was like a scout was a scout and he did what a scout did, and every scout had the same weapons. There's no difference there. But like when they made Team Fortress 2 free to play and added like all these like weird loot elements where you could unlock different kinds of guns that did little different things and stuff like that, that really turned me away from the game. I didn't, I, I just couldn't get into that side of it. Whereas like Overwatch feels like it has more of that sort of straightforwardness that I really want. I like that the matches tend to be fairly quick. They are they're not like big 30 minute long matches. They're like five to 10 minutes. I really love all the characters. Like I have not, pl- I've touched all the characters because I went into practice mode with all of them just to see what they did. And I've played most of them in matches, and I've been successful with most of them as well in different circumstances. So I like all the characters I've played, and some of the characters have really interesting abilities like i can't remember what his name is but the like buddhist robot guy who that. has the prayer beads he's one of my fa- he's my favorite support character cuz he has this really interesting ability where he can like send one bead to one of your teammates that will heal them and one bead to an an enemy player that will make it so they uh, take more damage and that that ability is really interesting because in while in battle you're constantly looking around to see like okay I'm going to send this to that guy and send this to this guy so he can heal and we can we can take down this tank enemy and it's a really active support element that that ability that's very different from all the other support characters and stuff like that that all the support characters have little touches like that of very interesting abilities like the one of them can like make a teleporter that that so that people in the home base when they respawn can teleport immediately to where you are and stuff like. Like that, that if you're very smart with how you use some of the abilities, you can completely turn the tide of the match, which is what you want. Absolutely. I mean, I played with my brother on Xbox Live for like two and a half hours last night. We just got so into it. Yeah. And he had not touched it before, so I had to sit there while he did the tutorial first. But then we started playing it, and he got... At first, he was a little confused, because it is a little overwhelming if you don't know yeah, what it is. Yeah, especially with all the different characters. When you first yeah. look at that screen, you're like, what the fuck? You're like, what right. should I pick? And I'm trying to explain it to him, because I, I I like leveled up to level four or so on PS4, and then I moved over to Xbox One, and I'm up to like seven. Right. So, uh, just because my brother's on Xbox Live. So, I've been playing that, and so I was able to explain some of it to him, and then he's like, I don't know if I want to play a healer. And I'm like, oh, you should try it. It's fun. You'll, you'll see if you like it. He fell in love with playing the healer. And yeah. just being a support character, it's a Luso, Lucius. What's it? Oh, is the Lucio the, Lucio. the like Brazilian like yeah. uh, like jet set radio looking guy? Yeah, he's, yeah, awesome. he's great. He's, he's great because he has this awesome ability where he has a passive ability where he basically will play one of two songs. One song <laughs> yeah. will heal the people around you, and one song will make the people around you faster, including yourself. And, like, they're actually different songs that emanate from the character in the game. He's great. He's great. My brother fell in love with that character, played as him a bunch, and got really good right away. Like, he was like, oh, I, this is really fun to play as. I'm really... And he started getting, like, to that point where he would be, like, the team leader and getting the vote yeah. on the vote screen at the end. So that's just really cool, like, that you can just pick up and play, play a class you never really thought of playing before, and fall in love with it. And part of it is absolutely... He mentioned that to me. He's like, hey, this guy plays music. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And it's great. So... I'm loving Overwatch. This is absolutely an early game of the year candidate for me. Just in having fun with it, I you know it'll be in my top ten. I'm loving this. I cannot wait for the actual release version to come out on May 24th because I'm very sad that on Tuesday the beta will stop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
And before we move on, I just want to highlight a couple of my favorite things about some of the characters. This game has what is easily the greatest reload animation in the history of first-person shooters, where I can't remember the guy's name, but it's it's the Swedish guy with the big beard who makes the turrets. That guy... I haven't played this in yet. Yeah, he, he has a gun that basically shoots lava, and the reload animation for that gun is he has this little, like, sort of, like, robot arm that has, like, a little, like, claw at the end. And his reload animation is he spins the claw and sort of, like, generates lava and just dumps it into the top of the gun. <laughs> like, it's a fucking, like, water pistol or something. But it shoots lava. It's great. I guess I could talk about favorite characters a little more. Like, one of the things that's so amazing about the game to me is how diverse some of those characters yeah. can be. Because, like, my two favorites to play at this moment are Genji and D.Va. Diva is great. Diva is great and so weird for this game that you have a fucking mech-based character. Yeah. She can do... It's a very actually pared-down character. You Basically, you can shoot. You have some movement abilities. Um, but then your super... Your super's all... Or your ultimate... Just, yeah. It's just this giant detonation and you get out of the mech and you're actually... You can be very effective out of the mech too. And then your mech blows up and then you can get a new mech yeah. and go back at it. She is fucking great. And then Genji just has fucking... He's like a ninja. He's got... Sh- or a robot ninja. Yeah. He's got shurikens that you just throw. He's very precise. If you're good with Genji, you are really good. Yeah. I've been yeah. killed by Genji a lot. And, and then he's just got some other cool moves and he's just shouting Japanese in this deep, awesome Japanese yeah. voice... Uh, it's so cool. And I just love that those two characters can be in the same game. Yeah. Yeah. I really like Mei a lot. That She's a Chinese girl that with the ice, the ice powers. I like that she can make the big ice walls. That's really cool. Widowmaker, she's the, the, the sniper character. I played a little bit. I had a Widow- lot of success with her in one match. I did too. And I'm usually really bad at sniping, but I did okay. Yeah. I, th- I, think, like, I think it's that the, the, all the characters fit so well into their individual niche that like even if you're not typically that great at sniping in a game, the fact that like... You're, it's not Halo, and you're having to go find the sniper and like and, and stuff like that. Instead, you're okay. I'm going to spawn as the sniper character who's designed to snipe, has mobility options that enable the sniping of the game. It yeah. gives you a more clear sort of like this designed role for the game because she's not an offensive character; she's a defensive character. That's the strata that they put her into. Right. I also really like Farah. She's the rocket launcher Farrah. character with the jetpack. She's great. She's great. I love. I've done a lot with Farah. But they're all fun. And if you're, you know, doing poorly, you can just switch and, and experiment. I love that. Yeah, and yeah I, they make it very easy for you to just change heroes because the game is designed, I feel, that, like, if you feel like, okay, the what the, the enemy heroes are set up in such a way that I'm not really sure with my character how to best fight them by no, oh, if I'm playing as Tracer, like, I know how to take these guys right. down really effectively. They make it very easy for you to do that. Or if you're getting to the end of a match and it's like, it's go time, I've got to get there, I just, I'll switch to Tracer. And it's yeah. like, I just need someone who's fast and can shoot, jump to Tracer. I almost never start as Tracer, but in a pinch, she's great. Yeah. And I just love, it's a, I get the sense everyone is just having fun with it, too, online. Yes, yeah. You get a lot of, like, Basically, one of the things in the game is that you have this 30-second time before the actual fighting starts, and you'll be separated by doors, and the people will just be shooting each other behind the doors yeah. and just goofing off. And I kind of love that. There's There will be a ranked mode at some point, but even there, I feel like it's just... The, the goal of the game is to have a good time. Yeah, and, and that is a good point. That like, And that's one of the things that comes across when I say like the character design is fantastic. And it's not just like the characters are diverse and very interesting and have amount of pers- a huge amount of personality. But they all seem like they're having fun in their own ways, even if they're like a broody motherfucker. Yeah. Like, they still seem like they're enjoying their time, you know. And, that's, and that adds a sense of enjoyment to the game, just a glee to the game. That, that it is uh, irreplaceable. Absolutely. and I So I'm looking forward to playing more of this, talking about it more on the podcast. For now, why don't we move on to some news. All right. Um, 
Because the only movie we've seen recently is Civil War, so we'll get into that. Yeah. And uh, you, Sean, you wanted to start with a little... Nintendo did some follow-up. Yeah, a little bit of Nintendo follow-up, because that was sort of the main topic that we ended last week's podcast. And that was... It was it came out a couple of days after that podcast that Nintendo, Nintendo basically announced that they are not going to do a Nintendo Direct for E3, that instead... Basically, they're just going to do a live stream through Treehouse, which is they've done these every E3 where they'll do like a, like last year's E3. They had like a big Super Mario Maker live stream that they did that showed off a bunch of interesting levels and stuff. And they're going to do one of those with Legend of Zelda for the Wii U. And that's basically going to be it for their like online thing that they do at E3 that has sort of become a tradition of the past few years. So they're essentially sitting out E3. Yes, yeah, yeah. They're 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 showing up with a big box full of Legend of Zelda Wii U demo kits, and that's that's it. it. And what that suggests more than anything is that everything they're making is for the NX. Yeah. They can't show anything for the NX if they don't tell you what the NX is. So they can't do a Nintendo Direct because a Nintendo Direct is usually a series of game announcements, yeah, yeah. or game follow ups. But we know everything through the end of the year. Zelda's the only game they can tell us about because it's cross platform. It's uh, it's weird. It's like Nintendo is just playing hide-and-seek right now. Yeah, it's really weird. And it, it, like, it would be like way more disconcerting if this had been done a few years ago where E3 was way more important. There is like a part of this does feel like, well, several companies are sort of backing out of E3 in pretty significant ways. That E3's... I don't think... like I'm not saying that E3 is going to go away. Like It's still very important like for, for a lot of different reasons. But I don't think it's... It's not the central hub for game announcements that it was several years ago and that a lot of... Publishers and developers have caught on to the fact that if they just put on their own live streams, they're still going to hit basically the same audience they would anyways, but they get to 100% control everything that has to do with that, which is right. a good thing in some ways for them. It's also maybe a bad thing in some ways for consumers that like when like there's, there's something sort of unsettling about how much they're like wrapping in like YouTube, Twitch kind of people and like Let's Players to sort of advertise their games for them. Some of that stuff I don't love, but yeah, it's... The short of it is that E3 is not as important as it used to be, so Nintendo completely backing out of it this year, more or less, is not that is not completely unsettling, but it does indicate, well, they just basically have nothing more for the Wii U, that the Wii U is completely done. Because if they had more games to announce for the Wii U, they would announce them at E3, because where else would you do it? Or the 3DS. That's a weird yeah. thing to me. I mean, they're doing the Pokemon stream. We'll get to talk about that next week, because they're going to announce the details on moon and sun and we'll yeah. probably see some gameplay and i'm looking forward to that but i guess that's it for the 3ds in the fall I, yeah it seems it's like weird it. I, yeah and i guess that leads to the bigger question when and where are they going to do the nx announcement because yeah. i don't think just doing a nintendo direct is enough i really do think you want some kind of stage well you need you want some kind of stage and more importantly like the other function that e3 has is that all the press go to e3 yeah so that they can get their hands on the games and, and report back with, like, hands-on preview kind of stuff. Like, you'd need some amount of that. And Nintendo currently, as far as I know, does not have any sort of event where they do that kind of stuff. But they'll need to. Yeah. For the NX. Is it Tokyo Game Show? Is it Gamescom? I don't know. Maybe they'll, like, like PlayStation has the PSX thing that they do every year now. Like, like it's, it's, like, every once in a while. Like, Xbox did a big one with, like, the zero-hour thing for the launch of the Xbox 360. So right. it's, like... Companies have done that on their own, but that's also like always been a part of like, like when the PS4 and the Xbox One were announced, they were both announced in independent live streams held by Sony and Microsoft, respectively, that were a couple of months before E3, 
And so that they got the announcement of the console out of the way, so that their E3 press conference was all games and stuff, and for the supplemental announcements for the consoles. So typically, when these kinds of things are done where you do have a outside of E3 major press conference, it's usually used in a like one-two punch kind of fashion with E3, which is clearly yeah. not what they're doing here. And I just Nintendo is so out of step with everyone else's schedule; it's confusing. Yeah, it's like especially I, if they're going to hit that March 2017 date for the right. NX, like. And even though it's March, I still kind of think it might be smart to announce the fucking console at E3 and just yeah. get that out of the way. Unless they're not ready, and I understand that there could be specs not locked down, but they could at least give a general impression, and then they could. They spend could at the least give of, us a name, for God's sake. A name, and then they could spend the rest of the year hyping it because maybe they want to do the game announcements. I. Uh, it seems like they have a lot of people working on a lot of NX games. Yeah, they must have. It must. It would be good to be able to trickle that out over the rest of the year. If it is March, March is not that far past the fall yeah. release window. So. Very confusing. We'll see what happens. Yeah, but we will not be talking about Nintendo much when we do our E3 podcast this year. We'll talk about the new Zelda. I guess we'll finally get a title for that game. The Legend of Zelda for the Wii U and Legend of Zelda for the NX is my prediction. That would be the biggest fuck you to everyone. That would be like if you thought that that Smash Brothers thing was just a one-time thing. It's like, nope, that's their naming scheme going forward for all cross-platform releases, motherfucker. It wouldn't surprise me in some way. I don't yeah. know. It's like the Smash Bros. thing is a bad title, but it makes sense. Like yeah. it's, there's nothing wrong. It's not. There's not confusing or anything. Sure. Yeah. It tells you what it is. The Zelda thing would be very confusing. Yeah, it would be. It would just be sad. All right. I don't think they're going to do that for Zelda. No, they're not going to do that. It'd be funny. Uh, the Legend Twilight of Zelda. Kids. The Legend of Zelda Four Swords Legends. It's been a Four Swords game the whole time. Yeah. Legend of Zelda is a link to the past two. I know we already did let, like between worlds thing, but fuck it, whatever. <laughs> All right, let's hit some... I'm going to save the biggest news for the end. Okay. And if y'all were paying attention, you know what that news is. We'll get to it. Let's do some other things first. Sean, make fun of Battlefield 1. I don't even know if I want to make fun of it. I just just want to express a very humanist sort of concern... Well, let's back the up. existence of Battlefield 1. So they've announced the new Battlefield game. Yes. Instead of doing Battlefield 5, they're doing Battlefield 1, not to be confused with the game called Battlefield that is Battlefield 1. Yeah. Although, no, there is, because they, their first Battlefield game is Battlefield 1942, I'm pretty sure. So Because it's they, they did it? the, the year. That might okay. not be the very first Battlefield game. That's the earliest Battlefield game that I feel like anybody ever talks about. I'm going to look it up. Either way, like the Xbox One, it's confusing. Yeah, I mean, it's a terrible name. I'm not trying to defend the name, okay. but I, at the very least, I don't think that there is any other game that in that franchise that people would just call Battlefield 1. I, there's probably another game that made for like the Amiga or something in like the 80s that, that was just called Battlefield, but... Yeah, so, so the long and short of it is they announced Battlefield 1, which is set in World War 1, because that's how... it's so, That's just so clear, you know. It's yes. like 1, World War 1, they're both number... I mean, it's like You're, how Xbox One is the Xbox made for World War 1. Yes. By the way, you are correct. 1942 is the first one. Okay. But here's how you know it's confusing, is if you Google Battlefield 1, you get a mix of results of Battlefield 1942 and Battlefield 1, the new yeah, announcement. Yeah, There's, I feel like some of that confusion will probably linger for people who are bigger Battlefield fans than me. Because I've never, like, I've sort of skirted around some Battlefield games in the past. Like, I've played some demos. I've, I've played some multiplayer at friends' houses and stuff. But I've never been a Battlefield kind of guy. So I... Don't think that's going to change for Battlefield 1. The thing that I find kind of appalling, I suppose is the word, about Battlefield 1 is the trailer that that, that accompanied the announcement, which was, like, on its own merits, a well-made trailer, exciting, 
uh, like action packed, lots of explosions. It, it had I can't remember what the pop song was, but it had like some sort of like really heavy remix of a pop song, the cover of something of a pop song. As you do, yeah. That, that's like it's one of those pop songs that like I feel like people generally don't just like listen to all the time, but like it's just on radios to at places you go to, and so it's like ingrained in your subconscious, but you can never remember what that song's called. It's that kind of pop song, and so it has that playing. It's like it's well cut, well edited, generally. The main problem I had with it, and I feel like I've never, I have not found anyone else's had this reaction, so maybe I'm just crazy, but it was like there's something watching that announcement trailer that is like edited like a Michael Bay action movie, like a Transformers trailer is kind of edited, that sort of thing. And just thinking in the back of my mind, like, it's World War One, guys, like... Like it's 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 World War One. It's like it's the war where where the world lost any like sense of innocence it might have had. It's it's the war where if you read a book that was written one year before that war started, and you read any like pick any random book written one year before the war started, and any random book written one year after the war started, it's like those books were written two hundred years apart. Let's put it this way. People, Ernest Hemingway wrote books about World War One. Yeah. Marvel wrote comics about World War Two. That's yeah. the difference. You get Captain America out of World War Two. You get, you know, For Whom the Bell Tolls or something out of World yeah, War One. Yeah, yeah, Like, you get, like, it's just like, World War One. that's the war that fucking J.R.R. Tolkien fought in. Like, World yes. War One is the war that was so horrible that it basically spawned the modern fantasy genre because yes. the dude in the war couldn't take it, right? Yeah. Like, it, it's... Like it's just it's such if you you know anything about the history of the war and like anything about like for my angle of it being an English major like it's a lot of reading literature around that period and if you read any early modernist literature at all like it's so grim it's so dark and like every like all like the Victorian novels and stuff like like Charles Dickens are so like there's like like bad shit is happening in those novels and stuff but there's always every Victorian novel ends with like everyone's happy like the villain has been defeated but they're usually not killed usually they're just in jail or something or maybe they've repented and they're they're good 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 upstanding Christian now and all everyone gets married and it's all perfect like no matter how fucked up the novel is along the way every novel ends like that like every novel written during during and post like immediately post World War One ends with every character just dying. Yeah, like it's just like like Joseph Conrad novels, like yep. the Secret Agent or something. It's like everyone just fucking dies at the end, or like commits suicide, or gets murdered by their wife. This is like it's not pleasant. It's like you read like The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot, which is just like a poem that is practically rendered incomprehensible by the the sheer horror and disgust at the at like. At, at the 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 evil at the heart of humanity, it's like that's what that poem is. It's just like it just kills you inside when you read this stuff, and then you watch this fucking trailer. It's like, and then and then I go and read the fucking comments for it because I'm an idiot. And like the first comment I read was like, "Man, this trailer is hype as fuck." It's like, I want World War One to be hype as fuck. I, that's not a world I want to live in. That's not something I need. I want it's, every time I look at World War One to weep tears of blood in my heart. Right? Like that's what it should be. There's a reason why most games and movies, if they're going to do a war, do World War Two because yeah, it's because really easy to dramatize. The morality of it is much simpler. You can have good guys and bad guys without a huge amount of like niggling the moral issues in the back of your mind for World War Two. Yeah, everyone can pretty much agree. The Nazis were bad. Yeah, pretty um, fucked. Yeah, 
and and that's we fight the Nazis. That's why you can have Nazis and zombies and Nazi zombies, and they will be eternally yeah. good villains. And, but it's also like there's a reason we don't have a Vietnam game yet. Yeah, there's and that should extend to World War One. Also, there are certain wars you just shouldn't do. Or if you're going to do them, like present the war with the appropriate right. gravity. Like even like I think it back to like because this is something where Call of Duty has been in a weird place where like they they didn't like I feel like Call of Duty Four did not have, was like Call of Duty Four was not like what this Battlefield One trailer was like Call of Duty Four. One of the things that made that campaign look like really interesting was that it was. A dramatic game, and like it, it was a somber game in a lot of places. And it, the game like took its time. And there's stuff like the sequence in Call of Duty Four where you temporarily play as that AC-130 gunner, where you are just like in this AC-130, look, looking at an infrared map of the ground below you and shooting at little red dots. And there's like a guy in your ear saying like, "There's a guy up by the barn. You got him." Yeah. Two bogeys over by the car. They're dead, and it's like, and it's that, and it's like, it's a really chilling mission of that game because it's handled in that way. And to be fair, this is just the the launch trailer for Battlefield One. Maybe, hopefully, the the, the campaign will have a sense of like respect and, and, and pomp to it that that it really needs to carry out a war like that. I just don't have a lot of sense that it's going. To no, you're that. saying that. I'm laughing. Wait, Battlefield yeah. games do not have a sense of pomp and respect. Yeah. Because my- Battlefield games are also, like, derided for their campaigns. Like, the campaigns are never what people play for Battlefield. It's always the multiplayer, like, way more so than it is for Call of Duty. Uh, yeah, Battlefield would make a lot of sense to just become one of those multiplayer-only franchises. Yeah, exactly. But many people have been calling for that. That's why Battlefront is basically that way. Yeah. No, it's it's funny. I had not watched the trailer because it's not a game I or a genre I even care yeah. about. But when you told me that, I just found it funny. Yeah. Because, yeah... The idea of doing a World War One game at all, it makes sense to me if you're doing like an indie game like Valiant Hearts. Yeah, like Valiant Hearts the Great War is a great yeah. little game that's like about war that's set in World War One and about World War One. But I don't think you can do it as a major you know, maybe Call of Duty could have done it once upon a time. Not yeah. anymore, obviously. Yeah, no, like now they're just like that's one of the things that's nice about like the near future setting is you don't have to worry about like those things about like, yeah, drone warfare is really fucked up. You can just be like, it's near future, like none of this is representing anything like approximating reality, so it can just be big fun action movie. So it's like I enjoyed the advanced warfare campaign, and it is completely like a big dumb action movie, and you don't need to think about the plot. But like I much more enjoyed the campaigns for Call of Duty two and Call of Duty four because they gave that very dramatic sense of like an interpretation of, of, of the emotions and the drama of the different periods they're set in. Absolutely. And you know, you say that about Call of Duty 4, and I hadn't thought about it in a couple of years, but it is true. First person shooters have largely lost whatever social conscious they had. Yeah. And it's interesting because Call of Duty 4, not technically an Iraq war game, but it's about the times we live in. Yeah. And it's very smart in how it approaches that. And Immediately, you get to like Modern Warfare Two and yeah, five. Yeah, like go a off Modern and, Warfare Two. Yeah, and it's like you have like this whole like this ridiculous mission set in like the British favelas and stuff like that. That feels like Modern Warfare Two. It feels like it's completely detached from any sort of reality. Like culminating in when like Captain Price launches like five billion nuclear missiles near the end of that game. Yeah, and it never. Call of Duty never came back from that. No, it didn't. It maybe, didn't. maybe some people would argue a little bit in some of the Black Ops stuff because that maybe. goes into more Cold War stuff, but. Not really, and it's too bad, because you could do it, obviously. Yeah, you, have- you could do a great first-person shooter set in World War One. Yeah. I would hope that the announcement trailer for a great first-person shooter set in World War One would not look like that. Like, I no. don't know. 
Because it's just shit like, you know, like there's a there's a part in the trailer where the guy is go like puts on a gas mask in first person because he's going to walk through a cloud of mustard gas because that oh, was boy. that was the the war where chemical like that was the war where we realized how just how fucked science can be. Like just how little a rain on our own technology we had, how far away <clears throat> it had gotten away from us. It's like World War One is the war that like gave us a reason to have rules in war. Like really seriously, we need rules for this shit because you know how mustard gas kills you if you die from it. It's you breathe it in and it gets into your lungs and it burns the inside of your lungs and blisters the inside of your lungs. And when those blisters pop, your lungs fill with fluid and you drown to death, Jonathan. That's what mustard gas does to a person. That should not be the subject of a big fun, like, holy shit, hype as fuck action trailer. Am I crazy? You're not. And it's funny because, you know, there is obviously a sense of nationalism and jingoism to the modern Call of Duty and Battlefield and all this stuff. Yeah. And you really can't do that with World War One. No. It's, it's the war no one is proud of. That no one wanted to fight, like, literally, like, it's just like... Like nations just got dragged into World War One because of stupid fucking treaties they had that like nobody nobody wanted to fight that fucking war and somehow whole generations like whole villages of young men basically like just wiped out in Europe like yeah. it's it's the most atrocious just disgusting thing the human race has had it's like it should not it should not be this it should not be this game no let's move on yeah um, something better. Uh, Marvel, obviously a lot of stuff going on this week. Kevin Feige and everyone else at Marvel doing lots of interviews because of Civil War. Yeah. Um, and one of the things they said is that, this was an interview and I just thought it was worth noting, that while they do not have a Black Widow movie on the schedule, it is one they are really committed to doing, they want to do. It's the person who they have not gotten into a solo movie who they most want to get into a solo movie. Yeah. And I want to talk about that just because I feel like... A Black Widow to me is one of, if not, you could argue, the most fascinating character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Sure, yeah. I could totally buy someone saying she's my favorite part. Yeah, And yeah. it would be totally valid. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I would go that... I can't choose my favorite part, so it's yeah. tough, but she's in my top five. I don't yeah. know. I love Black Widow. I love Scarlett Johansson. They haven't made a movie for her yet. And it's interesting. I, I like that they are committed to that. I also like that they're taking their time, because yeah. I'm not sure how you'd do it. And she's yeah, works... it's a hard so- character... And she works so immensely well as, like, she is the best supporting character in the expanded ensemble. And she works so well in that field. I don't think it's a negative to say that's what she is. And and it's, I don't think it's automatically, like, sexism or something if they don't make a movie for her. Yeah. It's sexism when they don't make toys of Black Widow or something. But that's a different thing. Um, But I just like that admittance that we are committed to it. We're still figuring it out. It seems like Marvel has actually pumped the brakes on a couple of things. They've delayed Captain Marvel a little bit. I know they delayed Black Panther at one point just to give Ryan Coogler enough time. Right. They've pushed Inhumans back indefinitely because they, they want to make sure they get it right. And they're in that position where they can do that. Yeah. And just make the movies they think are cool. So anyway, I just... What would your reaction to that news be? Yeah, like, I I've, I rewatched um Captain America the Winter Soldier a couple of days before I saw Civil War. And rewatching that movie, knowing that, like, this was sort of, like, it, like being talked about more heavily... And I was sort of looking at that movie and thinking about, like, how it would work. And I do think that if you, like, if you did a sort of, like, pseudo-origin story for her, like, not like I don't want it to be, like, set completely in Black Widow's past, but more like some event relating to, like, the Black Widow program comes up that, like, fleshes out her backstory because we haven't gotten much of it in the movies. Like, there's a lot more in Avengers 2, but there's still not much. And I think, I think like, that could be... 
an impetus for a movie. I don't know Black Widow well enough from the comics to know, like, if she has a strong supporting cast. Because I do feel like the hardest thing with Black Widow is that I just don't know who else is in the movie. And I feel like you need to come, like, have other characters. And I just don't know what characters exist in her supporting It's funny, because after Avengers 1, we had this conversation. And I think what we agreed is she would be the S.H.I.E.L.D. movie. And you would have Nick Fury, and you would have... Hawkeye and you would have Hulk and they would all be together in a solo movie but she would be like the headline Scarlett Johansson top build but it would be all those people yeah and at this point though they've blown all that up yeah it doesn't feel like that's like plausible anymore no you would have to give her a supporting cast not that it can't be done it can obviously be done but I don't think it can be done until probably after Infinity War just because you have so many things going on yeah and again they have used her it's amazing she hasn't had a solo movie because, it, frankly, I feel like we know her better than certain characters like Thor, who has had solo yeah. movies. Yeah, because she she's in a lot of the movies now, now that she's in Avengers, she's in uh, Winter Soldier, she's in Avengers 2, and she's in Civil War. And not only is she in all those movies, she gets a lot of screen time in all yes. those movies. Like, in all those movies that she's in, she is com- like competitive for like the most screen time in the movie. She's second build in Winter Soldier. Yeah. And I think like she's, she's in like most of the scenes in that movie. She's yeah. in like most of the scenes with Captain America. Clearly, also in especially Avengers Two, that's who Joss Whedon was interested in. He's yeah. interested in her and Hulk and Hawkeye. And frankly, if you did a Black Widow movie, I'd kind of like them to get Joss Whedon. If he would like, yeah. would you like to do something smaller, Joss? Just a one character? Yeah, I think that would be kind of perfect for him if he ever wanted to do more Marvel. Yeah, because I think another thing that, though that would be difficult with Black Widow is that like it's a lot easier to have Black Widow be the supporting character. In the other heroes' movies, because she's like she's really kick-ass on her own, but she's like next to Captain America, Black Widow like knows kung fu, has little like electric gauntlets, and can shoot people. Like she's like a spy, right? Yeah. And having like Captain America be the the supporting character for a significant amount of the Black Widow movie, or like Hulk being a supporting character for a lot of the Black Widow movie, would be very hard because. They are, if it's like a big fight at the end of the movie, like Hulk and Captain America are far more equipped in terms of like their powers in the universe to take care of like a big threat at the end of a film that I think would be very easy to, for those characters to draw the attention away from Black Widow in like the action part of the movie. Because it's like, you need something that's so like especially built for Black Widow and something so especially built for Black Widow would not work for a character like Captain America or a character like Hulk in the way it does the reverse. You're right. I mean, again, four years ago, I would have said that would be Hawkeye, but I feel like the chemistry has evolved in such a way where when Black Widow was first in Avengers, she and Hawkeye were friends, and they still are, but the relationships that matter are more Black Widow and Cap, Black Widow and Hulk. Hulk, Black Widow and, like, Nick Fury. Nick Fury. Those are, like, the big ones. Yeah, I, I think feel like she and Hawkeye clearly are friends, but that's not... You can't build a movie on that in yeah. the way I maybe thought they could have once. Yeah, because when Avengers was their only movie, it felt like way more significant there. Whereas like, now yeah. that you've seen her interact with like all the other characters, it's like, yeah, her relationship with Hawkeye just seems like they're friends that work together. Yeah. And honestly, it is one of the most impressive things about the Marvel Universe is that you can have a character as prominent as Black Widow, and she doesn't need her solo movie. Yeah. Just like, frankly, if they didn't make a Black Panther movie, it wouldn't re- reduce my enjoyment of Civil War. Yeah, yeah. He feels like he needs to be there, and while I would be really sad if they'd ever made a Spider-Man movie, Spider-Man works well enough here that if they just had him in the team-ups... That would still work. Like, yeah, it they, would, yeah, it would work. It would bum me out, but it would, it would work. bum me out. But yeah, so again, it would bum me out if she never got anything because if Scarlett Johansson plays this long enough, she should have one. Yeah, but 
We'll see. I, I'm very, again, I'm really curious what the state of the Marvel Universe will be after Infinity War and what they can do with those first round of heroes. Yeah. Uh, or and we'll talk about this at the end of Civil War because our Civil War discussion because clearly Civil War sets up the next phase of things. Yeah, and I'm just curious where they're going with all this. So especially because I feel like until Infinity War, we're not going to see most of these people again. Yeah, that's true. Um, they're doing a lot of different kinds of movies, either stuff, some stuff like Guardians or new heroes altogether. So it's going to be very fascinating. Um, also under the Disney banner, we have Star Wars. Right, Star Wars. They're gearing up. For their second spin-off movie, which is the Han Solo movie. Yes, the and that young one, Han Solo movie. Young Han Solo movie directed by Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who famously made 21 and 22 Jump Street and the Lego movie. They are people who take really bad ideas for movies and make really good movies, which is why yeah. I'm excited for Young Han Solo, which is a bad idea. Oh, it's a terrible idea. It's a horrible idea. But you can, if anyone can do it, it's them. Sure. And I will say this. They, they, so this week... They, they announced the casting of Han Solo. It was actually announced while I was watching Civil War. So I got out of the theater. I was tweeting about Civil War, and then I looked at my, my timeline. And I was like, oh, everyone's tweeting about Han Solo. I'm totally out of the sight, guys, at yeah. this moment. Um, but he's, uh, they announced Alden Ehrenreich. I think I'm saying that right. Sounds right. Will be playing Han Solo. And I fucking love that casting. Now, I don't think you've probably seen him in anything. No, he didn't ring any bells for me. He was in the new Coen Brothers movie, Hail okay. Caesar. He's by far the best part of that movie. He is phenomenal in that movie. He plays, if you don't know Hail Caesar, which you should see, it's a really fun Coen Brothers movie. He plays like a young Western musical star in Hollywood who gets drafted um, to be the romantic you know, male lead in a bigger picture for, for the studio. Because right. Westerns were often B-movies and smaller at that time. And so he gets drafted to do that, and he's very uncomfortable in that role. But he is this guy, and he's got the southern accent. He's a good old boy, but really nice, and he's got these moral values, which is kind of a contrast to everyone else in the movie. And he is so funny in that. He's so good. He's such a chameleon in that part. And I had also seen him in this awful young adult novel adaptation movie called Beautiful Creatures. Really bad movie. I reviewed it for the site. I'm sorry. No, it's, it's a bad movie. He was good in that, too. Like, okay. he's got screen presence, but he was way better in Hail Caesar, as people who do Cohen Brothers movies tend to do. Sure, yeah. But that's one of the things. The Coens discover people. They find the yeah. best in an actor, and I can totally see how, when they were thinking about the young Han Solo casting, that was right around the time Hail Caesar came out. They made a list of all the names that were being looked at, and I saw Alden Ehrenreich on there, and I'm like, that's it. Just from seeing Hail Caesar, I'm like... I could not picture what a young Han Solo would even look like. The yeah. moment I saw his name, I get what they're going for here. And it's probably as Hail Caesar is part of it. I'm sure he auditioned too. But I just I see that movie and I think of young Han Solo and I think you could do something really fun with that. So we shall see. Yeah. I still contend this is probably a bad idea. It's a fucking awful idea. Like I just don't understand why you would want to do this. Like why like it's Han Solo is one of the most iconic movie characters and it's like trying to make a movie about young Han Solo and like Han Solo's origin story or whatever they want to like pitch it as just like don't why like what what value is there in that like that story one has been told a hundred billion times in like expanded universe stuff so it's not even interesting territory for Star Wars fans I feel to like go there it's like yeah he trained as like an imperial cadet and all this shit who cares I just don't know what that movie is I don't either, but I'm I'm open to someone like Phil Lord and Chris Miller looking at that and saying, we don't know what that movie is either, so let's do something fun and crazy with sure, it. Yeah. I am sure they will not go the conventional route because 
They literally never have. And I would be very curious to see how they handle it because, I don't know, I also I also would absolutely have said that about Rogue One. And then the Rogue One trailer came out and I thought, I, got, I get this. I get sure, why they're sure. doing this. So I have faith in it because there's really smart people working on it. It is Lawrence Kasdan writing the script. Um, with Phil Lord and Chris Miller overseeing that. So, you know, it's it's smart people working on it, even if it's a bad idea. Yeah. Hopefully it comes out well. And casting someone who I can just immediately see as this character, I, that to me is the biggest thing because casting recasting Harrison Ford yeah. is about the hardest thing you can do. And doing it in a way where I know that actor and I can say, I get it, that's a big get to me. Like, And it's something that... Because he has that one movie, Hail Caesar, where I feel like that's a good audition for that. I can see it and I can understand it. And we don't have to like wait two years thinking, who's this guy they cast? What's that yeah, going to yeah. be like? So, you know, that's interesting to me. And and I'm glad they didn't go for a known name or anything. They didn't do Zac Efron as Hans. And I like Zac Efron. He's a funny guy. But he would not be right for Han Solo. They should have just... Just kept Harrison Ford and digitally de-aged him for the whole movie. Based on recent Marvel movies, that can be done. Sure. <laughs> it would be. I feel like it would be harder with Harrison Ford than literally anyone else. And I think it would be not a very cost-effective move <laughs> no. to de-age your main character that dramatically for an entire movie. To de-age him <laughs> to where he is, looks younger than he was in the first movie, the, tra- the franchise that was made in the 70s. I mean, frankly, this feels like it would be the best candidate to do as just an animated Star Wars movie. Yeah, yeah. Because then you can kind of make it look however you want, but we'll see. It It could be fun, but we'll yeah. find out in a couple of years. I just yeah. wanted to mention the casting because I was excited they went with him. I yeah, saw I was it. curious to, to hear what you thought about it because, like I said, it wasn't an actor that I was familiar with. Yeah, I, I don't know when Hail Caesar will be on DVD and digital, but when it does, you would love it in particular. Yeah. Just I think you like that brand of Coen Brothers humor, and it is indeed funny and... He's good in that. So cool. Anyway, let's go ahead and move on. Um, I think this actually came out before our last podcast, but I forgot to throw it on the outline. Batman: The Killing Joke, the right. DC yes. animated movie. Because we've shit a lot on DC lately. Let's remember their animated stuff is awesome. Yeah, and has been quietly for years now. Yes, they are finally making an adaptation of Batman: The Killing Joke, the iconic Alan Moore graphic novel that has basically influenced every iteration of the Joker since. Yeah. And Mark Hamill is playing the Joker, as he goddamn well should for this one. Yeah. Kevin Conroy is voicing Batman. Um, and it is a feature-length film with a killing joke. It's finally got its release date. It's in August, I think. In late July, it gets a digital release. In early August, it gets a DVD and Blu-ray release. And they finally put out a trailer for it. Yeah. I think it looks great. Yeah, it looks really good. It's... Like- it. It is not exactly Brian Bolland's art style, but no, it's yeah. it's like a nice, like moving adaptation of it. Like, yeah, because like his his art style is too realistic to yeah animate reliably. I think it's like you need something that's a little more more pared down. So it has because Bruce Tim is is like producing the movie and everything. He's the the guy from the DC animated universe cartoons, like the old Batman animated series back in the day. And there's you can see a bit of that influence in the art style. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of funny because we reviewed their Dark Knight Returns movie yes. on this podcast. And I think our reaction was, we don't love that story, but they did that about as well as they could. Yeah, yeah. And if they do that, was for The Killing Joke, which is a story I like significantly more. Yeah. Um, this will be great. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for it. I've been off of the DC animated movies for a few years now. And like, and th- I feel like this is the, the thing that will get me back into to watch a, a bunch of them again. Because they've, they've yeah. been... 
making a bunch of them for yep. a while. And there was a point there in like 2012 or 2013 where I had seen all of them and felt really good about that because there's only a couple of them that weren't that good. And so I'm, I'm excited to dig back in around that time to see see what else they, they, they've been pumping out. Maybe we can watch a couple of the really good ones before this comes out yeah. and do a podcast on. Yeah, like the the one DC animated movie that I've seen that I would say is like a must see for Batman fans, or for like, or of all of them, that's just like must see for a comic book movie fan is uh, Batman Under the Red Hood. That is a great, great, great Batman movie. That's like it's just like one of those rare comic book adaptations that is just like markedly much better than the story that it's based on. We'll talk about another example of that <laughs> later on. But yeah, Batman Under the Red Hood is a, is a great animated uh, flick. I would, I would and I will say, watch it. There is also room for improvement on the Killing Joke that I think they're taking. Like Barbara Gordon being so passive in that story. Yeah, yeah. And they're doing more. I know they're they're saying they're, they've got a prologue on this that is her as Batgirl. It looks like, just from the hints in the trailer, they might be redoing that sequence a little bit, because that is, for good reason, a controversial sequence. Yeah. I think the overall thematic thrust of it I like, but I think there are certain executional ways they do it that, in a modern context, could be improved. Yeah. And it looks like they're doing that. These are very smart people making these movies, so I'm excited. I mean, if if Mark Hamill finished his tenure as the Joker and had never done the killing joke, that would be a crime against God. Yeah, yeah. So Glad they're getting it in there. And it has a hard R rating. Too. Yes. This is like rare for, for like or I mean none of the DC animated movies have anything close to an R rating. Well so. and you know, people might ask, Well, why are you saying this is good when you said Batman v Superman shouldn't? Explain the difference, Sean. I mean there's a million there's a million differences. How Con- do you even like it's- one, like it's not R because of what Batman does? Like, I think that's a really big <laughs> distinction that Batman is not the character in the movie that is pushing the R rating. It's the fucking villain. That's a good point. Yes, no, I mean, it's context. It's yeah. your big budget Warner Brothers Batman movie just shouldn't fucking be rated R. Especially, as you say, if it's because of what Batman yeah, is because fucking, let me tell you, I watched Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. Fucking nothing that Doomsday or Lex Luthor does in that movie... <laughs> Pushes that rating, the, the rating needle anywhere. It is every, like, Batman is the only character in that movie that I can possibly imagine causes the R rating for the director's cut, right? Yes. Like, what, unless they have some really fucked up Superman scenes, which, like, hopefully well, they don't. Superman does fuck Lois in a tub. We didn't see all of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> anyway. Um, but no, I mean, and if you've read The Killing Joke... It kind of has to be. A oh, it's a story. really dark story. It's, it's Alan Moore does Batman. I mean, yeah, Alan Moore doesn't do happy stories. <laughs> Typically not. Yeah. Is there a happy Alan Moore story? There has to be, but I can't think of one off the top of my head. People smile at a he couple made, panels of Watchmen. Alan Moore made that like pornographic comic book with his wife. I did not like, know that years ago. That's like a pornographic take on a bunch of like fairy tale characters. I haven't read that. <laughs> But I have to imagine it's probably fairly happy. I hope it's fairly happy. Did you see... So he's got that novel coming out this year. Oh, I didn't see that. Yeah, it's like... I forget what it's called, but it's like... It's a thousand page, like, written novel. And they released the cover and an excerpt. Or not an excerpt, but like the description on the flap jacket. Right. Which Alan Moore himself wrote. I read through that. It's like a page of text, like, five times. I could not figure out. It's like a... It's in English. Good. But it sounds like a foreign language. And it kind of makes me want to read it, even though I don't think I'll understand it. Yeah, I mean, Alan Moore is just like that that dude who... Like, he just, like, went out into the woods and became a druid in the course of, like, a year. Like, like, like in the 90s. And he has been a druid ever since. Like, like I'm pretty sure that that guy can 
like has access to like spiritual planes of existence that we mere mortals cannot touch. It is fascinating, like the the parallel trajectories of Alan Moore and Frank Miller. Yeah, they because, both are like great visionaries that were hugely influential in their time around the same time in comic books. That both went crazy. One of them went crazy in a way that like is like depressing and makes you look back on everything he's written in a very negative light. And the other one is like, I wish I could be that guy kind yes. of crazy. It's not like Alan Moore lost his fastball. No. He just he started throwing in a different. He started pitching his fastball to God. Like yes. that's what he did. It's fa- I mean God bless that man. Both very natural extensions of their early work though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. I've always felt like I should read Alan Moore's like thousand page graphic novel about Jack the Ripper. Right, yeah. And I haven't, but I feel like I have a responsibility at some point I should, because it's supposed to be great yeah. and interesting. Have you read any of it? No, no, I haven't. Okay. You know what I mean though? It's like Yeah, it's I probably should, but I don't know if I it's, want it's to. An, it's like, yeah, Alan Moore's more heftier works can be a little bit intimidating to try to jump into. Yes. It's kind of like I feel like I should read The Tale of Genji or something. Yeah. But, but I don't... It would take some work. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. All right. Just a little um, aside there. We'll probably be one of the better Alan Moore film adaptations. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Not that there's a ton of competition there. No. V for Vendetta is a fine movie if you view it as different than the yeah, comic. Yeah, if you don't have like attach yourself slavishly to the source material, you can appreciate V for Vendetta for sure. V for Vendetta is a Iraq War movie. And the comic was not, yeah, for obvious yeah. reasons. So anyway, let's go ahead and move on to the big news this week. The only news worth fucking caring about. Yeah, I don't know what we've been talking about for the rest of this podcast. you got to build like up. Like World War One or something? What is that? Persona 5. They announced the Japanese release date for the game. It yeah. is September 15th in Japan. Yeah. Thus showing that they don't give a fuck about Final yeah, Fantasy. This is the same fucking week that Final Fantasy is coming out. Yeah. Fuck it. We know what y'all are really waiting for. And in Japan, they're waiting for Persona 5, guys. Yeah. Anyway, and with that, they released a new four and a half minute trailer. Fuck yeah, they did. And that is the closest I have ever come to God, is watching it's, that trailer. I have watched that trailer, I think, eight times. Holy shit, Sean. I've done- I mean, when it fucking launched, I literally watched it four times <laughs> in a row. In a row. It's like I basically spent half and because it also came out in Japan. It was part of a big like live stream thing. That that's how like that's like, like the the favor that Persona curries in Japan is that like every announcement that Persona has had for Persona Five has been accompanied by like a two hour live stream that they have like a like announcement clock a month ahead of time. And so in Japan it was at late at midnight. Here in America it was early in the morning. So when I woke up, I was like immediately. I like knew that that thing had happened while I was asleep, and I like looked at my phone. It's like, okay, yeah, there was a trailer. Okay, September fifteenth, awesome. I ran downstairs, grabbed my laptop, plugged my laptop via HDMI into my TV because I'm not going to fucking watch the trailer with my shitty laptop speakers, <laughs> and just like put the trailer on, watched the trailer once. I was so fucking blown away by it. I just kept on watching it while I ate breakfast. Yeah, I watched it twice in a row, and then I went back again to see a subtitled version. Yeah, at some point. Um, Oh my god. It's a really good trailer. It's not, like the, my excitement beforehand and not, not giving that away. It's a very good trailer. I, and not just as, I know we're raging Persona fans, yeah. but even then, this is just objectively oh, a fucking, like, they went insane in the making of this game, apparently. Yeah. That trailer is like just looking into the mind of a mad genius. Yeah, it's just like everything about the, like, like just the trailer parts of the trailer, like the editing and, and everything with that. The music track, which is... <laughs> 
it's the same sort of main theme that they use for the other really big trailer, but this is a much more sort of fully produced version that's a lot more dynamic. That song is it's incredible. It, but, like, the, the content of the trailer, where it feels like they, they, they're not, they're certainly not giving everything away because it's going to be like a 90 hour long game, so there's no trailer that can do that. They're frankly still not giving much away. Yeah. But, like, you get a more significant glimpse at, like, like you get a significant glimpse at a number of your party members, but even then, for a four and a half trailer where we've already know about like the four characters, the main character, the two blonde ones, and the mascot type character from the other trailers, we already knew about them, but they hadn't shown really almost any of the other cast members at all. And so this is the first time you got to look at any of the rest of the cast. And even then, the trailer only focuses in on, like, three or four of them. And there's still, like, a couple of characters that you can see at the end of the trailer in, like, the, the animated cinematic that are, like, walking down the street that the trailer didn't even have any other footage of. It's like, oh. this is the four-and-a-half trailer that is packed full of stuff. It is, like, cutting all the time. And we didn't even see anything for these other characters. And, you know, something we talked about with whatever the previous trailer was, it's so much stronger here. Every frame of this sucker oozes yeah. style. The UI oh my in God. this game. All other uni- user interfaces should be ashamed of themselves. And it's such a weird thing to like zero in on. But seriously, the user interface in this game is completely insane. No, and it, it really is the star of the trailer because it's it complete. If you haven't seen it, it's so hard to explain. But basically, it is aesthetically integrated with everything that's going on. Yeah. So it's like this explosion of like comic book panels or of you know thought bubbles and things and just craziness. Uh, frankly, if you have played Catherine, which is a game I played and loved, it's the last yeah, game yeah. the Persona team made. All of Persona 5, it looks like Catherine was a dry technical run for Persona 5 Mm -hmm. because Catherine had a really slick UI that was integrated with the characters. It had this kind of 3D dungeon crawling thing. It was was more puzzle-based, obviously. But all of that is clearly transferring over to Persona 5, but just blown up to the next stage because Catherine is like a 12-hour long thing. It is not a giant JRPG. But you look at this and you're like, yeah, they had to test all this out because yeah. this is insane. Some of the stuff they're doing just on the battle screen, you know, in Persona 3, it's a little circle. In Persona 4, it's a wheel that rotates in 3D. Yeah. In Persona 5, it's all over the screen. Yeah, it's just like this explosion of like that like harsh red and black color aesthetic that they've been yeah. using in all the advertising and stuff. And that's just like... It's it's like that is constantly ripping through the image of the game everywhere and showing you bits of UI. And it's like it's so intense and so awesome looking and so ingrained with the general visual aesthetic of everything else in the trailer. That's that kind of thing where like if you're you're playing like The Witcher or Uncharted or something and you're running around and you see a nice vista and you want to take a screenshot, you like go and you like find the option that turns off the UI to make it look prettier. In Persona 5, like you would never do that because the UI presented to you on the screen is so much a part of the visual design of the game that it's like it's not just that it's presenting information to you and in like just part of the 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 practical machinations of controlling the game it is also just part of making that game's visual style cohesive and linked together and then also make it feel like it is part of that theme that you are constantly getting through all these trailers about like the underground like thief aspect of you trying to like fighting against the man and breaking out against society and this like very punk attitude that the game has at its heart and it's like where the UI is just like bursting with energy and that like really harsh red color it's so perfect it's so perfect and it's got all the 
standard persona things that we've come to know from 3 and 4. It's got the dates, it's got the calendar moving, all these things. And yet it took me a couple of watches to recognize some of those because they've played with them so heavily. Like my favorite one is the advancing date. It's it's all over the screen. It's like this big circle. The date comes in and a knife gets thrown at it and hits it. It's it's just like they've taken every little detail that no other developer would think about because they're not crazy OCD about it. And they've just, just injected pure style into it. It's insane. Yeah. And, and let's talk about like some of the characters that you get to see because there are well, I think there are three characters that are really heavily featured in the in the trailer. You get like badass motorcycle lady with like that wears all leather. You get like the hacker girl that seems like she's probably going to be your sort of like operator character yeah. like Risei from Persona 4. And then you also get like like the beautiful young thief as she calls herself. That, that the rest of the cast is very appalled by that she would address herself in that way. Who like says like like it zooms in on her and has that like odd you thing. She has like the cool mask and hat and everything is piling around with the mascot. Like all of those characters, even though you only get like thirty seconds probably of footage for each of them in the trailer, like they all kind of like talking about with, like Overwatch just through the character design. Like they burst with so much life and personality, and you can tell so much about who they are just based on the way they look and the way they dress and how they carry themselves that it's like it's making me really really excited to play this game like obviously I already was but we only got those like little glimpses at like a couple of those characters in the earlier trailer and so seeing the larger cast here because these games are so much about this really fantastic cast of characters that you get to control in your party it's like seeing like more of them is making me even more excited than I was before yeah, yeah, it is so exciting, man. Um, I mean, God, what else to even say? I, it's t- tough to talk about because it is such an assault of music and visuals and yeah. just complete aesthetic experience. Like every little scrap of marketing for Persona Five has seemed so utterly confident in what it yeah, is. Yeah, and clearly they've been working on this game for a very long time. At this point, this has had to have had just an insane development cycle. Because of how long they've been. Yeah. And just how many delays it's had and that kind of thing. Um, I mean, here's the question with the release date. Okay. September yeah. 15th in Japan. Are we actually getting it this year in North America? I think so. I, I, I hope so. They, they've said that there's going to be a Persona 5 like sort of thing around E3 as well. That I'm hoping is going to be the like English dub focused event. Because each of the Persona games has got significantly more popular over here with each uh, successive release because it's like uh, Persona 1 like eh, a very like sort of niche title back in the PS1 days Persona 2 Eternal Punishment like had it's like it's sort of a rabid fan base back in the day but very small Persona 3 is sort of like blossomed a lot more Persona 4 hit big in a cult way which like then when Persona 4 the Golden came out like just like gave that a big injection that like everyone who bought a Vita which isn't a huge number of people but it's still millions of people Everyone who bought a Vita got Persona 4 The Golden because the word of mouth for that game was so insanely ebullient, you know, like it was just extreme as well it should be. And so with that increase of popularity so much in the West with each of these releases, I'm really expecting that they're going to be pretty quick on on the localization for this one. I hope so. I I even got crazy about it and started looking at what was the gap for other games. For 3 and 4, it was both about five months but it started to come down. Uh, for the most recent release, which is Persona 4 Dancing All Night, which was does not have an insignificant amount of voice acting no, and stuff. No, yeah, like it's a fucking full visual novel. Yeah, um, that was two and a half months, so it could happen by the end of the year. It yeah, would have to and be- then also, I mean, I imagine like 
the localization is probably well underway for this game. Yeah, at if this they point. if they can have Final Fantasy 15 out day and date global, yeah, they can do it for Persona Five within a three month window. Yeah, because I just think this is going to be a much bigger game yeah. than any of them before. And also, just Atlas USA. What else have they been working on? You know, that's yeah, probably yeah. been this is go time for them, and they're probably working insanely on it. Um, it did. Also get the announcement, in Japan, the pre-orders are up on Amazon Japan, and it's got an insane special edition, where you get the game, it's a gigantic box, you get a gigantic art book, a five-disc best-of soundtrack. It is not a Persona 5 soundtrack, it's like a compilation, it looks like. Yeah. Um, I'm guessing they won't have that ready to go day one, and as video game soundtracks rarely are. Um, I mean, that Fire Emblem, if one I was telling you about, that's almost a year for Japan that that came out. Um, But anyway, so... And then it's got some other goodies and DLC and stuff. That'll be interesting. First Persona game with DLC. Yeah, it's like, so far it's like little costumes like right. the GeckoCon high school costume, the yeah. Yasugami high costume and stuff like that. Yeah. I love that detail in the trailer where it starts showing the logos of the high schools. Of all the high schools from all the different games. Yeah, that, yeah. Was, that, that was nice. Just seeing like seven stars at the yeah, beginning. fucking St. Hermel and represent motherfucker Persona 1. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> I did. real Persona. Yep. So, yeah, this game... Could not look better if it tried. Yeah, yeah. Another, like, sort of interesting detail, interesting to me at least, is at the very end of the trailer. Oh, yes, we have to talk about this. You get Igor again, who, like, New he, voice. he knew he was going to be in it because he was in the other trailers, but the voice actor that voiced Igor in Japanese passed away several years ago, and in each sort of, like, new release since then, they've just, like, used older voice clips. So, like, when we talk about the Persona 3, the animated movies, when Igor is in those, they're just using his clips from the games. There and so, like obviously for Persona Five, they couldn't do that. So, Igor's in the game, new voice, and holy fucking shit, is new Igor, goddamn terrifying. He's if you don't if you didn't see it, he has a super deep voice, whereas old Igor had this kind of like old man Japanese stereotype. Yeah, it was like got, he had a sort of impish quality to him. Yeah, no, this is like because it's just it's, what's amazing is like the whole trailer it's like had that fucking song going and stuff and you're really pumped and then the song fades out at the end and like the image fades to black and then you just hear this Japanese voice go yo yo dana and then it fades up and fucking Igor's Igor is sitting at this like judge's table presumably in the new velvet room that like is a whole courtroom aesthetic it's like holy fucking shit this is yo, new Igor no velvet it's like oh my oh. god I do not I don't want to come to this man to fuse my personas. I want to stay as far away from this motherfucker as humanly possible. No, I, and I, that was my favorite moment of the trailer. It was just so insane to hear Igor. It was Igor. like spine tingling. It was yes. terrifying. Well, because that's obviously a very iconic performance of old Igor. Yeah. And I actually feel they probably made the right decision in going in a totally different direction. Yeah, and it feels like it is more appropriate for this game. Because it like the... This game just feels so different. I mean, in Persona 3 and Persona 4 are extremely different from one another, but this one also, like, it has such its own energy, and that aesthetic for the Velvet Room as being this courtroom, and you see that, like, you have, like, the two weird little kids that they are attendants and stuff, and there's, like, fucking guillotines and stuff in there, and the opening of this trailer is the main character in a police interrogation room, like, basically being threatened with execution. And so it's, like, the tone of that game is so... Like, sort of, like, intensely dark in a way that even, like, Persona 3 is more like a dread in the background. And so, like, this, like, having this really intense Igor sitting as the judge in this courtroom that is your velvet room just seems, like, really fucking cool. Yeah. And there's, like, and you can see more of um, what I'm about to talk about in there's a developer interview video alongside this. The actual dungeon layout in this game 
looks bonkers. Mm. It's like basically they've turned it into big platforming stuff almost. Yeah. With like uh, like a lot of movement being thought of. And it feels like they really did look at the dungeon stuff in Persona 3 and 4, which is great but very basic, and said, what if we made that as crazy as everything else in Persona? Yeah. And it's just if you look at like how encounters are initiated, how you move around, it... I just can't. It's mind-boggling. Some of the stuff in this trailer. Yeah, yeah. And then also there was a, there was a gif coming around from that uh, developer interview that if you follow the right people on Twitter, you would have seen <laughs> this gif. But it's of the the battle results screen at the yes. End, that's from the developer interview where it's just it starts with like your your party sort of like relaxing and catching their breath after the fight. And then the main character sort of like snaps his hand and waves his hand forward, and they all start running to the side of the screen with the frame following them. And as they're running, like this ribbon of that like red just explodes around them, and so it's like experience two thousand three hundred eighty four. It's like shoot, and it's like this is how much money you got. It's like and here's all the equipment. It's just the most for something that is usually just like this like mini screen that comes up that just says. Hey, you found two medicines. It's like, thanks, game. You just press A. It's like, this is like, it's like the battle results screen is like attacking you, the person sitting watching the screen almost. It's a crazy. I I love it. I cannot wait. I, yeah. Yeah. Awesome trailer. And I've really liked how they've been handling the, the marketing for this game of like, they've been so closed about it that it's just like every like five, six months, they just like let out another new trailer and... Like and that's the only thing they've let out about the game in between and whenever they release a new trailer, it's just like you thought that last trailer was cool. Check this shit out, motherfucker. And I will say it's a it's a long trailer. It shows a ton of stuff. I still don't have a sense of the story yeah. of who these characters really are. I feel like they've left all the important stuff left to be explored. Yeah, it's just it's it's just gives you the little taste you need to be really enticed by it. Yep. All right. Well, let's go ahead and talk about Captain America: Civil War. What's so civil about war, anyways? Indeed, Sean, indeed. You know, and this is actually where I might want to start. We loved the trailers for Civil War, right? Yeah, great trailers. I was amazed watching the movie how little they gave away. Oh, yeah. Kind of like Time Up Persona 5. They did not play their hand at all. The big moments in the movie, they are not in there. The, the, even the, and yeah, the, the climactic fight between Iron Man and Cap. Is kind of hinted at in the trailers, but the context you have yeah, no you idea. You know nothing about really why they're fighting in that moment. And so there's such a sense of discovery to this movie, which was a real pleasure because I feel like even for past Marvel movies, they haven't been this good about keeping their their cards close to the vest. Yeah, yeah, there are definitely one or two really big surprise moments in the movie that like, and they all had very different tones. Like some of them were like, "Oh, this is like an awesome thing surprise." Some of them was like, "Oh." This is a fairly dark direction to go, surprise. I mean, frankly, and, and let's start right here. Yeah. There will be spoilers from this point out. If you have not seen Civil War, unlikely. It made a lot of money. <laughs> well deserved. The, it is the highest grossing non-Avengers opening weekend for Marvel, which is as it probably should be. Yeah. As it is kind of like an Avengers movie in a lot it of ways. basically is, yeah. Um, but we'll talk about that. So anyway, you probably saw it. If you haven't, bow out. Go see it. You do not want to be spoiled on this one. I, you know, and I, I often bitch about spoiler culture because I think we're too crazy about it. This is one where you really don't want to be spoiled. Yeah, yeah. Go see um, the movie. Go see the movie. But now we're going to talk about it in spoiler terms. Um, but yeah, I, there is such a sense of discovery to it. 
you know, and the main thrust, the narrative thrust of the movie is not there in any of the marketing. Yeah. I don't think, is Zemo in any of the trailers at all? If he is, there's no context for no, what and, he is. Yeah. And he's the linchpin of this thing. Yeah. And it's a fast, it's a, a, to me, one of the best Marvel villains because yeah, of yeah. his role in things is fascinating. So just all of that, it, it really felt like, you know, we would get to some moments where I'm like, okay, I remember that from the trailer. In context, it's ten times cooler. Yeah. But all the best stuff, you know... They gave one little Spider-Man moment, by no means the best Spider-Man moment. No, yeah, and and I feel like the Spider-Man moment, like, pulled you away from what was really the Ant-Man moment. Yes. For the fight scene, yeah. I mean, is that the best, most surprising moment in the movie? It was for me, yeah. yeah. Like, I really wasn't expecting... Giant man! Giant, giant Ant-Man, I knew as we would, it should be. I knew we would get there eventually, but I thought it would be, like, in the next Ant-Man movie. Yeah, like... It, yeah, like I, I just love Giant Man. I love his name. I love that Ant Man becomes Giant Man. It's like he's a Pokemon or a, a Digimon more. Yes, and that's great. His Digivolution is Ant Man. His yeah. Digivolution is Giant Man. Yeah. Yes. No. Um, but let's draw back a little bit. There's so many great things we're gonna have to talk about. But getting back to general thoughts. Okay. I mean, now that we can talk in full spoiler terms, yeah. I have my thoughts on this. But why do you think this movie works as well as it does? It, I mean, it's I mean, it's the number one thing that all Marvel movies do so well, but I think this one does it even better. Is the character stuff, and it's what it's the linchpin for superhero fiction in general. I mean, these are they come from comic books, which is a heavily serialized medium. You needed the characters to be interesting and compelling because you needed to sell the next issue the next month for a nickel. You know, like that's like how the business was made, and that's like where these characters come from. That's the tradition the storytelling tradition that they hail from, and it's what makes them really engaging and interesting as characters that allows you to sort of like keep on coming back for more and more and more. And Marvel has always done a fantastic job at doing that. It's why the ca- the casting that Marvel has done is so uncanny in so many ways that they've just managed to, for every single character they have, find the perfect casting every single time with basically no misses. It's like that aspect of the movie is are completely unbelievable. And this movie in particular, it gets Captain America so perfect, which we know they could do that because he's been great up till now and like Winter Soldier in particular. Like they understand Captain America, who is a very complicated character and a very hard character to get right. Because if you do Captain America wrong, he's a very jingoistic sort of like American caricature almost. If you get him right, he is this extreme critique of America and the American dream. And they absolutely capture that element of Captain America here. And then almost more importantly, they really capture Iron Man and Tony Stark in particular, Tony Stark, the movie Tony Stark in this moment for his character and his character arc, because in many ways, Tony is the true antagonist of the movie. He's not a villain, but it's his arc is so much what pushes things forward. Like, urged on by Zemo's machinations in the background, but it's Tony's insecurities, it's Tony's need to sort of like amend and make amends for what he has done in the past and try to like be the hero that he wants himself to be and still like have the life that he wants to have with like Pepper and his friends like Steve and not knowing how to have all those things and it's his arc in the movie and how he and Captain America clash is what makes the movie work so perfectly because these are two characters you love so much and this movie pushes them in such an interesting direction to conflict with one another and you 
believe that conflict, you understand that conflict, you sympathize with both sides of the conflict, you understand where both characters are coming from, you might think that one character is more right in one moment and more, and the other one is more right in another moment, and it's like you are just rooting for both of them to win, and you, it, it, it tears you apart that it, you know it, this conflict cannot be resolved peacefully at the end of the movie. This is why I am so infuriated by the DC fanboys trying to claim that just making your movie dark, visually, and gritty, and violent is what makes something deep. Yeah. That is not the case. Civil War is one of the funniest Marvel movies. Oh, I, God, there are some jokes. That, it's so great. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's the funniest, absolutely, because... You know, there's Thor 2. There's Thor 2. There's both Avengers. Joss Whedon can write a fucking joke. We yeah. know that. And he rewrote Thor 2, so that's how that goes. Yeah. But, like, it is very profoundly funny. But this one hurts... Maybe more than any superhero movie I can think of. I think it does. Like the end of that movie, when oh like, my god, like that, that last fight scene and it, everything, the motivations and everything behind it are just heartbreaking. It, I can't think of another superhero movie that blows up its own status quo so profoundly and does not try to wrap a bow on it. Yeah, this movie does not care about you feeling good walking out of the theater. Yeah, and that is such a turn from Marvel, but also from any other superhero movie I can think of. You know, even, you know, and I'm always thinking my two favorites, I've always said, it's Spider-Man 2 and The Dark Knight. Yeah. And I think Spider-Man 2 comes the closest to being something where there is an ache to it at the end, but it's like this happy, melancholy ache. Yeah. And of course, The Dark Knight has its own dark ending, but it's also like this dark triumph. That is not Captain America Civil War. Civil War is Zemo wins 100%, yeah. absolutely, gets exactly what he wanted, and the status quo is turned upside down, and you feel the pain that everyone is yeah, feeling. And, and this friendship between Captain America and Iron Man, which had been building up so well across all the team-up movies up till now, is completely shattered. And it's like it's shattered in such interesting ways. And the ultimate triumph of Civil War is that you have those... They are the two main characters, Cap and Iron Man. They profoundly understand both of them. But then Civil War has the biggest supporting cast of any Marvel yeah. movie so far, including Age of Ultron. It's got, I, I think if you counted, probably more main characters. Gives everyone screen time. Everyone has a moment. Everyone has an arc. Yes. And they are all subservient, though, to the larger themes raised by the main characters. It is just a very, very good piece of writing. Yeah, I mean, it's like you said at the top with that, like, it is a triumph of the screenplay almost more than anything. And that is so true in terms of, like, the structural elements of the movie are so perfectly plotted in terms of that every character has an arc. Every character is important. Like, Black Panther is absolutely necessary for this movie. Like, Spider-Man is absolutely necessary for this movie. All the Avengers characters that we already know. Like, Rhodey, Falcon, like, necessary for the movie. Fucking Hawkeye. Like, you need all of these characters. Ant-Man, you need all of them. Because they all reflect on that core conflict, that core tension between Captain America and Iron Man. And they all say different things about it. And they all do different things. And within all of that, even though this has all the Avengers in it and all that, and is a team-up movie... It is a Captain America movie. Yes, it is the follow-up to Winter Soldier. It's yes. like the continuation of that storyline. Captain America is the protagonist of the film. If you took out every other Marvel movie and you just watched the first Avenger, the Winter Soldier, Civil War, it is a trilogy that works 100%. Yeah. Now, in Civil War, you would lose a little bit not knowing who... Yeah, you'd need to... Like, Age of Ultron is a recommended viewing so that you get some of the other characters. But that arc is a three-part arc with these. Yes, yeah. Where, you know, you have... 
And as you say, it's such a smart dissection of Captain America as much as it is a realization of him. Because first movie, he gets into it as the... Uh, the hero. The, the first Avenger. The, he's the, the hero, hero of he's, World War II. He's the hero of World War II, but he is also the propaganda machine. He's yes, part yeah. of that. Not willingly, necessarily. Well, he is willingly. He signs up for it. But he is part of the America propaganda. He's fighting the good fight. The morality is simple. He comes back for the Winter Soldier. Morality is no longer simple. Yeah. But he is still moral. And yeah. that is the lesson in that, is that he has to make the decision, my morality is bigger than my country. It is bigger than my... Leaders, yeah. my code is what drives me, and then that leads us into civil war. And one of the complaints I've seen, and I see where people are coming from on this, but I would disagree, and maybe I would just say a closer reading is needed, is that some people say, you know, Iron Man has a huge arc. Everyone has a huge arc, but Cap kind of seems like he's the same from beginning to end. And I would argue that's the point, is that his arc is being able to remain who he is in the most yeah. trying time of his life, which is that... You can tell he wants to do what Tony is saying. Yeah. He wants to be the friend to Iron Man. He wants to give in and sign the Sokovia Accords. But he knows if he does, he's betraying the most important part of himself. And, you know, even the way they utilize Peggy Carter, if Peggy had not died, he might have gone along yeah, with it. Yeah. Because that gives him this kind of kick to realize, no, I have to be who I am, who Peggy saw me as, who I wanted Peggy to see me as, all these things, and being that to the end, and you get to the last scene of the movie, which is, I could do this all day. And he says that in every one of his movies, yeah. and that is the effective last thing Cap does in the trilogy. That is a fucking sucker punch of emotion, yeah. and I love it. Because it is, it is something where I can, like you, I can see where that criticism is coming from, but like to counter it, I would just say that like every character arc does not have to be that the character is different at the end. That sometimes a character that that ends the movie in the same place they are personally like in their own like moral code and who they are as they're at the beginning of the movie can be just as if not more powerful than a movie where he's completely different. Like yes. it depends on everything else, and it is that like Captain America has to who he is as a person is he has to walk the hard path that is the most right path that he can see for himself and. You can argue, and you, in a lot of cases, you like might be right and could be very convincing that to be more on Iron Man's side. Of that's like, no, you have to compromise. You have to check yourself. You have to like put yourself under these like systems of power, under this bureaucracy, because that is what is better for society as a whole. Whereas Captain America is staunchly an individualist character, which is what he needs to be, because that is such a heart of what the American dream is supposed to be. It's what makes him Captain America is that he is an individual and believes in an individual's power and an individual's free will and an individual's freedom and an individual's right to choose what is right and what is wrong. And you don't have to think that that is true in real life. You don't have to think that that is the right way to live your own life. But I think that is what makes Captain America an interesting character because that's not necessarily what America's values are today, or at least not all the time. It might be what a lot of America likes to sort of believe about itself as what its values are, but that's not always like – it's not the guiding light that we think it is for our country, whereas like where Captain America is supposed to represent this idealized version of our our own the myths and fables about what America stands for. And he has to be that kind of character. He has to be this unyielding force. And that's, that's perfect for him. And it's what makes him interesting. 
It is. And again, as a trilogy, this is just such a good trilogy because in the first Avenger, you trace this arc from the name Captain America being earnest in that first movie to ironic by the end of this yeah. movie. You know, he is, he's barely, he's not really even an American yeah. citizen at he, the end of this he's, movie. He's spent two of his three movies fighting against the American government. Yes. He has spent, spent way more time fighting the American government than fighting for it in these movies. Right, and because he believes in a higher ideal. And yeah. that is, I think that's why the Winter Soldier is the perfect second act of this thing, because that's the moment when the chips fall down and he has to figure out what he stands for. And that's why I love, and I get chills down my spine, watching that moment in Winter Soldier when he gives that speech. And he has the whole thing about the price of freedom is high. Yeah. And that's a line we hear all the time. Mm -hmm. But when Chris Evans says it in this role, with this writing, these directors, it means something more. Because he knows, you know, Captain America is a superhero who occasionally kills. And yeah, he's to. a soldier. He's a soldier. And, but that is, it is interrogated in this, these movies. Yeah. It is something that he, you know, he is in his own way just as affected as Tony is by the, you know, the deaths that happen on his watch. But he's a soldier. He has this training to say, but what if we didn't? What about all yeah. the families that wouldn't have been saved if we hadn't done this? And again, you can argue with that calculus. And I think Tony's point of view is 100% valid. Yeah. But that's what makes it interesting. Is It's two opposing points of view that I think are much more a part of our real world than people who dismiss this as a silly comic book movie are seeing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it is the thing that when you look at people that like take Batman v Superman because of its very edgy visual aesthetic and this very edgy tone as being dark and serious and mature in an adult film. Not 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 adult film, but an adult movie. Be more entertaining. Yeah. Uh, they're, the why they're completely wrong is that you look at Civil War and it's like, it has jokes, it is bright, it is funny, it is interesting, and it's like, it, it can be this goofy in moments and be fine with that. It Profoundly is, goofy yeah. at times. And it doesn't, like, it has... The fucking Paul Rudd like turn tiny and go into Iron Man's suit and like make fun of him inside of Iron Man's own suit, pretending to be like the voice in his ear. Like it's a profoundly goofy movie in moments with some of its characters, and yet it is also a billion times more mature than than fucking Batman v Superman. It says so much more about our culture. Yes, and it no. says so much more. And it interrogates like what a superhero is and what more like. What is the right thing to do so much more than like Batman v Superman just sort of like kind of glances in that question's direction and that's about as far as it gets. It's an adolescent view of these things yeah. in Batman v Superman. Captain America Civil War is a very mature view of that. It is a thoughtful view on that. It is something where clearly the people who wrote, directed, starred in, shot, scored every level of this movie believe in these characters and see something important in them that is personally important to our world and to our view of humanity, and they wanted to express that. It is a work of art. Yeah, absolutely. It's a work of pop art, but it's a work of art. Yeah. And it is a profound one in a lot of ways, and it is so impressive how these things happen. And again, I am... Um, it's one of the first things I tweeted in my little kind of Twitter review of the movie, because I, I was thinking about writing a review of the film, and then I realized... I, I can't talk about this movie without spoilers. It's just not interesting to me. Yeah, that's true. I just couldn't yeah. do it. So I did a couple non-spoiler tweets, and that's about as far as I went. But one of the things I said is I was amazed at how utterly this subverts the Marvel trope, which is the Marvel movies have a very predictable structure. I think yeah. it's one of the biggest flaws in Phase 2 is how predictable that got at a certain point, which is we go bigger and bigger and bigger, and then there's a glowing doodad up there, and the world's falling apart, and we have to get the doodad. Yeah. And that's not what Civil War is in the slightest. Yeah, the, in, in fact, like, Civil War gestures in a very Marvel 
third act, and then once it gets there, it pulls the rug out from under you. This is a very intimate third act. In yeah. fact, I struggle to think of the last major superhero movie or Hollywood blockbuster in general that has this small and intimate a third act. The big action sequence comes halfway through, and then that's it. We don't get anything like that again. Yeah. And really, we only get it once. There are some big action sequences early on, but in terms of a centerpiece, there's the one. They put everything they have into it, and then the finale is the three people. Yeah. With Black Panther and um, Zeno on the side. Yeah, but they're not even having a fight. They're, they're like not having a conversation. fight. Right. Um, and really, the fight is a conversation in a sense. Yeah. It's a conversation that can only be had through punches. Yeah. But that's what it is. And I'm amazed by that subversion of the Marvel tropes and, and their awareness of that because when you get there that's why it hurts is because you realize how devoted this movie was to its theme you know it's and it is I'm sorry we have to bring out the Batman v Superman comparisons yeah I mean it's inevitable yeah. they came out within two months of each other and have very similar plots in some ways yeah. both of them are about collateral damage and how we react to it but where Batman v Superman is let's make more collateral damage yeah it's okay this island's not inhabited. This one is, even though Avengers Age of Ultron is, to the point of being a little repetitive, devoted to showing them saving people, yeah. there's still, of course, they couldn't save everyone. Yeah. And you could say it's not their job to save everyone. It's to do the right thing no matter what. And that's Captain America's argument. Yeah, that, that like, you try to save everyone you possibly can... But if you fail, that doesn't mean you just give up, is his right. point of view. Like, he's got that, like, good old sort of America feel of, like, you pick yourself back up, and you try again, and you do better the next time. Yes, and again, tying into his last significant action in the movie is, I could do this all day. Yeah. That's who he is. And so, but the, so even though the Avengers have done everything they humanly possibly could to save everyone, this movie is still intensely devoted to that idea of collateral damage, way more than Batman v Superman was. It's just paying lip service to it. Here, it is the actual theme, and it has torn Tony Stark apart from within to the point where I find his arc so fascinating in this. I actually really wish they were doing Iron Man 4, and I wish they were doing Demon in a Bottle. This is the moment when you could do it and make it work. And it would be... They don't even need him in the suit. Just do drunk Tony Stark and yeah. it would be sad. But I want... I feel like we need to see that now. Yeah, because like he really is a tortured character over the course of this movie. And it's 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 hard to watch sometimes. Yes. It's like he's such a likable guy. And obviously of the like main Avengers, Tony is like by far the most damaged of those characters. Like that's how he is in the comics. It's how they, they, they portray him in the movies. But it's like... But you see how like far he's fallen by this point where it's like he like the only movie where it feels like Tony has like a really strong upward arc is like Iron Man 1 where it's like at the beginning of that movie he's like this like warmonger basically he's making all this money selling weapons and then he learns like the value of like you know like not doing that of, of building using his resources to help people instead of just like using it to sell weapons and not even giving a shit about who they kill and he ends that movie like I'm Iron Man being a hero. And then each successive movie, it's like, you know, like he's doing, like he's still like doing the right thing and he's saving people. But it's like you always feel like at the end of the day, there's like another hole deep inside Tony Stark that he can't quite fill back up. Well, and like that's taking his toll on him by the time you get to this movie. Well, and it's, it's, it's earned. It is yeah. so profoundly earned because, and it's, it's funny how much is left unspoken. 
They don't specifically reference his war and weapons past. Yeah. They really don't specifically re- mention Ultron that much, that he created Ultron, but it's there. And that he has... And I do think the, the weapons thing, that's his original sin, yeah. that he can never wipe that guilt away. And he will. And the more he learns about being a hero, the more that tortures him. Yeah. And it's this weird loop where Tony is a profoundly moral person. He is, as, he is just as committed to doing good as Captain America yeah. is, just in a different way. And that's why they get along in the ways they get along. But it's also why they clash, because Cap does not have guilt. He was always a hero. He chose to be a hero. He's the only one of the Marvel, the main Avengers unit, who from birth chose to be the hero. You know, Thor yeah. was a, um, a self-aggrandizing asshole. And Tony was a weapon monger. And Bruce Black, Banner... Black Widow was an assassin. Black Widow was an assassin. Bruce Banner was a scientist who had an accident and became the Hulk. And has obviously a lot of issues with that. Yes. So you have all of these characters. But Cap was the hero from birth. And in some ways... You know, there's all this stuff on Twitter, which I do find fun. It's a fun marketing thing to have Team Cap, Team Iron Man. Yeah, yeah. But if anything, I'm a little Team Iron Man in this. I think he's doing the wrong thing. But I also think... But I want to give him a hug. Like, I, I want to give him a hug so bad. I want to give him a hug, and Cap does have character failings in this. Yeah. Cap has a lack of empathy for Tony Stark that is damaging. Because he fundamentally cannot understand Tony Stark. Yeah. And I do think fundamentally it goes the other way. Tony Stark can't really understand Cap. But one of the things I find interesting, and it's again unspoken, is I think Tony so desperately wants to be Cap. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, he idolizes this guy to the point of jealousy. It's been this lifelong thing for him where he talks about, my father knew you. Yeah. He talks about it all the time. And Tony spins it as him just being petty. But it's more than that. He wants to be this guy. Yeah. And he wishes he could be this guy. And the thing is, he could. And I think Cap could bring him under his wing. Yeah. But you understand why they can't see eye to eye. Yeah. You that, do. That it's like there, there's... Because there is just like this really difficult relationship between them because they hold sort of some fundamentally different viewpoints. And like Tony Stark is the epitome of like modernity and Captain America is very much not that in both right. like like body and form. And like – but they, they do have that friendship that is built throughout Avengers 1 and Avengers 2 where it's like among the main Avengers in both of those movies – they have the most significant relationship. Like, there's there's a, a lot of Tony and Bruce in Avengers 1, but even then, it's like, it feels like the heart of those movies is t- in terms of the main Avengers cast, because Avengers 2 is a lot more focused on the peripheral characters. But the main Avengers team, it is Captain America and it is Iron Man, and that's, like, the core of the team, always. And they've always built that up. And so it's when you get to this point and you see just, like, you want them to be friends because you see that they can be friends, but you know that it's, like... There's, there's, there are things in their relationship with each other that they cannot compromise on, and that's why, like, they will never stop fighting. Yes. And there's such economy to this screenplay. Yeah. Where, okay, so we start with that little glimpse of the Winter Soldier on a mission. We don't know what it is. We don't know what's going to come of it. But it's just, it's set up because we're going to return to that later. And then we have the opening with Cap. But then when Tony enters the movie, his first scene is with his parents. And that flat, and we'll talk about the effects there later. Because it's incredible. But we have that. And it's amazing how many things that one scene is setting up. Oh, God, yeah. It is setting up thematically Tony's guilt, his past... His, how far he's come, too, because essentially it's not just he looks like young Robert Downey Jr., he is young Robert Downey Jr., and there's so much of Robert Downey Jr. in this part yeah. of a guy who had a troubled past who has reformed, and that is in there. And 
But it's also, of course, setting up that the Winter Soldier killed his parents, and we're yeah. going to get there. And it's amazing to me just how many things are set up in each of those scenes. And it's why you can have a movie that I don't think is extravagantly long at all. It's less than two and a half hours, yeah. and it feels much shorter than that to me, at yeah. least. Um, and yet you can have every character has a moment, no moment is wasted, all of that is important. And that's just one of those tricks is you can introduce exposition in a way that is also character motivated. And I actually think that's something Marvel has struggled with, yeah. but they do better here than ever. Yeah, definitely. Like that, and that was such an interesting scene because you don't quite because because it's like you just don't expect it. You have like no idea going into it like what they're showing you. And I was like, for a second, I was like, wait, is this supposed to be like Spider Man or something? Is this like Uncle Ben? And it's like, oh wait, no, wait, no, wait, no, that's Robert Downey. That's like young Robert Downey Jr. What the fuck? I mean, let's talk about that now. Yeah, that's. An, I mean, they did that with Michael Douglas in Ant Man. Yeah, where the first scene of Ant Man is a young Michael Douglas as Hank Pym. Um, isn't John Slattery in that scene? He's talking to Tony Stark. Am I wrong? He might be. I okay. don't remember. Anyway. He, he, he probably is, yeah. Yeah, he's talking to Tony Stark's dad. And anyway, but we have Hank yeah, Pym never there. Never trust a Stark. Yeah. And, and so that was cool. And that was crazy because, of course, we all know it's Michael Douglas, Sursa, Wall Street. We know what, what Michael Douglas, Sursa, yeah, Wall Street yeah, looks like. There's significant filmed evidence of what he looks like. I think it's even crazier with the Robert Downey Jr. thing because we haven't... At, you know, with the Michael Douglas, we had not spent seven movies watching Hank Pym. Yeah, we have. This is Tony. Uh, this is Robert Downey Jr.'s sixth full film appearance. We have spent a lot of time looking at Tony Stark, and we all know what young Robert Downey Jr. looks like. And he's there, and it is. I don't think there's anything wrong with the effects. It's just eerie because of how on point it is. Yeah, exactly. Like it's it's kind of like when you like you were talking about with like Jungle Book. It's not really the uncanny valley because you're not getting that sense of like you are actually unsettled by the thing. But it's the fact that you know that it's a digital effect because yeah. it has to be a digital effect. It's like wait, they can just do this now. What I mean, the fuck. I thought for about 45 seconds they just found a lookalike. Yeah. And it was just an actor playing young Tony Stark, which would have been fine. There's nothing wrong yeah, with that. Yeah. But no, they got Robert Downey Jr. And they he looks like young Robert Downey Jr. And it does add an emotional impact to that scene because you've heard him talk about his parents a lot. Have, seeing him with them, the, the end of the movie wouldn't work without it. Yeah, and, and Howard Stark has been a character in these yes. movies. Played by two different actors yeah. prominently. He's mm -hmm. been both Dominic Cooper and John Slattery. Uh, back and forth, and it's yeah. kind of cool to have that character be in both sides of the universe. So, yeah, it's and it's a really good scene. It's just atmospheric. The mother's playing the piano. It's just this little moment. You don't have any real idea until Tony tells you that it's a significant moment, and then Tony has the speech, and you can tell just from how twitchy he is on stage, and just even before Pepper's name comes up. Fuck yeah! And again, economy of screenwriting. That's all you need to tell you that. We don't have Gwyneth Paltrow on contract for this movie, yeah. but we're going to make it count. Yeah. You know, and it, and it matters. And then that scene in the hallway where he's talking to the, the person who turns out to be a mother who lost her son. It's just a very good opening scene. And it's Robert Downey Jr. in a mode with this character we've never seen before. Yeah. And it, and it sets up his arc so perfectly that it's like, that is like what the Iron Man story in a lot of ways needs to be is this like personal tragedy of Tony Stark that like he has, like that he can't quite escape what he's done and he can't always quite forgive himself and you see that that like that started long before you knew the character yes. and, like that's how deep rooted it is and it's such a like 100% perfect character introduction for him in this movie because it's also been a while since Iron Man 3 it's been a while since Tony had his own movie so it feels like it also serves as a good refresher for like this is what this character is kind of about and this is what he needs to be about in this movie and it's and it's just like a 
really impactful scene, especially when you see the the Pepper Potts name come up on on the the transcript or whatever, and you, you know, he doesn't say it because it was a mistake. It's like, oh, okay, that's sad. Yeah. Like I almost wish they didn't have the line. I mean, they need it because it's like you need to draw a little bit more attention to it because it's not like a you know it, it is a mass market movie. I kind of wish they didn't have that line of that intern coming up apologizing about it afterwards. That it's like you just left it as this visual where it's like, oh, okay. Well, it's also the thing I see from a writing standpoint why you would put it there. Because even as much as you know Robert Downey Jr. is going to bring it, he's he's frankly surprising with how good he is in this. And yeah. I think on the page you might not imagine how much he would sell that. Yeah, that's true. And it is. I mean, it is amazing to me. This is his sixth full movie. He had, he's been in seven technically with the cameo in Incredible Hulk. But right. I'm just saying six for like full-length appearance. And he's never brought anything less than his all. He's never phoned it in even mildly. He is so committed to this character. Like, I can't even think of a, an equivalent. Like, any James Bond actor, once they get to six, they're out of there. Sean right, Connery yeah. is not interested in Diamonds Are Forever. I'm, he's not engaged, really. You know, it's just not a thing anymore. And you understand, he's done it six times. Yeah. It feels like, if anything, he gets more interested in this character the more he does. Because it feels like they're giving him more complex material for him to play basically every single time. Yeah, you know, this is not a role he's getting Oscars for, although I would argue he should have gotten a nomination by now at least once. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, But it's the role of a lifetime. What better could you ask for than a character like this who is so rich and keeps evolving and keeps evolving and is never really stagnant? Yeah, and if you thought any sort of conversation about recasting Tony Stark was insane before this movie... Yeah. Like... That's not fucking happening. Like that. No. That's just not possible. It's and it's a tough position. They have yeah. such a perfect Tony Stark. You can. I don't know if you can ever do another live action Tony yeah. Stark. Like he's so insanely good in all these movies, but especially like this one again. Like I, I would put my money in that this is his best performance in these movies. Yeah, I and it's it's tough because it is so different. But yeah, yeah I mean, this one hits you. I. Again, I think there are moments in this movie that wouldn't work if the performance was anything less. Yeah, like, because he, it's such a complex role he needs to play for Tony because it's it's so different where he is effectively the antagonist for most of the movie. It's, I mean, the final scene where he's going after Bucky. We'll get yeah. to that. But think of how... If, it, if you didn't have that nuance in the performance, that could just play as he's mad and he's the boogeyman of this scene. Yeah, it could be like Tony in the Civil War comics for most of it where it's like it started out... Sort of like, okay, I can kind of see Tony's side and I can kind of see Cap's side. But it got so simplistic so quickly in the comic book version of Civil War where, like, Tony just became this ridiculous, like, megalomaniacal. Like, there's no way you could ever, like, back up what he was doing because it was just so fucking evil. Like, he was basically throwing people in, like, superhero tournament camps and shit. Instead, like, in this movie, when he finds out what they've done with the Avengers, and they've thrown them in this, like, in the raft in this this prison in the middle of the ocean, he's appalled by it, which is the response that any sane person would give Tony Stark to that kind of scene. They're human responses, and that's what makes that last scene hit so hard, is that no matter what Tony's doing there, I I would do the same thing. You cannot look at his actions and take the moral high ground because you're like, yeah, if the guy who brutally murdered my mother and father was standing apart from me, I don't care. I'm a superhero. I'm going after him. Yeah. There is no other choice for him in that moment. And on the Cap side, there's no other choice for Captain America because he's laid his cards. Bucky is his friend. That ship has sailed. Yeah. You know? 
Um, so let's talk about the cap side of it a little bit. Okay. Because, yeah, Chris Evans is also really good. Yeah. I can imagine recastings of Cap more only because Cap is, I feel like, a more malleable character. Yeah, That you could just go in a different direction with him or something. But, man, Chris Evans is good. Yeah. And and he also has, like, in all these movies, such a hard role to play in a very different way than Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. It would be so easy for Captain America to just be the most boring character in the world. And he is a lot of the time in the comics. Like, I really like Cap a lot as a character. But, like, with Superman... Like, it is a character to very easily make very, very boring. That it's like, they're always right. They're always morally upstanding. They're like, they're the big blue Boy Scout. And it's like, that can get very grating after a while. And you just, like, sort of start to resent the character because they're the self-righteous prick half the time. But the, like, but the writing always proves them to be right in the end. Where it's like, the movie version of Captain America all along has always been the best version of Captain America. The really, among the best versions. Which makes it, it's like... Yeah, he's the big blue Boy Scout. Yeah, he's generally right. He's this morally upstanding guy. He is the kind of guy that when they bring in Ant-Man in the middle of the movie, Ant-Man is just like, yeah, I'll fight alongside Captain America. Are you kidding me? Because he's this icon. He is this war hero. He is this dude that, like, no matter what he's doing, you know that he's doing it for the right reason. Like, he is that character. But they find the, like... Almost sort of like Greek tragedy at the heart of that kind of archetype of character mm-hmm. of like that he is kind of flawless in some ways and he is kind of always right and he is like always doing the right thing and standing up for what he believes in and that kind of means that well I don't have really any friends and like if any like thing really like dramatic happens like I have to like he's this lonely character because he always has to go by what he believes and hope that people are going to follow him and help him along the way but even if they don't he's going to fight by himself if that's what he needs to do and such a hard character to find those little windows of tragedy in in the, in the nuances of that that it's like yeah he's like this amazing good person but that doesn't make him happy all the time and there's like and there's something so interesting about that for him it's such a minimalist performance yeah it's a very reserved performance chris evans his biggest moments he has to do a lot with a little um and it's why i've always i still think chris evans is one of the most surprising pieces of casting in the marvel universe yeah, definitely because all of his roles before and frankly outside of captain america he is much more boisterous he plays the bad boy yeah you know, he was johnny storm yeah he's a really good johnny storm but he's that's the kind of person he plays, and he makes fun of it in uh, Scott Pilgrim when he plays the skate. It's really funny. He's the right, skateboarder yeah. douchebag who's one of the seven evil exes. But like that's who Chris Evans is outside of this, and yet he is so perfect as this minimalist, moral kind of guy in this. And that means the moments where the emotions do come out are so powerful. The moment when he gets the call about Peggy, and he steps out of the room, and he's in the hall... And he's on the verge of this kind of what is a breakdown for you know for Captain America for Captain America for Steve Rogers. Uh, it hits you so hard. And even though you know Haley Atwell is not technically in this movie, what she has done as Peggy Carter on screen in the Marvel movies and off screen in the Marvel TV shows is so important to this movie working because I feel like that's the linchpin moment for Captain America in this. Yeah, is going to that funeral and remembering Peggy Carter and remembering the the promise he. 
non-verbally made to her and to himself and to this life. And it is it reminds you of how important a movie the first Avenger is to this whole thing working. Yeah. Because it is such that must have been that is still one of the most amazing moments of challenge for Marvel is making that one work. Yeah. And then that's the foundation they've built all this on. And I just love how much that character really that's her only appearance in the movies is in First Avenger. And then briefly in old age makeup in Winter yeah. Soldier. But how much fallout Peggy Carter has had on things. But then I also think it's so important for Cap in this movie. It cannot be understated what a discovery Anthony Mackie has been as yeah, Falcon. Yeah, Falcon's and, so good. And how, but how important Falcon is to Cap's character working. Yeah. Because you need him to have a sidekick who he can be honest with and bounce feelings off and is with him no matter what. Yeah. And I like that they make that a very specific contrast kind of Falcon and War Machine in this. Because War Machine yeah. is that for Tony. Yeah. And then also I like... Falcon in the Winter Soldier, where it's like, there's a little bit of, I feel like, jealousy on Falcon's part, because it's like, he knows that this is like, this is Cap's boy from back in the day kind of thing. Oh, I saw this with a completely sold out audience, and the biggest laugh in the entire movie by far was Bucky going, can you move, move your seat, seat up? up? No. <laughs> That's the best joke in the movie. That joke is unbelievably funny. It's so perfectly paced and edited the timing on it and just the acting between both of them and then when it cuts back and, and Bucky sort of like sidles over to the other seat and then uh, Cap and Sharon kiss and it cuts back over and they're both like sort of like leading kind of nodding their heads it was like Cap's two boys you yeah. know like and, and there, there's the really subtle relationship and back and forth between Falcon and Bucky over the course of the movie because they don't have much like alone together, but like the couple of lines they do share, I feel like sheds a lot of light on their like relationship with Cap. And I think we got to talk about Bucky now because yeah. that's one of the interesting things is that, and I've seen this criticism too. No, Bucky is not the most interesting character in the MCU. No. That is, yeah. that is just objectively true. Hey, Bucky's not the most interesting character in the comics either. No, but I, that is so not the point in this yeah. movie. No, and it's yeah. Falcon, as he says, he doesn't really like Bucky. But you know what? He trusts Steve Rogers. He trusts his friend. And he gets it. Like, Bucky does not have to be his friend, but Steve is his friend. Yeah. And he will fight for this because he gets it. And I think we get it too. Bucky was the guy who was there for Cap when he was an orphan kid. Yeah. Who they grew up together. They went into the army together. Not at the same time, but you know what yeah. I mean. And... That is just, it's a bond, and it's something that he has to, you know, Steve, one of the unspoken things they've talked about with, like, the Howling Commandos, he lost everyone he knew in the ice. Yeah. You know, everyone else died of natural causes. He had Peggy for a little while, but, you know, she was an old woman. They couldn't have the same relationship they had. Yeah. And all of that changed. But now his friend is back, and they've done something terrible to him. There is no other choice for Captain America than to fight to the death for this guy. Yeah. And it's there in Winter Soldier. I think it's, I love the ending of Winter Soldier where Cap finishes his mission and then stops fighting. Yeah. Because what else is he going to do? It, it would not be, he cannot beat the shit out of Bucky. That's yeah. not his role. And he has to protect this guy because he knows what Bucky went through. He went, Cap went through the good version of it. Bucky did not. Yeah. And so again, no, is Bucky the most interesting character in the movie? No. I kind of think that's the point. Yeah, and I actually think that what uh, Sebastian Stan, the actor who plays him, does in this movie is really interesting. He's and great. it's it's because it's such a, a kind of hard role he needs to play in that, like he needs to show just enough of the Bucky from the first Avenger that like you you remember him from that movie uh, to you get that connection between him and Cap in their friendship. But at the same time, you need to have him be just like. 
this completely defeated person. And that's what he feels like for basically the whole movie. Because he's this guy when, like, they don't dwell on it much. But, like, the couple of times they kind of do and, like, like give you a little bit of flashbacks to him when he was, like, in his prime as the Winter Soldier. And the handful of conversation he has with, like, what he's done during that time in the movie. It's like you realize, like, he has been through the worst shit. Like, he was basically... One, he would like, you know, he fell off of that train and like fell into the ice and lost his fucking arm and then was taken by Hydra and he was turned into a slave for Hydra that they used to kill people and he can remember all of it even if he couldn't control his actions at the time. He remembers every person he kills. He says that in the fight with Tony. And so it's like, there's an aspect of that where it's like when you like, like because again they only do it a little bit but when you broach it even just a little bit like what his life has been for like 50 60 fucking years is the most horrific like he's just they pull him out so he can murder someone who's this guy who's like this inherently good upstanding person they pull him out force him to murder someone and then just throw him back into the ice after torturing him a little bit so that 10 years later, they can wake him up again so he can kill another motherfucker he doesn't want to kill. Exactly. Like, that's been his whole life for decades. He's like 100 years old at this point. Again, they like they, they sort of reference it in pieces across the movie. And I think the fact that they like just do that very subtly in a handful of lines peppered throughout the movie, it does such a good job at being very evocative that makes you, or at least really made me sympathize with that character so much as like, man... Like, you have been through the most atrocious shit. Like, there's just nothing... Like, there's no way you could possibly imagine Cap abandoning this guy, even if he wasn't his best friend ever. Exactly, because... But it is still the tough moral position to take. Yeah. Because as the Winter Soldier himself says, I did those things. Yeah. It doesn't erase that... It's not his fault, but it doesn't erase the fact that he did those things, and that's the moral gray zone. Yeah. And so for Cap, the decision is easy. For Iron Man, the decision is also easy, and that's the tough thing, is where do you land on it? Well, there's... It's all gray areas. Yeah. You know, I can totally see... You know, Tony goes a little oh, extreme wanting to kill the guy, but I see why he wants to do it. Yeah. I can see the argument, he should be locked up. And frankly, he supports that himself. The last scene of the Winter Soldier in the movie is he chooses to go back on the ice. Yeah. Um, for the sake of the world. And it's, it's, it's such an interesting turn for that character. Sebastian Stan does it perfectly. But he has to be kind of a bland, dark character. Because if the Winter Soldier was... Played by Anthony Mackie, let's say. And he was Falcon, and he was like that, and he was awesome, and he and Cap were quipping back and forth. And then Iron Man wanted to punch him. You'd be like, what are you doing, Iron Man? Right, that's yeah. not right. It has to be someone who's more in the middle there. And that's what... And so Sebastian Stan has a very thankless task in this yeah, movie. Yeah, definitely, yeah. But I think he does a really good job. Yeah, I agree. And I think he's been more impressive with each successive movie, actually. Yeah, because he, he really wasn't given much in the first Avengers. Like, I, I, retrospectively, that is one of the things about that movie that I wish they had a couple of more scenes to sort of yeah. emphasize, emphasize more. Because I think they do well with Winter Soldier where they have the one flashback to young Steve, Steve and Bucky right after his parents' funeral. It's that's like, that's, it's a really good scene, but it's like, it does sort of highlight a little bit. That's like, well, we didn't get much of that in the first Avenger. We got a bit at the beginning, but like, it, it would have helped these movies if they had done a bit more. But, but like for me, like that's actually theoretical because I have enough affection for these characters from their like comic book forms that it actually doesn't matter for me. I already care about them. Well, and again, Chris Evans sells it. I, yeah. you know, that's one of the main things is 
if sometimes characterization or a lack of characterization can be made right if the people on screen show that they care about that character. Yeah, like yeah, it's, it would be better if you like had. The, the okay maybe it wouldn't be better but if they had the Bucky movie where it's like you really got to know Bucky and love Bucky as a character but it can be enough that it's like well we care about Cap so we care about who Cap cares about yes. in the way that Falcon does because we, we're all Cap's boys absolutely and let's talk about Zemo yeah okay because I, I don't know anything about Zemo from the comics I know a lot of he's people he's a very he's different a, character than I, they said yeah. he's different and a pretty awful character and what they yeah like he's just a He's the Captain America villain. He's like yeah. a Nazi guy with a like weird purple mask. I would argue he is not a more interesting villain than you know Loki or something like that. Yeah, yeah sure. But on some, I think thematically, he is the best villain in the Marvel universe to me Probably because what is. he has here, in some ways, Civil War is an immensely convoluted plot. But I think sure, it has yeah, to be. Yeah. and I'm not saying that badly. Convoluted no, doesn't yeah. have to be bad. It's because what Zemo is doing is necessarily convoluted because it's a dice game. He is. It's a, it's a shell game, sorry, where he's really yeah. trying to hide things from them because his ultimate goal, as he says, is to tear down a nation, but what he means by that is the Avengers. And I love how it is slowly doled out. He's very mysterious. He's in the background. He's doing these things, but the plot is moving at a good clip. It's, he's, not let, he, he's not taking over the movie at any point. Yeah, no. Yeah, machin- he's, he's in the background the entire time. You understand he is doing machinations, but one of the important things is and I want to say this right away, is the machinations don't drive everything. This yeah. is not Lex Luthor in Batman v Superman, where literally everything that happens in that movie is because Lex is doing something we don't understand. Yeah, like, you don't have a scene at the end of this where it's, like, with, like, Zemo, where he just, like, lays out his entire plan and is like, ha, 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 and then I had you, and it's like, and exposes, like, I knew this and this and this and this, and did this and this and that, and this and the other thing, and now you're going to kill each other. Ha, ha. He doesn't do that. It's not that at all. Like, a lot of the conflict would happen with or without Zemo. The Sokovia yeah. Accords, that's not him. The the rift, the ideological rift, that is not him. The actual coming to blows, that is kind of him. But, but it he's is also... just pushing things a little yes. bit. He puts stuff in the right place to sort of heighten the, the, the tensions that already existed. And that's the only thing he does in the whole movie. I mean, it's amazing to me that, again, the subversion of the glowing doodad MacGuffin device is that he makes Cap think there's a glowing doodad yeah. that he has to go get. And, of course, you have to. The glowing doodads are dangerous. Yeah. But in this case... It's a trick, and when they get there, they realize it's a trick, but it doesn't matter because what the trick is is revealing this secret yeah. um, about Tony's parents. And I just find that entire plot so ingenious. Yes, yeah. Because think of how easily that could come off as a cheat or as an anticlimax. Yeah, like, and it, you know, because I'm like one of the people that, like, with Iron Man 3, I really disliked the, tr- the twist with that movie where it's like the villain wasn't who the, you thought the villain was and all that bullshit. Where it's like here, it's like it's in some retros, like in some ways it's a similar kind of twist. That it's like the movie's building up this one plot for most of it of that Zemo's trying to get these five super soldiers that were also made in the Winter Soldier program and use them to take over the world or whatever he wants to do with them. And that's what like Cap and, and Bucky are operating under for like more than half of the movie basically. And... So you're like kind of expecting that's what it's going to be, and that feels like okay, that's what like most of these Marvel movies kind of have. If it's not, it's not necessarily always five super soldiers, or but it's like a Infinity Gym, or it's a whatever, it's you know whatever you want. And instead of it just being that, like with Iron Man three, they sort of like pull the rug out from under you, and say it's like no, that's not what it really is. Whereas in Iron Man three, one of the main reasons I didn't like the twist is because the villain they replaced him with was. Awful and really generic, and they just a generic Iron Man movie villain wasn't interesting. Here, what they replace it with is like you thought this was going to be this big, ridiculous 
the massive battle with these five characters that we haven't really explained anything about and you don't really give a shit about. This actually, no, it's not going to be that. Instead, you're just going to have to watch Captain America and Iron Man practically kill each other because of this information we've given you. And it's going to turn from this big, bombastic final act into a really intimate, like, tragic final act. And it's that, that, that twist that they give you. It's like a twist in a proper sense. It's not... It's a twist, but it also lives up. Every piece of that twist building up to it works. If yeah, because it. they say, because it's the first fucking shot in the movie, basically, that sets it up. It's the first sequence in the movie is yes. the Winter Soldier assassinating and, Tony's parents. You just don't know it's them. At and that if moment. you go back and look at everything Zemo does, it makes perfect sense every step of the way. Yeah. He finds the, the Hydra guy because he wants to know about this thing, and you learn in that scene that because of the Scarlet Witch... I keep Because her name is Scarlet Johansson. It's messing yeah. me up. Black I Widow's um, <laughs> uh, data dump that she did at the end of The Winter Soldier, as Zemo says, if you have enough patience, he could sort through all of that. He found this one thing that he could use against the Avengers. He learns what he can. He does the bombing so that he can get in a room with The Winter Soldier. He implants this idea so that the Winter Soldier thinks it's about this even though it's not. He knows what that relationship is and everything else just kind of plays out and when they get there he plays the video and that's all he has to do. And when he's done, he's done. He doesn't have world domination in mind. He wants to get back at, and this is the most important thing, the people who he thinks killed his family. And in a sense, did kill his family because Tony Stark invented Ultron. Ultron did that shit in Sokovia and the Avengers did not save them. And I think one of the most powerful and sobering moments comes... I love the scene between Black Panther and Zemo. And yes, I love oh my god, it's a great scene. It's a great scene, and I love that it's those two at the end. Yeah. And that's the confrontation. And what Zemo says is, you know, I know they tried to save everyone. I know they were there being heroes. But, you know, when the dust settled the next day, I was digging for my family, and they were gone. Yeah. And that's the sobering thing that we you just wouldn't think about. But it's true. And it's that's the thing that... That's the hole in Captain America's argument. Yeah. And that's the logic in Tony Stark's. Even though Tony Stark is the one responsible for that action. That's the hole is that, yes, you can do as well as you can and you can make the best choices, but you can't be everywhere always. And if you take on the mantle of hero, that's a responsibility that people believe in. And if you let that belief down, which you inevitably will for someone, that hurts really bad. And so it's not, Zemo's not mad because of Sokovia. He's not mad because his home was destroyed. He's mad because the people he loved died. Yeah. And what more powerful and relatable motivation is there than that? Yeah, and, and that, like, echoes through, like, all these other characters. Because it's like you said with Black Panther, like, that's his motivation for the movie, is that his father was killed in that bombing, and so he, and he thinks it's caused by the Winter Soldier, and that's what causes him to get involved with, like, Iron Man's side and be there and all that stuff. Tony's motivation in the movie at the very end is that his parents were killed by this guy. Yes. Like, this is like, and it's, and in like, in almost sort of a similar circumstance, and it's like, it's not the Winter Soldier's fault. Everyone there knows it's not his fault. He had no control over his actions whatsoever. It is as much not his fault as, as Zemo's family's death is not Tony's fault, but it doesn't matter because it's. Oh. Because the emotions are too powerful, and you can't override that with logic all the time. The most powerful line in the movie is Cap says it's not his fault, and Tony says, doesn't matter, he He killed killed my mom. mom. And the way Robert Downey Jr. says that, so broken, tears wouldn't even cover it at this point. He just saw the security video of this guy choking out his mother, and 
there is not a person in the theater who cannot relate to that. Yeah. If that happened to you, of course, that's all you could feel. This whole movie is about basic human failings that no one is above. It is intensely about humanizing superheroes. And that scene with Black Panther and Zemo matters so much because that's when Black Panther realizes he doesn't want this. Yeah. He doesn't want revenge. He doesn't want what's going on inside the building. He doesn't want what's in Zemo's heart. He wants to move past this. And so he saves the guy from killing himself. And does the right thing. And it's this huge... Black Panther has, in some ways, one of the most powerful character arcs in any Marvel movie. Yeah. And this isn't even his movie. Yeah, I mean, they do his like entire origin story as a subplot in this movie. And it doesn't feel like it's like skimped on. It doesn't feel like it's distracting from the main plot. Or the main plot's distracting from it. It feels like, no, like this is totally thematically appropriate. They give it the perfect amount of attention in this movie. It's like... And now Black Panther is perfectly primed for his own movie because now you like have a good understanding of who this character is. You've seen him go through this journey where he became this character that you felt like, you know, you, you sympathized for because his dad was a really cool dude. And he had like mm -hmm. two scenes, but he had two cool scenes because he seemed like a cool dude. His dad's dead. And it's like, yeah, of course he's like, even if you basically know that the Winter Soldier wasn't really at fault. It's, you, you sympathize for Black Panther, but you don't really see him as a hero at the beginning of the movie. Is like by the end of the movie when he decides. Not only does he decide to spare Zemo, he also prevents Zemo from killing himself. It's that's when you feel like, okay, yeah, this guy's a superhero now. Like that's he has become that character. Absolutely, and it is echoed through so many of the characters in this movie. Um, yeah. It's all about these choices we make, and in some cases, the choices you can't make. You know, yeah. I mean. Scarlet Witch has an immensely powerful character arc here. Yeah. She is used much better here, I think, than she was in Age of Ultron. And yeah, I, I really I like her in Age of Ultron. But just even though she's not in that many scenes, her work, her interaction with Vision and with Hawkeye, which resonates very powerfully to my favorite scene in Age of Ultron, which is Hawkeye giving her the speech yeah. about what it means to be an Avenger, it, it's really nice because she's someone who goes through an immense emotional trauma at the beginning of this movie yeah. and is recovering from another one and losing her brother and all that and yeah. being given these awful powers and throughout it it's again these choices that she did not make for herself but now she has choices to make with them and it's really tough for her to support Captain America because her best friend is Vision and he's on the other side yeah. and of course you understand where Vision's coming from too and this fight has to happen and it's just one of those little things again she is probably one of the more minor characters in the movie but no one feels minor in this. Yeah, like they all because it's because it's amazing that let's like one. It's absolutely a Captain America movie. Like it yes. does not feel like this movie should have been titled The Avengers: Civil War or anything like that. It's the Captain America movie, and yet it has more characters than the Avengers movies, and it still also manages to give all of those characters their own scenes. Like yes. it's not like you only ever see Scarlet Witch in scenes with Captain America or in scenes with Iron Man. She has scenes where she's basically by herself or where she's with Vision or where she's with Hawkeye. Like, there's not... Like, every character doesn't have a bunch of them. But, like, every character basically has kind of their own... At least one or two of their own little scenes where they're, like... It's not, like, one of the only major characters in the scene. The only really prominent character in the scene that they own. Yes, and it's all on theme and it all comes together. And that's why this is my easily my favorite Marvel movie. Because the emotions you feel in that climax are superior. They're yeah. just superior to anything else and in the Marvel and frankly in all superhero cinema at some point. And you know, even though it really is only three or four characters in that climax, all the other characters, they've technically exited the movie, but they haven't exited the themes. They are still yeah. there. Their arcs resonate through this because it has come down to this final match between the two of them. 
And it is so tough to watch these two people we love fight each other. But there's no other choice. And when it's done, I mean, I just was sitting there with my jaw open when, you know, it looks like Cap might kill Iron Man. And so he just takes out the heart of the suit. And then Iron Man is left there, you know, nursing his wounds. Cap gets up to leave. And... It's it's not like Iron Man says fuck you or any not that he could in this but yeah. he doesn't say that he says my father made that shield yeah and Tony or Steve throws it down and I don't know if there's any more powerful symbol of what has happened in this movie than Cap leaves a broken defeated Iron Man yeah. with the shield and he doesn't have that anymore yeah they've both lost something they have both lost some part of their moral high ground in that yeah. fight. Yeah. Winter Soldier loses his arm too. Like that's a pretty brutal moment. That's very brutal. It would, what would be really like fucked is if they made if he lost his arm, but it was his one human arm. <laughs> that would like, be that's that would that would be the most fucked up thing. If it were an anime, that's what would have happened. That's what yeah. Although in some ways, because I was actually thinking about this after watching the movie, there is something about the construction of the movie that actually reminds me a lot of anime yes. in some ways. That there's. And in, like, a very good way. It's like some people, like, you know, anime can be, like, a, a word or an adjective you can describe to things that are, like, really over the top or something like that. But it's there's a Japanese sort of, like, sense of storytelling in some ways that uses that, that really heavy character-based storytelling where you have two characters that are, like... Like, a lot of mech anime, for whatever reason, uses this all the time. I don't know why that is. But, it's like, a lot of mech anime and other anime will have two characters. It's like, one's your protagonist, one's your antagonist. But they're both characters that, like, they devote equal amounts of time to. They're both built up. That you like. That's like, you want... You're rooting for both of these characters. And they build them up throughout the entire series. And But they're on opposing sides of a conflict, a war, or whatever it is. And they both represent different viewpoints. One's like individualism, one's collectivism, whatever the core theme of the series is. And then it climaxes in a massive fight between these two characters. And neither character really wins because neither philosophy is really right. Like it's because it's all about that gray space. And that's like a very common sort of like broad thematic storytelling device that is used in anime a lot or and in manga because that's where it really comes from. And I feel, and that's basically what Captain America's Civil War does as well and it does it perfectly because it is that at like the end it is that in a lot of ways you can see this like well Iron Man does sort of stand for a more like collectivist sort of worldview in some ways and Captain America absolutely stands for a much more individualistic kind of worldview. That's what his like letter is about at the end of the movie. But, like, neither of them are right and neither of them are wrong because it's, like, the world isn't that simple. And that's also – and that's reinforced through other characters' arcs like Vision's character arc, which is very subtle and slight in this movie in some ways. But is very appropriate that it's, like, Vision is the character who's set up to be the perfect godlike character who can never be wrong, who has the gem of wisdom embedded into his fucking forehead. And yet he makes – one of the most like sort of shocking errors in the whole movie where he accidentally shoots down War Machine and paralyzes him. And that's when you realize like he's not infallible. Like Vision is a self-righteous prick sometimes because he is that sort of like almost Superman caricature in some instances where he thinks he's right constantly, but he's not. He's also fallible because things are just fucking complicated sometimes. Yes, absolutely. And that ending is so great because... It's this movie gets in and out fairly quickly because the the last big scene is the fight and there's just a couple little things at the end. There's not yeah. they don't do the return of the king ending or anything. Right, yeah. Um which they could. I they could have done that. Yeah. And it, I wouldn't have necessarily thought it was bad, but the way they do it here is is very good where you have that little scene with Cap and War Machine where you realize that the pieces can be put back together, 
but the scars will remain. Yeah. And that, and it's nice to see Tony still has one friend. I'm glad they didn't leave him completely friendless yeah, at the yeah. end of this. That would have been, I think, too, he doesn't deserve that, so no, yeah. that would be too dark. But he still has that one friend, and you sense that he, he can rebuild. It will take work, but he can rebuild. And then you have Cap, who is, you can't overshoot, he is a fugitive. He is going to save his friends who will all be fugitives too. He yeah. can never come back to the way things were. And he, he doesn't have his fucking shield or anything. Yeah, I mean, it's very telling that at the end of the movie when he comes to get everyone out of the raft, he does not have his costume on. It's yeah. just Steve Rogers. It is. Uh, he's become the vigilante he yeah. didn't want to be. And he sends the letter. And the last scene is Iron Man reading the letter. And that letter is such a beautiful kind of cap off to this trilogy. The Captain yeah. America trilogy of... Of him kind of expressing his worldview and why he did what he did and extending this little olive branch in the form of that phone yeah. and saying, no matter what happened, I am still here for you because, of course, Cap would be. Yeah. I mean, that's one of my – I want to go back to something. You know, in Age of Ultron, the end of that movie is very happy-go-lucky. Everyone's kind of happy and they're hanging out oh, at yeah. Avengers headquarters. And some people had took umbrage with that like, no, wouldn't Cap be mad at Tony for everything he did? And my argument for that is – Maybe Tony should have more guilt at the end of that movie. Sure, I can see yeah. that. Although I would also say Tony uses humor as a deflecting mechanism. So yeah, which is very not. clear in this movie. Yes. Um, but no, I don't think Cap... If Cap knows Tony, knows he did the wrong thing, and Tony tried his best yeah. to make up for it, no, he would never blame Tony Stark for that. That's yeah. not something he would hold over him. Because again, like, Captain America's, like... Core philosophy, which he says very clearly in this movie, is basically you do the best you can, and if you make a mistake, you get up and you try harder because the worst thing you can do is give up. And he sees that that is also what Tony does in all of these movies. It's yes. like that's why, like at the end of Avengers One, Tony is the guy who like flies the fucking nuke through the portal and almost dies. Like Tony absolutely is that hero when he lets himself be, and Cap knows that. Yes, and that's the that's the content of that letter is him saying, "I'm sorry. I know I did wrong things, and I'm going to pick myself up back up, and I hope you can too." And it's a sad ending, but it's also kind of a beautiful ending in that way because yeah. you know they will have another moment together. I am so immensely excited for the next Avengers movies. Because yeah, like I'm really curious to see what they they do to sort of like pick that up. You know, it's going to be tough. It's going to be really interesting, but I it makes sense. It's the same creative team because. Yeah, yeah. That would, be, burned it. that would be really hard to do if you had to make Avengers Infinity Wars and you did not make Captain America Civil War. But they've done it before, and frankly, that's some of the disconnect, I think, with Age of Ultron. Is yeah. It felt like, as of Winter Soldier, that baton had kind of been passed. Yeah. And I love Age of Ultron. I, I think there's a lot of great stuff in there. Yeah, it's a good movie. But it also feels a little out of step with where Marvel was at yeah. the moment. I mean, because it's, it's very telling that they need to give Tony like a, a brief line in this movie where he explains this really annoying discrepancy between the end of Iron Man 3 and the beginning of Avengers 2, where at the end of Iron Man 3, he destroys all of his Iron Man suits. At the beginning of Avengers 2, he's got more Iron Man suits than ever. Right. And then, like, that had never really been explained. And I think they actually do a very good job at explaining... They make it and, a character detail. And, yeah, and they, make it, they thematize it as, like, Tony cannot let go of being Iron Man because he needs to be Iron Man because he has way too much guilt. And the only way that he feels that he can, like do right in the world is by being Iron Man because he has this power as that, that, that persona to help people. Absolutely. And it's, again, it's why I really do want to see an Iron Man four at some point. Cause I, and, and if not, if failing that, I at least want Gwyneth Paltrow in Avengers because I True, want, yeah. I want to see where they leave that. Yeah. And especially if like, if, if like the Avengers Affinity War stuff is going to be Robert Downey Jr.'s last turn in the role, like I do think he, he deserves 
a like his own solo Iron Man movie to cap him off if he doesn't want to yeah. keep on playing the. I mean, I, I, I imagine they probably don't want to ever try to put too fine of a point on like an ending for any of these characters in case the actors want to come back in the future. But at the same time, of Cap and uh, Tony, who have yeah. clearly become the two biggest main characters of this universe yeah. so far. Assuming that Infinity War is their end, it is the end of their contracts at least. Not to say they couldn't be renewed, but that's it for both of them on yeah. contract wise. And you know, it can be renewed. Robert Downey Jr. did sign up for Spider Man Homecoming, and that was not on his original contract, yeah. so this can happen. I mean, how would you want these characters' endings to be? Uh, should either of them die in Infinity War, I guess is the question. Maybe, like, I've, I've never been one of those people that, like, champion character death stuff because I and that mostly comes from my comic book side of things because there was a time in my life when I was younger that I bought into the comic book character death that's like this big event and it's like yeah like Superman dies oh Spider-Man dies Wolverine dies whoever's whatever major character is dying from whichever publication this this month and I bought into that because it's like yeah it seems big and dramatic and it's it's that like sort of like it's edgy and adult because it's like yeah this character is this well known icon is is dying but then like all that ever in the comic book side one of the reasons why I now find that incredibly distasteful is that all it ever turns into is a bunch of fucking bullshit where they have to like like where some writers now have to like figure out what to do with a storyline where they were going to use this character and now they can't because now like the publication has this whole huge like three year plan for how we're going to bring Dr. Octopus back into the universe and all this stuff and that's like always the worst shit it should be avoided in comic books for that reason but also like my my feelings on comic book characters and these sort of superhero characters changed in such a way at some point where I like and now I really feel that there's nothing really to gain by killing these characters, and, and people can disagree with me. I think there's maybe potential in the movies, and maybe not. But the nature of these characters are such that it's like you—they should be—they should be kept around. Like, and like, if maybe you you want to like give them a a moment to sort of go out on. But these are characters that that should like always be alive and like yeah. always have new stories to be told about them. Because if if you haven't stopped writing Spider-Man comics now. You're never going to stop writing Spider-Man comics. Peter Parker is always going to be Spider-Man. You can have other Spider-Mans if you want to, but it's like Peter Parker is always going to be Spider-Man. Steve Rogers is always going to be Captain America. I don't care if they're going to do a thing where Falcon becomes Captain America for a couple of years. Guess what? That's stopped now because they're bringing Steve Rogers back as fucking Captain America. Like Steve Rogers has stopped being Captain America at least five times at this point. And, it, and, and you made these iconic characters, and a lot of times when you're trying to kill these icons, what you end up doing is, like, you end up weirdly distancing yourself from the icon, realizing you can't do that because you need it. That's, like, in a business reason and in it for a cultural reason. And then you have to bring them back, and the bringing them back is always the cheapest, worst thing. Absolutely. I agree with most of that, I, I or all of that. I mean, you want... The, some of the best endings are the endings where the characters are alive... And their life continues. We just don't see it. You yeah. know, it's one of my. It, it's you know, it's like this is a very different comparison. But when Mad Men ended last year, always you know, everyone trying to figure out how's Mad Men going to end, and, and a lot of stupid people online who didn't get what that show was about figuring out how are they going to kill Don Draper. Yeah. And it's like this is not that kind of show. The best ending for most stories. It's very rare that this is not the best ending for a story. Is the ending where you find the right point to leave the character, but they continue. Yeah. And we don't see them. They don't see us. 
but that exists because that is the ending that allows you to project and to see the humanity in it. And yeah. I think that applies to comic books, too. I agree with most of that. I do think in the movies we need, if there's a point where Robert Downey Jr. says, I'm done, we need some kind of definitive ending. I don't think that needs to be death. Yeah. It could be a happy ending. It could be some kind of in-between. Honestly, this would be the right kind of thing to leave Captain America on. This is such a nice, yeah. suggestive note. Like, I'm glad we're going to see more of him, but, you know... This would be the. This is the kind of thing I'd almost like to see, where yeah. it's a status quo change. It is some kind of resolution, because this is a great resolution to this three-part story yeah. in the trilogy, uh, where we're leaving him with this. Uh, and I think Iron Man three was to some degree too for for Tony Stark, even though it didn't track because we knew he was in at least two more movies. So yeah. <laughs> that was kind of tough. But I think they can probably find a way to do that. And yeah. Because I, I also think that there's there is like there are people and I've seen this criticism for Civil War, which just makes me roll my eyes. Where people are like, "Well, I'm, there's no stakes in this movie because I know they're not going to kill off any of these characters," and it's just like, and I, and I like I sympathize with that comment because I see like 14 year old me there. For a brief period, I feel like I wasn't that person for very long. But again, like there was that period in my life reading comic books in particular, where it's like, oh, there's no, there's no stakes because nobody's dying. There's no like, there's no real drama here because there's no threat of death. It's like that's like I feel like when you watch enough movies and read enough books and engage with enough stories, you realize that like the threat of death as something that gives stakes to a story is like one of the greatest myths we've ever told ourselves. I agree. Like, I, that doesn't make anything more significant. Because all this is fake. It's already fake. None of the deaths are real. You all like so like that's already like it's all bullshit. Death in a story does not carry. A one one billionth the weight of death in real life. So it's like that that aspect of it is already out the window. What gives stakes in a story is drama, is tension, is investment in characters, it's emotion in the, the story, whatever it happens to be. And you don't need to kill characters to do that. Sometimes it's the right choice to make. Oftentimes, like you said, oftentimes it's not, especially at an end, unless you are making a flat-out tragedy in like a Greek Shakespearean sense. This is You don't need to kill off your fucking characters at the end. This is something I've said and tried to articulate many times about why I prefer the show Better Call Saul to Breaking Bad. Yeah. Because and I love Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad is one of the best examples of a death stakes fueled story. Yeah. But there is a cap for me on how much I can enjoy that because those are in some ways artificial stakes. Yeah. And Better Call Saul is this brilliant show to me because Saul Goodman, we know where he ends up. Mike Herman Trout, we know exactly where he ends up. Their endings are in Breaking Bad. Yeah. And that frees them to tell a story that is 100% about the emotional stakes for these characters. And that's so much more real because, you know what? We're all going to die. Yeah. We all have the same ending. What happens along the way is what's dynamic. And yeah. that's what makes the story fascinating. And that's why, if anything, Civil War, because it almost doesn't even pretend to have those stakes. Yeah. It is so much more engaging. You know, the, the end of the Avengers, I love the end of the Avengers where Tony takes the nuke into space and stuff. But that, to me, is far from the most dramatic moment in the movie because they're not going to kill Tony Stark. Yeah, and, and it doesn't... although also, like, you knowing that they're not going to kill Tony Stark does not mean that that moment doesn't have impact. For it's, Tony and yeah, for you, yeah. Because he doesn't need to die in that scene. That's not important. What's important is that he did that, is that he risked his life. Ex- and in the moment, it's a dramatic moment. It's effectively, in every sense, like, the way that it's acted, the way it's shot, the way it's scripted, it's an effective moment. And you sympathize with the character. And in the moment, it works. And he doesn't need to die. It's fine that he lives. It doesn't make it like hard and edgy and fucking cool. It's a movie that stakes because it kills its characters because and, they kill Iron Man. Exactly. And, and put it this way, if Cap or Iron Man died in that last fight, 
then neither of them gets to react to what happens. Yeah. Because they're both alive, it hurts more. Death is the easy way out as a storyteller in that scene. Yeah. And in a lot of scenes. You know, a lot of comic deaths, frankly, come around because you're not sure what to do with the character anymore. Yeah, and it's just you need a boost in sales, so... Let's kill off Wolverine. But he's a character that has this, like, inbuilt mechanism that allows him to be immortal and come back through any contrived reason you need. Who it's, cares? We'll make it a comic event. It's like people who, frankly, often outsiders who say Dragon Ball is stupid because they can just bring the characters back to life. Yeah, like, that is not what that show is about. Nobody who watches that show gives a fucking shit. We might joke about it because it's a fun yeah. thing to joke about. Nobody who likes Dragon Ball ever has actually cared that the characters come back to life. That is so profoundly not yeah. the point. Because guess what? When Goku dies, they didn't even need to bring him back to life because he was in the other world anyways as a ghost man. Like, yes. that show is not about death. You can kill off a character and they're still not really dead in any meaningful sense. And yet, when certain deaths happen, they still have impact. Yeah. Uh, Gohan... Crying over Piccolo's dead body will never not make me shed a little tear. Yeah. Because it's perfect. It's amazing. And yeah, of course Piccolo's coming fucking back. I knew that the first time I saw it because I'd seen something from the cell arc where yeah. Piccolo's there. Does it change my reading of that scene? No. Not in the motherfucking slightest. Yeah. Yeah. So, important conversation to have, I think, around this. Yeah. I think we've talked about the story pretty exhaustively here. The themes. Yeah. Talk some characters. Okay. We talked already about how good Black Panther is and how well yeah, integrated he is. Cool. Let's, Chadwick Boseman is such perfect casting. All yeah. the casting's perfect. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen him in anything else. He's, Maybe I didn't like okay. really recognize him. He's been an up and comer um, because he was the star of two biopics, neither of which are good biopics really, but he's so good in them. One is Forty Two, the Jackie Robinson story, right, okay, yeah. and one is Get On Up, the the James Brown movie. And I have seen Forty Two. And 42 is a movie that makes me sad because no one will ever be a better Jackie Robinson on film oh, than Chadwick yeah. Boseman. And it's a really kind of simplistic biopic about him. It's the Jackie Robinson story is told by white people. I will just, right, that's, sure, my, yeah. that's my reading of that movie. Like, it's a movie that doesn't even get to the point where he played second base. Huh. And that to me will always baffle me. They, they really go hard on his contributions as, as a pioneer of, you know... Race relations, which he is, yeah. but they also didn't really show how he's a great baseball player, which is another part of why his jersey is retired. Yeah. So that movie has always frustrated me for that, but Chadwick Boseman makes that movie intensely watchable. And so when they announced him for this, I was excited, because that is just such a star-making performance. And he's so good here, and he's yeah. so... He gives in so much to the physicality, to the voice, to the emotions. He plays this like it's high Shakespeare, almost. He mm -hmm. has such a great... Just commitment to this role, and it's such a unique, interesting character. Yeah, and, and it's so much like again, it's something where it's like Black Panther's not a character I'm like a massive fan of. I haven't read like billions of Black Panther comics the way I have like Spider Man comics, but Black Panther's a character I like a lot, and every time he's popped up in an Avengers comic I've read or something like that, I've always been really excited because he's just like, he's just really cool. And, like, the second T'Challa walks on screen in this movie, like, well, before he's in his Black Panther outfit, I'm like, that's fucking Black Panther. Like, before he even said anything, it's like, oh, my fucking God, it's Black Panther. He's so, he's just so cool. It's like every time Black Panther's on screen, every time he's in an image in a comic book, like, I'm just thinking he's so fucking cool in my head. I don't know what it is. <laughs> he is. And that's why I'm excited for his own movie, because I think they'll be able to really stress that even yeah. more. But again... It is so insane. It is a subplot in this movie, and you get a sense of Wakandan culture, yeah. of Wakandan ethics and their moral code, and what that 
builds inside of T'Challa. Yeah. You get a sense of his relationship with his father, of his relationship to a sense of justice. Yeah. You know why he puts on the suit, why he becomes a superhero. Like, it is an... It could be its own movie. Yeah, it, it is... Like I said, it is his fucking origin movie happens in between this movie. It, yeah. It's crazy. It's uh, the closest comparison I can think of is what they do with Hulk in First Avengers. But even yeah. then... We know the Hulk. We, he's been in other movies. He's a more popular character. Most people off the street will not know who T'Challa is. Oh, no. God, no. And I know Black Panther has one of the fiercest followings, and for good reasons. He's a great character. Yeah. But, but he doesn't have like a significant cultural penetration the way that Hulk has because of like his TV shows. Right, exactly. And But every single person is going to walk out of this excited for the Black Panther movie. Yeah. I mean, that was, like, when we were watching the movie, and then, uh, like, because I went with my dad, and, you know, you stay for the end of the credits, and, and, like, somehow a lot of people haven't learned this yet, to just, like, look up how many ending credit scenes a movie is going to have. That's before, even if it's, like, a completely unrelated movie, if, like, for whatever reason, there's some, like, art house movie I was really interested in, I would still look up if it has a fucking after credit scene, because I'm not going to... Like want to ever miss it, but I also don't want to sit through the credits in, to to watch it if it's not going to be there. But for whatever reason, most of the theater was not populated before we saw a really fucking awesome scene at the end of the credits, the very very end of the credits. And there were three like teenage girls sitting like a couple of rows behind me, and all they were talking about was how cool Black Panther was in the movie. That's and funny. I was so I was so stoked. And there was like one of the girls was clearly a like more nerdy girl because she kept on calling him T'Challa and all this stuff. It's like yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And they don't say his name much either. No, it's, yeah. You, so you, you have know. to know that he's yeah. his name is T'Challa before going in to, I think, pick up on that. Ah, but he's great. And the suit is so cool. It's it a, looks great. It's a great, great superhero suit. I love that you learn it's vibranium. So a fucking helicopter shoots him and he's just like, yeah, what? Yeah, it's like a fucking minigun is pegging him and he's just standing there not even giving a shit. It's great. And, you know, again, his his thematic arc about responsibility and about... What is our responsibility to justice, whatever that means? It's yeah. a, and he really, he almost learns more than anyone else in the movie about himself. It's yeah. great. And he does it in such a quiet fashion that feels so appropriate for the character they've yes. made. Because he is this very noble, yeah. like, like you said, sort of almost Shakespearean character. So we'll get to the big one. But to yeah. touch on another couple of characters, um, we talked about Scarlet Witch. Love how they used her. Yeah. Black Widow, I really, she's got a more minor presence in this than in Winter Soldier, yeah. but I think it's really essential. Like, even though she winds up on Tony's side for a time, yeah. her friendship with uh, Steve never lessens. Like, yeah, and I feel like they leveraged the relationship they built in Winter Soldier with those two characters really well. It's great. Yeah. And then the ultimate moment where she decides, you're not going to stop, are you? Yeah. And she lets him go because ultimately she realizes it doesn't matter if he's right or wrong, I can't stop him. Yeah, and and she is a character that they've I think they've established very well that like she's like very tortured in a lot of ways and doesn't do well with uh, social relationships. But when she does build up a relationship with someone, it, it means a lot to her. Yeah. So it feels very significant in that moment when you, you you understand that oh the reason why she's been with Tony this whole time is because. She thinks it's the right thing to do, but her relationship with Cap and her respect for Captain America is so great because of their experiences through Winter Soldier that at the end she's going to back him up, even if she doesn't fully believe in what he's doing. And getting more scenes with her and Tony Stark I think is really important because... I think people forget. She yeah, was, she was in Iron Man 2 is where she was introduced. So that's the first relationship she has in this universe is with him. And it's never really been leveraged all that much yeah. in, the, in the subsequent films. And I liked having it here where they're not 
they don't dislike each other, but they don't have like the world's greatest friendship. Yeah. But they clearly have respect for each other. It's a dynamic, interesting thing that you get yeah. some hints at. So you have her. Um, let's see. Uh, Falcon, so perfect. Yeah. So well used. Yeah. I, Anthony Mackie is just great. I yeah. I love him. And like he he's one of three characters in this movie that very consistently delivers fantastic humor and like jokes and one liners. Absolutely. And, yeah, so he's. You got him. Very necessary. You got Don Cheadle as War Machine. Yeah. Really only a few scenes, but you get the value of having Don fucking Cheadle in this movie. Yeah, but like he does, he he pulls his fucking weight in, yes. in, in all of his appearances because he's never had as significant a role in any of these movies as I feel that like Falcon had in Civil War. Like he's he's a big part of Iron Man 2 and we don't talk about Iron Man 1 in regards to the Rhodey character anymore. That's but, a good point. Yeah. And I like Rhodey and Iron Man 1. Yeah, yeah, right? Terrence Howard is fine in that movie, but it's it's a weird situation with that character in that movie. And frankly Don Cheadle is trading up. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I love Terrence Howard, but that's Yeah, he's fine with yeah, Don Cheadle is he's yeah. really good as Rhodey, but he's never had a lot of like they, they, I feel like they've used him well in the sense that like he's always very effective, and they use him very yes. minimally. But Don Cheadle is just a really it's, great actor. So like when he's used, he brings everything he needs to bring. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it leverages Iron Man three very well, which is his most significant appearance to date. I would say because he has all he's those great scenes with Tony, right? Just yeah. his friends yeah. and dealing with Tony's PTSD and everything, and this sense that. Rhodes is a really good guy, like because Tony has put him through shit. Yeah, but he knows it's because Tony's fucked up, and he's going to be there for him. Yeah, and, and in some ways, like now that I'm thinking about it, they're like him and Falcon are almost like mirrors of one another. Where it's like Captain America is the very stoic good guy, and Falcon is this like like a really good buddy, but he's also like the wise cracking funny one. Yeah. And they complement each other. Whereas the relationship is the opposite with Rhodey and Tony, where Tony's the wise quacker and and. Rhodey is just like the quiet, nice guy who's yep. always doing the right thing and saying by his friend. I, I doubt that was intentional before now, but I no, think it's leveraged very well yeah. and consciously in this movie. And his last scene where he's got the bionic legs and God. it's it's sad, but it's also like he he's gonna work through it. That's yeah. who James Rhodes is, and it's and again, it's like it's where it's like having Don Cheadle as this great actor in that role really pays off. That again, it's like that's the only scene he has in the movie after him getting shot by Vision, and it's like. That was one of like the most memorable sequences in the whole film coming out of it. It's like, because it's which is like he's not in these movies that much, but it's like when he is in them and he has in a really important scene like that, it really counts. It does, and it's something I was going to say for later, but I'll say it now. I think that's why Marvel attracts so many good actors and keeps them around because whether they're in it for five minutes or a hundred and thirty. They give them stuff to play. Yeah. They don't waste their actors. Yeah, it's a good, meaty scene that he yes. gets. I think the closest they've ever come, honestly, is probably Thor in Age of Ultron. Chris Hemsworth is not always used great. Yeah. But even there, he gets to do fun stuff, and it's more than just dressing up in a costume. Yeah. And it feels like a lot of his stuff was cut out of the movie. Yes. So they, it's fine. It's a different situation. But I think, you know, if that's the closest they've ever come, they're doing a good job, and they are rewarding their actors. They're saying you get to play a character over time, develop that character, become that character. Again, comparing it to something like Batman v Superman... I feel bad for Ben Affleck watching that movie. Oh, God, Because yeah. I can tell Ben Affleck wants to do right by this character, and he doesn't have a goddamn thing or to play. Or who, who's the woman who plays Lois Lane? Oh, Amy. Poor Amy yeah, Adams. Like yeah. that, she's the actress that I feel the worst yes. for in that movie. It's, just like, it's not like she was like Helen Mirren in Man of Steel, but she's good. Like her role, her, the writing for Lois Lane is a hit or miss in the first movie, but she's good. And then this fucking... 
just Batman v Superman. Like, they give her the worst role to play in that movie. Just, like, the most ridiculously redundant characters. Yeah. Like, well, you're just like and completely like she might as well not even have shown up for what you're doing with her in this movie. And DC's not going to get actors if they keep doing that because yeah. the, the actors care about that kind of thing. The, the paycheck is nice, but the work is yeah, also. And Amy Adams can get yeah. movies to be in. She doesn't have to be in Batman v Superman. And frankly, that's true of a lot of Marvel's actors yeah. at this point. They're getting a lot of up and comers who are really in demand. Yeah. Fucking Chris Hemsworth can have his own Huntsman movies. He can make that a franchise <laughs> if he fucking wants to. God or, damn it. Or not. It flopped, but you know, that happens. Um, anyway. Uh, so Hawkeye, I think Jeremy Renner, a very yeah. small role for Hawkeye, but damn, he's good. God, yeah, like he has two really fantastic scenes. He has when he's first introduced because I had totally forgotten that he was going to be in the movie at all because it was such a ridiculous cast was coming into <laughs> it that I could not remember all the different characters that were going to appear. So when he pops up to break Scarlet Witch out of the mansion, which is like one like a great character pairing there because like it's they don't they, there's like one line that they use that refers to Quicksilver from Avengers 2 but you like know that he has that relationship with with this mm-hmm. character from that and so him just popping up and being like just reminding you it's like god damn it Jeremy Renner is so good as Hawkeye like again kind of sort of a Don Cheadle way he's not in these movies necessarily all the time he doesn't get his own movie but like especially in Avengers 2 it's like you just got to see it's like man he's really fucking good and they gave him really good stuff to play and so when he pops up in this movie when i'm not expecting it it gives me that sort of like jolt of like oh yeah it's hawkeye and like he and you immediately like in his first couple of lines you immediately get back into the rhythm of who this character is why you like him why he's cool how he's different from everyone else and what distinguishes him and it's like he, he just immediately goes back into that flow absolutely now I have heard the criticism that, for both for Hawkeye and Ant-Man, that they would not leave their families for something this dangerous. Yeah, I would argue maybe. that in Age of Ultron, what we learned about Hawkeye, and specifically his wife, as played by Linda Cardellini, if Captain fucking America called him and said, the world is in danger, yeah. you're the only one I can rely on in this specific instance... Yeah, Hawkeye would do that. That yeah. is the character we know. For me, like, and I always kind of wish that they had this scene, because for me, it was for Ant-Man's character... I like because I like the writing of it is so in my head of like Paul Rudd gets that call and he's like, man, what am I going to do? And then it's like he goes up to his daughter and like asks his daughter, it's like, you idiot, Captain America is asking you for help. Go help him. It's like, okay. Because, and let's move on to Ant Man because part of the arc of the Ant Man film is him not just becoming a better father, but becoming the man he wants his daughter to see. Yeah. And I think his daughter would want to see him help Captain America. Yeah. And that's important here. And if it's unspoken, it's still true. Yeah. Um, so Paul Rudd, I, they could not have used him better yeah. in any way. And the, the exact same thing with Hawkeye. I remembered more that Ant-Man was going to be in this movie because they sort of they tease it at the end of Ant-Man. But it is like, as when he pops up out of the fucking back of the van, it's, and it's just immediately, it's like, you remember, it's like, Ant-Man was a really good movie. Like, yeah. despite all expectations, like, fucking, yeah, that, that Ant-Man movie really worked. And more importantly, he's really good at Scott Lang. And it's just, he's immediately into the flow. He's immediately very different from all the other characters. I love... That how they they play him next to all these like very larger than life characters where he's just like just this kind of guy who's there and nobody really knows who he is or what they, he's doing. They introduce him just sleeping in the back of the van. Yeah, he's, and then he, he gets pops out. out and it's like you you think he's going to like be like yeah I'm a superhero and he's just like 
Hey, Cap! He's yeah. just like marveling at all of this stuff, crazy stuff. Paul around. Rudd is a, like I honestly, no joke. I think they got better use out of Paul Rudd in this movie than they did in his solo movie. Yeah, he's so well utilized. Like his first, he comes out, he says, "Hey, Cap," and then with Falcon, he's like, "So I guess this means we're square. Yeah. This is okay." And Falcon's like, "Yeah," even though Falcon's still got chip on his shoulder yeah. for that. It's great, and they. The way they utilize Ant-Man and his powers specifically, the Russo brothers were having a fucking field day yeah, with that. Because yeah. that's another interesting thing that, like, I feel like they did a very good job at, like, sort of mimicking the, the style of the Ant-Man movie in terms of his actions yes. and how they did the transformations. So it felt very cogent with whether how that character had been used before, because that would be very easy... Because there's so many different ways with cinematic language to try to handle the transitions between them becoming big oh, and small, and, and they just do it perfectly. And I have a lot to say about the visuals. R- remind me when we get there, yeah. because that's one of the things the Russos do well, is just combining all these visual styles. Yeah. Because this is the first time they've done Iron Man and all these other heroes. Yeah. And that's a lot of people have done Iron Man at this point, but it's still a tough thing to do, and they do it very well. But no, so yeah, Ant-Man's... And the, we'll talk about the giant man scene more, I think, yeah. a little bit. But just like... As you said, like the whole thing in the trailers, we have Spider-Man get the shield. Yeah. But the actual kicker of that moment is that Ant-Man's on the shield. Yeah, and yeah. I, they kept that a secret. It's great. All of that is great. Um, Paul Rudd, just very funny. He and Tom Holland are the stars of that scene. And that scene has everyone who's ever been in the MCU pretty much except yeah. Thor and Hulk. Yeah, <laughs> so. and, and it's with Ant-Man, like, I think my favorite line that he has in the movie. Like, and it's a really great scene when, when Tony goes to the raft. To visit all the, the all the characters, and that's where Hawkeye gets his other really good scene, where yes. he's like heckling Tony in a way that feels very appropriate and very Hawkeye. And then he walks past Ant Man, and he's like, "Hank Pym always told me you can never trust a Stark. Who are you? Oh, come on, man! <laughs> that's great because it's just it's just the perfect punchline for his entire appearance in the movie. That's like nobody other than like Falcon knows anything about who this guy is. He's got the weirdest powers. He just shows up and yet somehow he's the guy who wins the fucking big fight scene in the movie and nobody still knows who the fuck this guy is. It's great. I mean again because it- when you watch the Ant-Man movie, it all seems very important. But the climax happens in a little girl's bedroom. Yeah, exactly. Like, this would not make headlines that Tony Stark would learn about, you yeah. know? It's great. Um, okay, who do we have? I think it's just Vision and yeah. Spidey. But yeah. Vision, those sweaters. He wears a goddamn sweater. I, what more can you say? If it were just the sweaters and the rest of the movie were crap, I would still recommend this movie. Yeah. The, those sweaters are glorious. Yeah, and I think they, the one thing I appreciate about this is they, I have no idea if they're planning on doing this like the comics in the future or not, but I like that they have a couple of significant moments with Vision and Scarlet Witch here, because in the comics, they have a relationship, I think like we're a gonna, romantic relationship. We gotta go there, yeah. it's so great. Yeah, and so then they, 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 they build that up very well here to be I'm just, upon. I'm so happy Paul Bettany is playing a physical part. Because yeah, that he, they, they, he kind of upgraded from Jarvis. Because he, as Jarvis, he was such an important and, I think, uncredited role in the Marvel Universe. Yeah. And now he's here in physical form, giving it his all. He's so much fun in this part. I still love the... I love its physical makeup. I love that. It looks really good. It looks great. And I love his scenes with Scarlet Witch. And I love his arc, which is a very small one, but he thinks he's got it figured out. And he thinks, you know, oh, obviously we have to follow Tony Stark, because the the math obviously rewards Mr. Stark. 
But then he makes a mistake and he shoots down War Machine and he'll live with that forever because that completely rewires his sense of the world. Yeah. And again, it's on point for the larger themes of the movie, which is that is the most fun scene in the movie is the big clash, but it ends on a very sad note as it has to. Yeah, and I thought they also, again, it's part of like how great the writing is in this movie because of the, all the jobs it needs to do. I thought they, they made very good use of Vision to very quietly remind the audience about the Infinity Stone thing. Because that's part of his origin. I had honestly forgotten that that was how he was born in Avengers 2. Because I haven't rewatched Avengers 2 since I saw it in the theaters. And But he has... They turn it into a great character moment where he relates yes. with Scarlet Witch. Where he's just like, I don't know what this thing is. It's... it's I know... I know like what it, it has done, where it came from, that, that why I have it here, but I don't know what it is. I don't know the extent of its power. It is an important character moment for two characters yeah. first, and then it is an exposition thing second. Yeah, it's just sort of just like see like keep that idea alive. And I'm glad that they didn't like try to shoehorn anything else in to clearly like set up the Infinity Gem stuff. It's just like yeah. that one scene to remind the audience so that when it comes up in the Avengers stuff, that it's it's not Totally gone because it was all the way back from Avengers 2. Yes. So, good stuff there. All right. I think we've covered everyone. Yeah, okay. Let's talk about the best part yeah, of this goddamn well, let's, movie. Yeah, let's, let's go to Queens, motherfucker. Okay, so Sean. Yeah. When Tony says, I have a guy in mind, and we cut to Queens, how happy were you oh, on the inside? Man. I mean, first of all... This is probably not true, but I like to think the entire reason they use that massive... Okay, I think there are two reasons that they use the massive <laughs> establishing shots throughout the movie that, like, whenever they change a significant location, it, like, has this giant screen-consuming text that says, like, fucking Cleveland or Germany or, like, wherever they go throughout the movie, and it's, like, huge. The, the first reason is because Batman v Superman did not have any establishing shots, so they fucking call out every <laughs> single day establishing shot they have, like, a giant middle figure on the screen. Like, what the fuck were you guys thinking? It's... This is all you need. Like, I want to see a cut of Civil War with all those establishing shots cut out. And just, like, how, like, it would just, like, niggle the back of your mind every single time. It's like, this is just disorienting. So it's like, one, I just think it's funny that it feels like they're just, like, stamping on top of their establishing shots. And two... It builds up each time and it's like, you know, they keep on changing location, they keep on changing location, but then the one that they really set up is when Tony's saying, like, because he's having the conversation with Black Widow that they both have someone they're going to get, and it's like, yeah, I, I, I know someone, and then smash cut, fucking queens, massive on the screen, and it's like, fucking yes, because I obviously, everyone knows Spider-Man's going to be in the movie. Everyone knows before they cut to the Queens thing that that's, that's who they're going for. But there's, but it's like when it smash cuts to Queens, it's like that's when you know there's no going back. Spider-Man is ahead, right? Like that's like the road sign they put on that shot. And yes. like, yeah, I was, I was... I was pretty I was pretty ecstatic at that moment, I would say, is the word I would use. Absolutely. And I honestly was so involved in the movie and its action that I had forgotten not forgotten Spider Man would be in the movie, but I wasn't making the connection. Yeah. So he said and it was Queens and I just I think I squealed in the theater. It was crazy. It yeah, was like it was just like yeah. Fucking guess yeah. Guess Queens. what? Spider Man lives in Queens, motherfucker. I know that shit. And Cap lives in Brooklyn. Oh, it's great. <laughs> that, that's yeah, we'll talk about that. All right, so Sean I don't think they could have done Spider-Man any better if they yeah. had used a cursed monkey's paw to realize it. Yeah. But you are the Spider-Man aficionado. Okay, yeah. Why is Spider-Man in this movie like seeing the face of God? Man, 
Man, it's so much. There's so much that they do with this character, which is impressive because he's basically in two scenes. They're big scenes. He has the scene where, it's like, which is the Spider-Man introduction scene where Peter comes home to his apartment and Tony's there and they have a conversation. Hitting on Aunt May. <laughs> yeah, great, great scene, and we'll 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 talk through that. And then also he's like heavily involved in the big action scene that's at the airport that everyone knows about. But those, that's all that he's in in the movie. Like, again, they're, they're long sequences, but those are the only sequences he's in the entire movie for. And so, like, they, they get their Spider-Man in, and they get it in dense, and they get it so right. And the, but there's so much that they do with it that sort of unpack it, like, is that, in short, I think what they managed to do is they managed to make a, prove that they're making a Spider-Man that feels very faithful to the comics, to like the original comics and to there's some like clear ultimate Spider-Man inspiration in there as well. And yet also it feels like they have modernized the character in a very smart way in that he is, he's a teenager. He's like 16 years old in, as in the original comics and in this movie. And that means that he is much more attuned with his era than, than any of these other characters. And they, they're very smart with how they do that throughout the movie. And this feels like the Spider-Man I know and love. And he feels like a different Spider-Man. And he feels like what's sort of like a chilling life thing I now have to go through. Is that Spider-Man is seven years younger than I am. Which is something I didn't like. This is like that's a long, that's a long time. That's like I just didn't think about until it's like. Oh yeah, I'm I'm quite a bit older than Spider-Man. I'm not just like a little bit older than him. I'm like in a different generation than Spider-Man basically at this point. But th- that's what the character should be and I'm really happy that they're doing that. And so a lot of that is like we'll talk let's just right now let's just talk about Aunt May first cuz it's like okay. I am so happy that they went with an Aunt May that makes logical sense and that I love Aunt May as death as, to death as a character, but one thing that has never made any goddamn sense about Aunt May is that she's like an 80-year-old woman. <laughs> yeah. Peter's living with her. He's 16 years old. How much older is Aunt May than her younger sister, who's Peter's mom? Like, 50 years older? It's all. It's never made any fucking sense to me. It is so... Because especially if you read the original Spider-Man comics, she is drawn as the most elderly woman possible. She is, like, always in the hospital. She's so frail. And she's a great character. Like, I love Aunt May in the comics. But it's never made any sense. And I love that, like... The screenwriters or the Rooster Brothers, whoever, like, at Marvel was, like... Decided is like you know what? God damn it! She's his aunt, his aunt, not his grandmother, not his grand aunt, his fucking aunt. That needs to make some amount of sense. So they cast an age-appropriate actress, Marissa Tomei, yeah, to to play a sixteen-year-old aunt. And it's like so. I I love that. I love that they the the dialogue is very sharp. That they like address it in a way that like doesn't feel like it's too fourth wall breaky or coy but there's a couple of lines about like yeah like aunt may's hot and like they it's like she's your aunt it's like yeah they come in all shapes and sizes and that kind of like they're good lines and they work and they don't feel like they're winking at the camera too much so it's like i just love that they do that i love that it's a different kind of aunt may in terms of i love form but she feels even in the couple of like moments that she's on screen because there the 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 last last post credit scene is also a Spider-Man scene that has more Aunt May in it and she feels like Aunt May to me. She feels like Aunt May 
And the relationship between her and Peter is sketched out better in those two scenes than it was in two whole Amazing Spider-Man movies. Yeah, absolutely. Where I don't think it was Sally Field's fault, but I think she was partially miscast, and I think there's no real sense of voice in that relationship. Yeah. And something I love about the Sam Raimi movies is I love Rosemary Harris as Aunt May. Yeah, she's an amazing Aunt May. That that is, that if you want the Aunt May from the original comics... That is her. Like yes. there is, that's another good reason for going in a slightly different direction with the characters because they you cannot top Rosemary Harris as fucking Aunt May in no. Sam Raimi movies. She is one hundred percent perfect. I think they tried to do that in Amazing Spider-Man and it failed miserably. Yeah. yeah. So that didn't work. But this is just it's. They've got this. It's she's his aunt. Also, she's not his mom. Is yeah. And they, thing, yeah. Right? And it, they have a different kind of relationship, but still they feel like close and yes. supportive. And he very clearly cares about her a lot. Yeah. And. And yeah. he, I love how he just calls her May. He's like the cutest kid, too. Yeah, just like, yeah. he's got that. And Robert Downey Jr. can hit on her. And yeah. that's funny. That's just, he gets home and fucking, I love his Peter's reaction. Tony fucking Stark, Sorry. who is probably this kid's idol in yeah. life, is sitting on the couch hitting on his hand. It's, yeah. it's like this out-of-body experience for the poor kid. Yeah. I All right, so Aunt so, May. Yeah, so Aunt May, the next... Again, for like updating Spider-Man, I want to talk about the set a little bit because the set they use for their apartment is perfect because Spider-Man, basically in every version of Spider-Man that I can think of, Spider-Man has always lived in an old house that is Aunt May and Uncle Ben's house and that's where he moves into after his parents are killed and... That's where he lives, and it's this like old house, like in the suburbs in Queens, and that's always where Spider-Man lives in every adaptation. And there's something that feels way more modern and appropriate. That like one, if they're going to have these like severe money troubles. Two, if it's 2016. Three, if Aunt May is not an 80 year old woman who would obviously own a house from like the colonial times <laughs> in, in, in like the suburbs of New York State. Like, it makes a lot more sense that they would live in this really cramped, tiny New York City apartment. And then there's someone who was in New York City, in the New York City area, like, a couple of weeks ago, and, like, was in my brother's apartment. That's not in Queens, but it's a similar kind of apartment. Like, it feels really appropriate. And there's something that, like, as soon as they went in, I was like, this feels right. Like, this feels like I lived in space. This feels like... Peter has his own little tiny room that's off to the side that's, like, where he keeps all of his weird, nerdy stuff. And it's, like, there's just a, such a great sense of space to that set that, like, I it's, it can't be said how much that, like, how well they did with that set speaks about those characters and where they live. Especially in relationship to the rest of the movie because it's such a different vibe. It's so much more warm. It's so much more inviting. It's so much more personable than, like, any other set in the entire film. And, like... That just like cutting in and Peter walking into that living room with Tony Stark hitting and sitting on the couch hitting on his hot Aunt May. Like it just like paints such an unbelievable picture of you intruding on a day in the life of this character who is Peter Parker, who's Spider-Man. We've that stepped into everyone a different knows. movie. Yeah, and it's and it's like that thing where it's like it immediately just makes you 100% want to see Spider-Man homecoming because you just want to see what was the what was Spider-Man doing? What was Peter Parker doing before this movie? And what is he doing after this movie when he comes back to his apartment? Like, they just give you those little tastes of his everyday life, which is so perfect. So that's 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 me like analyzing the periphery of the scene. But then to get into the the act, the meat of it with, with Tom Holland's portrayal of, of Peter Parker, it's like one, casting an actual teenager. 
as a teenager, I know it's like anathema to how Hollywood does things for some goddamn reason, but turns out it works really goddamn well. And it makes the Amazing Spider-Man movies and, and the Sam Raimi movies in some respect. Like, the Sam Raimi movies at least moved him to college very quickly, so it felt better. But it's then, also a different era. I yeah. mean... But the Amazing Spider-Man movies now seem really ridiculous in comparison when you see it's like, yeah, he was not a teenager in those movies. He was a creepy 30-year-old with his fucking skateboard and his hoodie walking down these hallways pretending to be a 16-year-old. So, yeah, like... Um, can I just say something, too, about modernizing sure. Spider-Man? Yeah. The Amazing Spider-Man movies did try to do that, too, but their answer to modernizing Spider-Man was to make him a dude, bro. Yeah, and, and they made so... him this hipster fucking skateboarding douchebag that felt like he had nothing, especially, like, Amazing Spider-Man 1, it felt more like, eh, I'm not totally into this, but it's a slightly different take on the character. Amazing Spider-Man 2 just felt like a character assassination of Peter Parker. It did, because he come, he swings into graduation, high-fives a bunch of people, yeah. and then swoops down and kisses Gwen, Gwen Stacy. Stacy. It's like... <laughs> They, is he going to wake up from the dream he's clearly having right now? Because this is not what Peter Parker does. No, that's perfect. Like, if that were a dream sequence at the beginning of the movie, that would yeah. be kind of perfect. That's how the Sam Raimi movies would have handled it. Yes, exactly. Uh, like, it's a whole theme in Spider-Man 3 where at the beginning he's like, I'm having a good day. This is really crazy for me. Yeah. What, no. But to go into talking about Spider-Man in this movie, that's one of the things they do that's so perfect is that... Tom Holland has a line like that in this movie where he did like off like hand when like the, after Tony Stark sort of reveals it, it's like yeah, I know who you fucking are kid like I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm Iron Man motherfucker like how am I not going to know who you are it's like once they go through that rigmarole the Peter's just sort of like talking to himself is like man I was having such a good day like the train was on time I got the class I had an algebra test fucking nailed it and it's like you get so much a sense of this is a day in his life that it's like you know this it usually is not this is not how this goes for him he usually like is does not make it to class for his test it's like usually he needs to be ever since the Spider-Man shit has happened like he's always late he's, he never can get anywhere he wants to be everyone's misunderstanding what he's trying to do it's like you get that sense of like that his life has been thrust into chaos by what has been happening and we'll talk more about that, about how like subtle they are with with the Spider-Man character here. But then also it's stuff like the the excuse they use is that Tony likes is like oh you have like won a grant or whatever you like you won a scholarship and then Peter like his reaction once he gets it is like is it like a is it like a money thing like do you get money from this this is like again that is a Peter Parker thing to do because you know immediately he. They're tight on cash. They're always tight on cash. And you also, if you know anything about Peter Parker, he's not asking that because he wants money, because he needs money. He's asking because it's like him and his aunt live in this shitty little apartment in Queens, and they like clearly like have no money. They like they're just desperate to get by because Uncle Ben got shot like three months ago. Is the other thing that's like in the subtext of all these scenes. Oh, it's beautiful. It's yeah. so well written. Right. And, and and it's like let's just I guess let's talk about that side of it too. That it's. Once they get in, I think what the unbelievable thing they do with this is that somehow, without ever even like directly referencing Uncle Ben's shooting, they know that everyone on the planet who's old enough saw the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies, right? Like yeah. they made ridiculous amounts of money. They were insanely popular. And then also, guess what? Like there were fucking two Spider-Man movies like a couple of years ago. Everyone knows Spider-Man's origins. He's Superman and Batman. Like you don't need to go over that material all the time. You don't need to open the movie with say a flashback of Uncle Ben getting murdered on the side of the street. Because he, he decides to punch the guy. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> like as much as that is not a Thomas Wayne thing to do, that is like so not an Uncle Ben thing to do. But yeah, so like everyone knows 
who's watching this movie, whether you've read a single Spider-Man comic book or not, it's what Spider-Man's origin is. You know great power with great power comes great responsibility. You know Uncle Ben gets shot. It's Spider-Man's fault. And he's, in his own way, trying to atone for that mistake he made back then. And he's never going to be able to do it. Which is what Tony Stark's arc is in this movie, too. And they draw, I feel like, without ever saying it, they draw such an intimate connection between those two characters. And that... In such a crazy way, Spider-Man is like the mature version of Tony Stark. He's the character... He's the, but he's the pure version, is yeah. what I would say. He's the Tony Stark that Tony Stark has lost sight of. Yeah, the, the, he's the one that's like, they're very similar. Like, they're both nerds. They're both, like, they're both socially awkward, but, like, Tony has, like, grown past that and used that as a way to, like, like hit on women now. Like, yeah. he, he, you know that he used to be socially awkward because he also is with his parents at the beginning of the movie in, in the, the earlier scene. And so, like, they're clearly, Peter Parker's a much younger version of Tony, but there is a part of where it's like, you know, they're both very damaged. They both have this relationship with, with a tragic death in their families that they feel responsible for. But at the same time, I feel like you get a sense that, like, Peter is able to deal with it in a much more mature way, that he's, like, fighting through it in a way that's, like, Tony just, like, is still breaking apart at the seams because of that stuff. And he's, and, like... Spider-Man's going through some of that, but he's in some ways he's moved past it. And they have that conversation about where like Tony asks him why he does it, and they like, I wonder how hard they they ask themselves how much they wanted to try to use the great power, great response. Well, can I line. say something about yeah. this because there's a very similar moment in Amazing Spider-Man yeah. One where they don't want to say it because the guy said it in Cliff Robertson yeah. said it in Spider-Man the Sam Raimi film. And so Martin Sheen is just stumbling over this horrible dialogue to try to say it without saying it. And it's one of the most awkward moments in that movie. Here, it's a similar idea that they don't put the words in Tom Holland's mouth, but they're there. Yeah, and it's and so well written. Explaining the concept in a way that feels right for the character because, like, because also, like, you know, Uncle Ben doesn't, doesn't have to say, with great power comes great responsibility. That's not a part of the first comic. That's not a part of Amazing Fantasy 15. That's a narrative blurb. Like, like what's not important necessarily is like a character saying those words to Peter Parker. What's important is that Peter Parker learns that concept. Like, that's what the last panel of the first Spider-Man comic ever is, is that he learns with great power comes great responsibility. And in a panel where Spider-Man slowly walks into the night thinking about the fact that his fucking uncle is dead. And it's, it's what Tony needs to hear because the essence of what Peter says here is, you know... If something bad happens and you could have been out there, doesn't that mean you did the wrong thing? Yeah. And it resonates with Tony because that's what Cap was telling him. Mm-hmm. And it's this moment where I think Tony's kind of shaken back down to earth. And if Peter was not there to tell him that, the turn would not happen later where he shakes out of this and goes to help Cap. Yeah. It is such an important moment. It's such a beautifully written moment. And can we talk about Tom Holland for a second? Yeah. I love this kid. Oh, my God. Yes. I, I teach teenagers for a living. And I feel like I know kids like this yeah. that I've taught and just are just good kids. You know, he's a good kid. Yeah. And he looks like a kid. He, you know, Tom Holland, I think, is 19 in real life, but he reads much younger. Yeah. And he's clearly perfect for this part. And he's just, he's, he just feels so real in a way where there is obviously a level of remove in any other live action version of Peter Parker because 
they're 30-year-old guys. Yeah. And that's okay. Tobey Maguire did much better at that than Andrew Garfield. Yeah. And it's the essence of the character that matters. But when you can have that essence and the just raw vulnerability of that age and that pureness and innocence, yeah. it really hits home. And he is fucking great with Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. And that is not an easy thing to do. He is a commanding actor. Yeah. And he's just he's just trading barbs with him, and it's but with this kind of sense of nervousness that Peter should have in that. Yeah, moment. exactly, and that's the the thing that he gets that like always rubbed me the wrong fucking way with the Andrew Garfield performance. Like, even where I thought like he did some good stuff in the Amazing Spider-Man movies, the one thing I never understood that people loved about that performance was that like people online saying it was like oh, he gets the quips, he does the quips, and that makes him Spider-Man like, no. and somehow like that's so much better than Spider-Man, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man version where. He still has quips. They just don't, like, fucking shove them in your goddamn face all the time. But the thing that Andrew Garfield's performance didn't get across is that, like, there he just felt like an asshole. He just felt like this sadistic piece of shit. Just, like, psychologically torturing these people that he would then beat up, you know, and, like, humiliate. Like, he felt like a goddamn bully. And not, like, in a way that they were trying to thematize that, which you could for the first Spider-Man movie. That's not what it felt like. It just felt like he was an asshole, and the movie was not aware that this character felt like an asshole. In this movie, like... When they get to the big action scene, Spider-Man's quipping all the goddamn time. He's He never stops talking. Even in the scene with Tony Stark, once, like, the pressure's on him, he never shuts the fuck up. And it's not because he's, like, this cool guy who's always got the right line for the right moment. It's because he doesn't know what to say. He's nervous out of his goddamn mind. He's this teenager kid who's really so- socially awkward. So he's just going to say stuff constantly to sort of, like, just, like, relieve the pressure on himself. And that's... What it was in the comics, like, I cannot fucking tell you how many, like, like overly dramatic Stanley narrative captions I have read in my life that basically describe this, like, Peter was really nervous, and it's, like, was bubbling with, with nervousness, like, hey, huh, shocker, you're a, you're a asshole, like, was the basic, what he said all the time. It's like, that's what the character trait is. It's not that he's, like... I mean, he grows to be a lot more confident, a lot more intentionally funny, and he does make jokes, and he is funny, but he's funny out of a sense of, like, I have no idea what I'm doing, I don't know why I'm here, I'm just trying to do the right thing, oh god, I'm getting punched in the face all the time, like, I just need to say something. And his funniest moments... Are unintentional yeah. by him. Like the, the second, my second favorite line of the movie is, "Hey guys, have you ever seen this really old movie, The Empire Strikes Back?" Yeah. <laughs> and his voice, like that's the other thing. He sounds like Spider-Man. Yeah. And I know that's tough to say because, of course, there's been a million Spider-Man voices, but there's something the best of them have where it's just that sounds like Spider-Man to me. Yeah. Like the biggest praise I can give Tom Holland is he feels like the Peter Parker I love from the spectacular Spider-Man yeah, exactly. TV show just walked out of a cartoon into real life. It's eerie. Yeah. Another thing they, they do perfect that he does and, and like how they sort of stage the character perfectly is that because again, it's such a, a hard thing to try to update is that Peter Parker is supposed to be a nerd, but he's supposed to be a nerd from like the 1960s where that made something very different in 2016 where like, like part of, partially because of these movies, nerds are cool. Like having that sort of like geek knowledge is like having a like pop culture knowledge, like knowing about comic books, knowing about these characters, knowing about Star Wars and all this stuff is what passes for cultural capital in like youth circles these days and it's and it's effective and it's and it's made my life and your life a lot easier than like it transitioned into being that while we were young so it's like yeah. when we were in high school and stuff it was, you know like 
that was not as much a thing as people getting bullied because they were into Star Trek. Like, that's not... Like, that side of it was not really a thing anymore. The culture had shifted. And so, to get that across, I think the Sam Raimi versions did a very good job of making Peter feel like this very socially awkward kid in a way that, like, in the early 2000s, like, that was the kind of kid who was bullied. Not the kid who was into science, but the kid who just, like, couldn't quite fit in with, with everyone else and couldn't quite talk right. That's, like, a little bit of the 60s Peter Parker, but the 60s Peter Parker is more he's bullied on just because, like, he wears sweater vests and he he goes to science conventions and he reads nerdy books. Everyone knows that and they pick on him because of that because that's how it was back then. And in 2016, we don't get the school side of it, so we don't know quite where that's going to play. But when you go into Peter's room, and it's like, and Peter's got this like kind of dorky haircut where it's like it's clear he never thinks about his hair or anything like that or how he physically looks. He holds himself very awkwardly, and when you and he's like talking nervously all the time. When you go into his room, it's filled with all these old computers and old junk that he's fished out of garbage. That's like that's the kind of stuff that like. So you'd have to be that nerdy today to be like that sort of like have that sort of social ostracization yeah. aspect of it. Is that like, and it also speaks to how poor they are. That's like he goes and like he can't even afford getting like an old Commodore 64 from like a fucking nickel and dime store down the street. He has to go fish it out of someone's fucking garbage because he doesn't have any money and he has nothing else to do to sort of like exercise his scientific intellect so he's just like fishing out all these weird old computers and messing with them which is not the kind of nerdy thing that that passes for like social cred these days right yeah so like that whole side of the character like that was honestly the part of it that i was the most impressed by was not even just that like holy shit they nailed spider-man it's holy shit they nailed spider-man in 2016 in a way that like the comics haven't managed to do that i mean the miles morales other like Spider-Man that, that came out of the Ultimate Spider-Man comics sort of feels like that but in a very different way it doesn't feel yeah. like a straight update of Spider-Man it feels like just a different take on the Spider-Man it, character because he is a different. a different character he's not yeah. Peter Parker he's Miles Morales no and again they do this in a small subplot yeah. in a much bigger movie yeah just like inserted into the middle of the movie and like they tie in again to put more emphasis onto Tony's Plotline. So even if they never made another Spider-Man movie, even if like this character never popped up again, and it's like, if even if they never did that, Spider-Man in this movie would still be valuable. Which to draw the Batman v Superman comparison, Wonder Woman in that movie is not valuable. Like she's could be cut out of that movie. She and she has way more like scenes in the movie than Spider-Man does in this, where she's constantly popping up throughout the movie. But she feels like she is there so she can read an email at some point. That is an advertisement for the other Justice League members. And so they can have someone else in this giant CGI mess of a fight at the very end. No. Whereas here, it's like, if Spider-Man never pops up again, it doesn't even matter because it... I mean, it matters to me. But it doesn't matter for this movie. Because right. it works for the characters in this movie. And he is a perfect supporting character. And in that fight, oh god, they use Spider-Man so well. Yeah. And Again, I think we were really questioning after Amazing Spider-Man, like, can the quips work in live action? We were really wondering. Yeah, like, because like, I was pretty convinced. It's like, they just can't do this. Like, they just can't do Spider-Man like the comics because it's the thing that's, like, too hard to take out of a serialized medium that has a lot more time to do the little stuff and do a big medium like movies that you don't have that time. And somehow the Russo brothers 
fucking like broke into the fourth dimension or something because somehow they found the time to do that for every single character in this movie to have the little moments every character and just the way and again it's not that he's making quips it's that he's nervous as fuck in his first superhero fight just talking and talking and talking and annoying everyone and kind of using it to distract them and it is it is building character throughout that even though we don't see Tom Holland's face again until the end of the scene where his mask gets pulled off and Tony says now seriously kid you gotta go home This isn't your place right no, now. No, I'm, I'm good, Mr. Stark. I'm good. Yeah. I love that he calls him Mr. Stark. I love that. I love that the whole fight is, no, I can't. I have to impress Mr. Stark. Yeah. It's great. He's such, he's like, he's an adorable kid. I don't know yeah. how else to say it. And again, it is this thing of like, oh God, I'm 23. This kid is 16. Yeah. But no, it works and it feels so genuine. I love the costume. I he's love so the slight animation on the face because it looks like Spider-Man. Yeah. And it is, it distinguishes it from what was an otherwise perfect costume under Sam Raimi. Yeah. Or the Amazing Spider-Man 2 Spider-Man costume is literally the best thing about that movie. No, absolutely. And I also think, like, it's this also is a really good differentiation from Tobey Maguire, who is, yeah. I think, the definitive Spider-Man so far on film. And Tobey Maguire played a very internalized Peter Parker. And I think that... And a, it, very, and a Peter Parker that was perfect for the early 2000s. Yes. And I think it's a 100% valid take on the character. Just because he's not quipping doesn't mean he's not Spider-Man. He's yeah. not... He's a very good take... This is a very different one, but they feel very complementary to each yeah. other. Like, I could, you know, assuming Spider-Man Homecoming is good, I could have that on my shelf next to Spider-Man 2 and say, those are two great Spider-Man movies. And they're different, but they are both Spider-Man to me. Yeah. And that's what, that's all I want, you know? And and the Amazing Spider-Man movies didn't get that. And this is very yeah. promising. Then also, like, like, thinking about the costume. Like, it's like, it's crazy how much they do in that scene with t- Tony Stark of getting across... For that character, like he's been Spider-Man for a couple of months, like he's living in his room, hiding it. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's like nervous. He's afraid. It's like Uncle Ben just died a couple of months ago. That I feel like that shadow is still like really heavily cast on how he's playing yeah. the character because you know if he's just been Spider-Man for, for a little bit, that's how recent these things are for him. And then I also and I love like how they incorporate there's like weird YouTube videos of him like like swinging around and stuff. It makes me curious if they're going how they're going to try to incorporate kind of the Daily Bugle side of it at all like how they might try to update that we're gonna have to get J. Jonah Jameson which means they have to recast that one yeah. or maybe maybe they just J. get J. Jameson maybe they just pull him from the clutches of DC I hope I really would love there's no reason they shouldn't yeah cause he man him with this Tom Holland Spider-Man oh, be so would great. be so good but like I, another detail I love is that he has this shitty homemade Spider-Man costume I in his it. like weird attic. I love that Tony just like pulls the string down and it falls down immediately. It's and Peter in a very Peter Parker move is able to immediately jump and catch it and hide it before like you actually you can't even really see the costume on screen because yeah. it's like he has the reflexes to be able to do that. And I thought like that whole scene is perfect. But then when you pull it out and you get to see a little bit of this shitty, like what is basically like the the wrestling costume that that Tobey Maguire had in the first Sam Raimi movie, this shitty homemade Spider-Man costume. I think it's perfect. It's a perfect fucking idea of how you explain how this kid gets this amazing looking superhero costume. <laughs> Tony, Stark, Tony makes- Stark makes it for him. And I thought like it was a really interesting character choice that like I've never seen this with another Spider-Man interpretation before where the reason why he has the like like the goggles for his other costume or like the eye plates for the proper Spider-Man costume is because his heightened senses with the spider senses and everything like that make it so that he needs that to help him focus and sort of like get in the zone. I thought like that's a really good explanation that like doesn't feel like it's you're trying to like 
hide things or something that's like trying to like make up for stuff that's stupid or something like that but it's just like yeah that's a good explanation for why his costume works like that and also for why then you might like put in the the mechanical eye lenses in the, the Tony Stark they, suit it there's no other higher praise to give this is Marvel's Spider-Man yeah. this is Spider-Man given the same amount of love and care and attention that Kevin Feig and company have given Iron Man and Cap and Thor and Hulk and Black Widow and all these other great characters and you just you get the difference immediately and it is you know I like the current X-Men movies I've liked Sony's some of their past Spider-Man movies but nobody outside of Marvel does their superheroes like Marvel does Marvel Studios they just have a level of love and attention and care and understanding for these characters that goes so far above and beyond what anyone else is doing in superhero stuff and when you apply it to Spider-Man who's like the world's most beloved superhero. Oh, man, it makes all the difference. It is an out-of-body experience watching this Spider-Man zooming around with Falcon and Black Widow and And Iron Man. Fighting with Captain America, and they get this amazing moment. Like, what a great... Like, that's a fucking tip to the people writing the movie, that they get... They find that little connection, because you obviously can't do too much... In the middle of like having to like have Spider Man make connections with all these characters, like this little connection between him and Cap that like feels like is going to be this beautiful kernel that will like blossom in the like next team up movies. Where like I hope the arc for his character is that he like eventually kind of goes over more to Cap's side of way of thinking because that's more germane with how Spider Man does things as he matures. But the fact that they build this little connection over the fact that Spider Man lives in Queens and Captain America grew up in Brooklyn, like is just so smart it's such a smart way to try to find a connection between these two characters like very quickly that builds a relationship for them that that would be so easy to miss you know or so easy to cut out yeah no absolutely and let's talk about that centerpiece fight scene yeah because okay. i actually going back let's talk about some technical stuff the russo brothers obviously action winter soldier is incredible yes yeah boy did they one up themselves in civil war yeah. because i think that first scene the one in where are they? Nigeria or something? Or uh, I don't remember where they are. Like, yeah, I, yeah. they're they're in some country in Europe or Africa or something. And that big that is better than any action scene in Winter Soldier. And I love sure, the stuff yeah. in Winter Soldier, but like it is, I just think it's incredible because they've got Cap and Scarlet Witch and Black Widow and Falcon, and they're all used perfectly. And the stakes feel real. And Crossbones is a really good villain for yeah. that. And the way it all resolves is great and has this wallop and punch. Um, so I just loved it. it, it really good stuff. Um, and there's another couple of great action sequences. The whole chase with Bucky and where Black Panther yeah. enters the fray. It felt like there was like like the Russo brothers watched like this isn't how it happened, but it felt like they watched the Daredevil season two fight <laughs> with down the stairwell. They're like, that's really that's a cool the way to do a fight. Let's let's do that in our movie too. And so yeah. they had like the Captain America Winter Soldier fight down the fight with the the German police, and that was really good. It's amazing, and it's it's it tells you how great these action piece we're about to talk about is that you almost forget those other ones, yeah. even though they're great. Yeah. They're phenomenal. The Russos have only gotten better in every way. But then that centerpiece fight, which is like a solid half hour of the movie. Yeah, it's a it is a significant scene. It's a significant scene. You've got basically every hero in the MCU other than Thor and Hulk yeah. in this one scene together. They're not out to kill each other, but the motivation is very clear. Cap needs to get to the Quinjet, and Tony wants to stop them because they think Cap is harboring a fugitive, which you understand why they think that. Yeah. And so they have to fight. 
And there are all these different stages to it. It's a lot of two characters meeting for a moment and something happens. Yeah, I like they they manage a way to very naturally pair off a bunch of the characters. They find just about every permutation they can. It's nuts. And it is the most joyously comic book, comic book action scene I think ever captured on film. It's insane. There are so many moments of just unadulterated glee. Things that you would think you would never see on film. Like when you have Giant Man and Spider-Man is crawling across his visor. Yeah. And then swinging around him Empire Strikes Back style. I... Again, out of body experience. I or just, like, like when Hawkeye, like Ant Man is on Hawkeye's arrow yep. and he shoots it, and it like because that's like that's the you know like yeah that sort of scene kind of writes itself. It's really cool. It's like Hawkeye or, or Ant Man normally he just, okay he, he jumps off and punches Iron Man in the face. Like no, it's like you knew that like okay they're going to do that. That's cool. They don't even just stop it there. It's like the arrow splits apart into all these different pieces that because Iron Man's shooting them and like. This, like Iron Man jumps off of the one piece that is sort of like zooming around on the little rocket and jumps up and like gets into Iron Man's suit and then like is in Iron Man's suit like pulling shit out. It's like, man, you're going to have to get this thing looked at. It's <laughs> great. This is your conscience. We don't talk much. That was great. Robert Downey Jr.'s reaction to yeah. that was great. I love it. All the people Spider-Man interacts with, that little interaction with Hawkeye and Black Widow, like, we're still friends, right? Yeah, it depends on how hard you punch me. There's so many good lines in that fight. Because they find, again, they find, like, the space in between, like, the punches to, like, have a little tiny character beat. Like, where are you from? Queens? I'm from Brooklyn. And, like, and I love when he's, when Spider-Man's fighting Winter Soldier and Falcon teamed up and then... And Spidey starts nerding out over Falcon's wingsuit. Falcon's <laughs> like, normally people don't talk this much in the fight. It is so good. Every And it's, there's so many phases to the fight. Yeah. By the time you get to the shot that's in the trailers of them all lined up against each other, you've had like 20 minutes of this. Yeah. And then there's a whole other phase where they realize we need a distraction. And what did you think Ant-Man was going to do? I had no... I had no... Like, because... And they set it up so well because Paul Rudd's just so fucking funny in this movie. He's just, like, keeps on going on about, like, well, you know, I might get ripped in half. I was like, well, I did it once in training, sort of. And I passed out. And it's like... And it's just like... Is he going to do... Because at first I thought, like, the only thing I could think of is he's going to do the thing from the end of Ant-Man 1 where, like, right. he goes quantum or something that will help them somehow. And then it's like... Oh... <laughs> Oh, holy fucking shit. They're doing Giant Man. And not only do they do Giant Man, but when he turns into Giant Man, the first thing that fucking Paul Rudd does, he's like, <laughs> It's like he starts picking up airplanes and like chucking them. It's so funny. He does the mwahaha, and then he's moving all slow yeah. and like laboriously. And it's not a CG effect. I think they did like him on a green screen. Yeah. And it's it's like a Godzilla suit thing. Yeah, it's, it's like, so it is like a Godzilla scene. And then you have all these characters trying to figure out how to take him out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but even then, like, Ant-Man has, like, I think consistently the best moments in that fight because he has, like, crawling to Iron Man's helmet's great. I love when he off-screen shrinks down a truck, gives it to <laughs> yes! Captain America, is like, throw this at this, he chucks the truck, Captain America throws the thing and turns giant, flips over, hits the ground, and explodes. <laughs> and Ant-Man's is like, oh... I thought that was a water truck, I swear to God. That's so great. And I love how he comes in and he's just like, here, use this. Yeah, he, like he walks it off screen and it's yeah. like, it really is like a comic It's thing. this little tiny toy truck. It's like so fun. Like him and Spider-Man have so many funny moments. 
and then but then they also like find like like Scarlet Witch does some really cool stuff where she's like throwing cars all over the place and shit like that. Well, at the end of that scene where she has to keep the stuff up so that Captain yeah. Bucky can get into the Quinjet, and then Black Widow is there, and the stuff with Vision, like it all. It gets really big and then it coalesces so beautifully. That yeah. scene is pretty much the height of superhero cinema. That's, up that to is now. the best superhero action scene by like a significant margin. And like, the thing it's is, I was insane. kind of insane. And I was wondering if we would ever top the end of Avengers One. Yeah, because that is such a great scene and such a high watermark. We did. Oh God, yeah. Like it's just like like that is a big hurdle to try to overcome like that like I don't know how you can make a fucking superhero action scene better than that when you introduce Rocket Raccoon and Peter Quill and Doctor yeah. Strange and everyone they're gonna have for Phase 3 and Infinity War yeah. that's how you do it because like, it, and it's honestly it's like that action scene that that it proves why the, the, the superhero crossover rule exists. That yes. every time superheroes crossover, they have to fight. It's like the reason that rule exists is because they kind of are always the best fights. Like they always, because like they're all characters that you love to see. And they're all characters that you know so well. And you know their powers so well. and But you never get to see how they clash. And I like in Civil War... One of the reasons why that action scene works so well as like being able to be big, dumb, and fun, and the reason why, one of the many reasons why the action scene in Batman v Superman, where Batman v Superman is fucking just terrible, is is because in this, you just like it gets to be fun because they're not trying to kill each other; they're just trying to stop each other. So it's a serious fight that has like stakes and is dramatic, but at the same time, like. They're not at each other's throats the way that like Batman and Superman are just trying to kill each other at the end of that movie, and it's just unpleasant. And the way, and, but like in this movie, they get to have that scene at the very end. That's when it needs to happen between Captain America and Iron Man, where like it is a serious fucking fight. But that's not an action scene that I'm like. It's a good. It's a very well done action scene. But I don't come away from that action scene being like that was so awesome. No. And the way that you want a big, the big set piece action scene to be awesome in your movie and the reason it couldn't be in Batman v Superman. No, I mean, they managed to have their cake and eat it too yeah. in the best way possible in this. The cinematography in this movie, I really like. Yeah. Um, and it's the same cinematographer who did Winter Soldier, Trent Opalock, and I think he shot that movie really well. This movie looks very different. It's mm -hmm. got... I'm not using this word pejoratively. It's got a fairly ugly aesthetic in how it handles color, and yeah. I think that's very intentional. It actually kind of looks to me almost like a modern, like a contemporary European art house film. Sure, I can see speed. that. Yeah. And I've seen enough of those. Like, I think this was shot digitally. A lot of those are shot. It's like European digital cinema. It kind of looks like that. And I think it works because they're in Europe for so much of it. Yeah, they're and in because, Germany. Yeah. And it's like very muted because a lot of the story is kind of in this darker place. It is intense. But then, but then when the color comes in, it's allowed to come in in a way that yeah, you really and, see. Yeah, and it makes it so that normally I would be sort of annoyed at that airport scene. The way that like I I'm, don't like the... I mean, I, I like the scene in Deadpool where they fight on the highway at, that's like from like the trailer and everything. But I don't like how gray that scene looks because it doesn't work for that. But I think what they managed to do with the airport scene in Civil War is that it, it is a lot of it is gray, but the gray in the background allows the colors of all the different heroes yes. to pop really well. So that when, like, Ant-Man's on screen, it's like he's got this ridiculous red costume, but there's something that, like, allows it to pop and work really well, and then also makes him look very distinct from when, like, you have all these different characters on screen that's, like, Iron Man's color scheme. Like, everyone's hero's color scheme is different from everyone else's. So it allows when, like, you have... 
Iron Man and Spider-Man and Captain America and Ant-Man and Black Panther and Black Widow and Hawkeye and Scarlet Witch and Vision and Winter Soldier and Falcon all on screen together, they are all very readable because there's not a lot of visual information in the background and all the characters are able to pop and be very distinct. It's really well done. And I think Joss Whedon tried something uh, similar with Age of Ultron and Age of Ultron actually has some of my least favorite cinematography in the Marvel movies. I think they made... Avengers 1 is shot in... Um, tall, just regular 16 yeah. by 9 and then the next uh, Age of Ultron is done in scope and I don't think that's a very smooth transition. I feel like it feels a little uncomfortable at that aspect ratio and the reason Joss Whedon shot Avengers 1 that way is he thought it would be easier to account for all the heights if you have a higher frame and I think he was right. Yeah. The Russos and Trent Opelok found a way to do that in widescreen in this movie that will be I think very important moving forward. Yeah. So and again, and I say that, that some of it's an ugly aesthetic. The framing is great. The sense of atmosphere is great. But I think it has that intentionally almost non-aesthetic aesthetic in some of its colors because then you get to do more with, as you say, the superhero action. Yeah. So very well shot. When they have to integrate things like Ant-Man scheme and Spider-Man set and all these things, it feels like we're going to these different corners of the universe and it's very inclusive. Yeah. So I love it, that. Yeah, because it's like because you do get like the Captain America central sections feel a lot like Winter Soldier, like, especially that action scene down the, the hallway with him and, and, and Bucky fighting the German police feels like that is right from Winter Soldier with, like, that sort of kind of shaky cam, but shaky cam done right, very, like, intense, like, high-impact kind of action sequences. But when you get the big marquee scene on the airport, like, it has some of that stuff, especially when you have, like, Black Panther fighting Captain America and, and stuff like that. That's a lot more of the intense, like, hand-to-hand choreography. And all the hand-to-hand choreography in this movie is amazing. Like, they yep. find such a good way of distinguishing, like, how Hawkeye fights hand-to-hand, how Black Widow fights hand-to-hand, how Black Panther does it, how Winter Soldier does it, Captain America does it. They all have slightly different styles that feels appropriate to their characters, but so they use that sort of uh, that filming style for some of those more hand-to-hand fights because that works for them very well. But when they have like Spider-Man swinging around or they have Ant-Man like going tiny and going big, they don't film it the way they film those action those hand-to-hand action scenes. They find ways to film it that feels like appropriate for this much more sort of spectacular style of action that those characters are are inherent to. And this is why I came out of Civil War so much more excited for Avengers Infinity War than I was going in. Because it's the Russos, and it's Marcus and McFeely doing the script. And they proved themselves here so well. This was like a dry run for doing an Avengers movie. If anyone can pull that off, because these will be the biggest Avengers movies by far, they can do this. And they are also the first Marvel filmmakers to do a sequel and one-up themselves. Because Joss Whedon, second at-bat... Good, but not as good. John Favreau's second at bat, yeah. messy, not as good. Everyone who's done a second at bat, they just haven't managed to recapture the magic in that same way. And the Russos did even better. I think they are, as filmmakers, the big discovery of the oh, MCU yeah. so far. Because what they've done previously, they were TV directors. They directed most of the episodes in the first three seasons of Community. And I like that both Winter Soldier and Civil War have one Community cameo, which is great. Um, but anyway, so, you know, they were they had done... And I think their only other movie was Yumi and Dupree, which... And I kind of but you some, can just see it. You can just see it. I, I kind of like Yumi and Dupree. It's, we, yeah, it's, a, it's an okay movie. There's nothing, I, there's nothing wrong with Yumi and Dupree. It's Owen Wilson is really funny in that. Yeah. Anyway, but uh, it's, it's like the one movie from that era that I actually like Kate Hudson in. Anyway, sure, yeah. go with that. Um, but no, I, you would never know that. And they, they were a bet that paid off so hard... 
I think they are going to do right by the Marvel Universe in these Avengers movies. And where I once thought Infinity War sounded like something too big to ever do right, yeah. I think these guys can do it right. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, they they proved it with this movie. Cause, yes. Like, this movie has so much it needs to do. It has so many characters on its plate. And yet, at the same time, it feels like it gets... It, Nailed its core thematic idea, uses all of its characters to develop it. All the characters get the appropriate amount of breathing room and get to push their own character arcs forward from all the other movies. So it feels like every character takes a step forward in this film that like this is a necessary viewing for the Marvel Universe, more so than most of these movies. But then at the same time, it is at its heart a Captain America movie and it feels like it should be Captain America 3. It's like that is such a huge task that... like. Avengers Infinity Wars feels like it's like nothing in comparison to that. Like it's it might be easier because it is the final payoff to yeah. the MCU to date. So maybe that'll be easier because they'll have actual endings for things. Yeah, and yeah. I'm I'm very curious to see how this all plays puts together. It's it's sublime. It's a great great movie. We agree it's the best Marvel movie. Yeah, I, I think I would say so. Yeah. Okay. We have always said Spider Man Two is the best superhero movie ever. Have we don't don't ask this. Not, don't okay. don't ask this question. That's not. I'm not ready to ask I, this question. I'm not saying we need to answer it, but this is one of the first times this, where I felt like we've got competition. Yeah, this is. It is competition. We it's not, in the top five. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, if we're I'm going not spot, comfortable with making a decision, though, I'm not saying we have to make a decision, but I think it's amazing how close it comes in the yeah. things I value in Spider-Man Two and why it makes it my favorite superhero movie. This is a vastly different movie, but because it comes down to that core emotional component and leaves you emotionally feeling something, yeah, that's what this gets. That's what most superhero movies come close to but don't quite get. Yeah, and this has it, and. Makes me so curious to see what comes next. My most anticipated movie coming out of this is Spider-Man Homecoming. Oh, God, yeah. I Man, I want that movie to just be out. But we've also got Black Panther. Yeah. We've got yeah. Avengers. Doctor Strange. Yeah. I really want to see that movie, too. I got a trailer for it before Civil War. I did not. I got a trailer for fucking Suicide Squad, and that was it. No, that I, didn't, like I a, didn't get a Suicide Squad trailer. That felt like a fuck you, because I wanted to see Doctor Strange on the big screen. No. It's, it, it looks really good on the big screen. Sure it does. It's a really a good look. trailer. Would have loved to see that. Not fucking again. And as, and as with all DC trailers, silent in the theater, just like yeah. it's a movie. No one cares. Yeah, I'm okay. Inevitable. We've compared it a little bit to Batman v Superman. I said this to you in text the other day. I feel like if you made a qualitative spectrum, as good as possible, as bad as possible, they are on complete opposite ends. Yes, absolutely. Like, and there are so many. Compare their Lex Luthor to Zeno in this. Or Zemo. Yeah. It's it's amazing because it is essentially the same role in the narrative. Yeah, it's like this character that is manipulating the heroes to fight each other is the same... Yeah, as you say, it's the same structural role the villain plays in the plot. Yes. But... Oh my, it could not be more different in terms yeah. of quality and your interest in that character. And it's insane how it also feels like they have the exact opposite about a screen time in the movie. Like, Zemo has a handful of scenes and he's very quiet in. It's like Jesse Eisenberg has more screen time than fucking Superman. He's, he has the most lines of any character in the movie, certainly, because he never yes. shuts up. And still, somehow with all those goddamn lines, nothing about his plan makes any sense at all. No. No, and Batman v Superman is about the same length as this movie, technically. It feels ten times oh, longer, God. right? I didn't even know that. It, like, I thought it was like five hours longer than this movie. No, I mean, and Civil War is about two and a half hours. I thought it flew by. Yeah, yeah. Like, Especially because like, 
as soon as once you get to that airport scene, which is like where you're getting into like the end stretch of the movie, it's like that scene feels like it just exists outside of time because of how perfect it is and how much is going on, and yet you're still able to focus on everything. It's such a sublime action sequence. It's just like I could have just watched that scene forever. I could have just sat in that seat and died. Yeah. It's like I wouldn't have minded because that scene just kept on going and being that good. It's like this. This is fine. I'll just waste away here appreciating yeah. this but choreography. It, it just it doesn't feel too short. Doesn't feel too long. It's just it's just right. It's everything about this movie. They really this is Marvel's finest hour. They yeah. knocked this one out of the park. And but they've been building to it. Like that's the other thing. You can't ignore all the building blocks that led them to this point. And it again is why you compare this to this is their thirteenth movie. Batman v Superman is their second, and it's. Man. And it's and it's again it's it's pathetic. That Batman Superman movie has three heroes and a couple of blurry camera footage of other ones, and they can't get that right. Yeah. This one has it's 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 not a Marvel versus DC thing. It's a quality versus non quality thing. Yeah. And it's also like it, it highlights how much Marvel has been able to how much mileage Marvel has gotten out of building off of their movies that like Civil War, I don't think, like, I think it would, you could appreciate a lot about the movie just because there's some things about, like, the way it's shot and the choreography and the action and all of that that is just impressive on its own. But a lot of the impact, if not most of the impact of the movie, relies on you being familiar with these characters. Being like, it, Because if you had not seen, like, most of the movies at this point, you don't need to see all of them. But if you hadn't seen, like, the other Captain America movies and you hadn't seen the Iron Man movies and you hadn't seen the two Avengers movies, a lot of this movie would have just been like, who are these people? Because they don't... Like, no movie has enough time to introduce all these characters completely in that movie. Like, you don't necessarily, for example, need to see Ant-Man all the way to, like, see this movie and appreciate that. But it does, if you have seen Ant-Man, it really amplifies your enjoyment of that big fight scene in the movie because of how well they use that character and how much goodwill that character has it coming makes, out of Ant-Man. It makes me want to go back and watch Ant-Man again, which yeah, in the theaters I liked, but is one of my least favorite Marvel movies. Yeah, So... It's amazing. It, it's it's so good. It, it kicks off Phase 3 in such an interesting way where Phase 3 is a lot of new characters or parts of the universe we haven't explored before. And I couldn't be more excited. Yeah. I, I'm The next couple of years of superhero movies from Marvel specifically, not the other people, sound just so good to me. We've got Doctor Strange this year. We've got Spider-Man and Guardians and Thor next year. Black Panther the year after that. And then we're getting into Avengers. So, can't wait. This yeah. is... It's such a good time to be a fan of these movies in one sense, but then there's the other ones coming out. Yeah. So this this is, leads me to, before we wrap this up, I have like a couple of things. Okay. One, with, we haven't talked about the true breakout star of Captain America Civil War. I think we all know who it is. Martin Freeman in <laughs> Captain America Civil War. Like well, gets, gets a one of the significant credits in the first credit sequence in the movie where they show all the characters' logos with the actor's name and then it comes to Martin Freeman and it's a shadow of a business suit. Perfect. Martin Freeman. He's clearly casting. being set up for something else. Yeah. I, I have I no say, idea what. He's going to be in Black Panther. He's a Black uh, Panther character. That makes sense. I guess from the I'm top. just I'm just really hoping that they can find some way to get Stephen Strange to make his way to Germany in the Doctor Strange movie and have some weird scene between him and this Martin Freeman character playing two characters that couldn't be not be more different than their Sherlock characters. I will say this though, I when sometimes when you do that where you're clearly setting up a character for another movie, it can be distracting. I thought it was fine here. Yeah, yeah, it, it, like. It, they don't need to have like that character doesn't need to pop up again it, like he can't pop up again it's like he serves his role in the movie yeah. perfectly it was just like I had a really weird moment when he popped up on screen I was like 
Because I had no idea that Martin Freeman was in this movie. It's like, is that fucking Martin Freeman? What the? <laughs> How did I not hear about this? Who the fuck is he playing? Is he just playing this German, like, police chief guy? Who the, the what the fuck? Yeah. So that was, that was cool. And another point of order. Just, like, something I forgot to mention. With the post-post-credit scene with Spider-Man. How amazing is it that they end that scene with Spider-Man making his spider signal? Which is... You would never do that unless you were a big fan of Spider-Man because nobody knows about the spider signal. That is such a minor point of the, like Spider-Man history that on his belt buckle he has a little flashlight in the original comics that he uses to like shine his like an image of his face basically in the mask onto like criminals to freak them out. And it's also basically the first thing that happens in the spectacular Spider-Man cartoon when he's like getting up on the enforcers and he shines the spider signal on them. So like that's just like Pitch perfect. But then the thing I want to end this, this this discussion on, because I think it's something that we talked about at the end of Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, was that we talked about with that movie, like, the state of the superhero genre as a whole. Like, that, like, because there's a sense of eventually the, 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 the zeitgeist will pass. Something else will come into the vogue and, and superhero movies will stop being made for a while, kind of like westerns or whatever. And like in coming out of Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, with that movie being so bad, I sort of felt like maybe, maybe that is going to happen. Like maybe that is like that's where this is like sort of coming around. Where it's like you have enough movies that awful that have like such a terrible audience reception that like so many people still saw. How many of those does the genre need to take to have a bullet in it? Do you like how? Do you think like like with this how strong this movie is? feel like Marvel's still like good to go for a long while. Absolutely. The box office this weekend, it made uh, $181 million is the estimate figure. It will probably adjust up. Marvel movies usually do, and the estimates from other studios is higher. Either way, that's the fifth biggest opening weekend ever. For Marvel, it is their third biggest just behind the Avengers movies. Um, it's a little lower than people were thinking. People going into the weekend thought it would do about $200 million. And maybe that was a little high. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um and I do wonder if there's a little fatigue because of stuff like Batman v Superman. But if it was, it's like a $10 million hit. That's yeah. hardly anything. And its hold from Friday to Saturday to Sunday was very strong. It will probably hold very well next weekend. Um, and that proves a lot. You know, yeah. the, the word of mouth on this movie is great. Its reviews were fantastic. 90-plus percent on Rotten Tomatoes. And yes, I think having something this good, all you need are good movies. Good movies yeah. will out. I really do believe that in the end. Yes, you once in a while have cases where bad movies make a ton of money and good movies flop. That is more rare than people, I think, think it is. Yeah. And if Marvel can keep this level of quality up and keep diversifying as they are, where we have our Ant-Mans, and you have, you know, you can have Civil War as your big one this year and then Doctor Strange, which is not going to do anywhere near this business, but people will like it and it'll be another corner and it'll get more people on board and you keep going. I think it's fine. And again, their plan is through Avengers Infinity War. And then maybe it is time to take a little bit of a break or go in a different direction. I could, I think they probably should. But yeah, I think with this as their kickoff to the next phase of movies, Marvel is fine. And I, but I really do think the brands have become, if they were not clear to the movie going audience before this year, yeah. they are now. I really do think that if, if uh, there was enough of a crossover casual audience, people are going to say, yeah, I want more movies with Cap and Iron Man and Spidey, yeah. and I don't ever want to see a Batman movie again. That yeah. made me feel, I needed to take a shower after that. Yeah. I really do think, 
you know, we could have a situation where Justice League bombs pretty hard next year. I think that is absolutely possible. Yeah. And that same month, Thor Ragnarok does great. They're opening the same month. I think Thor will do better. Yeah. I just think it will. People love Hulk. People love Thor. This is These are in the zeitgeist in a way... Batman v Superman made money. It is not a part of the cultural zeitgeist. Yeah. People do not care about that movie. They hated that movie. You have some DC fanboys online who probably jack off to Batman every night. And that's they're into it, but whatever. They have their Ben Affleck-like hug pillows that they sleep with. Yes. I mean, I have one of those too. We all should, but, you know, that's something else. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I think that would be my analysis. Um, yeah, I, I basically agree with that. I think, like, for me personally, like, I was curious how to, like, because Avengers 2 is a good movie, but it was a somewhat disappointing movie because, like, Avengers 1 was so great. And, like, it did feel like Avengers 2 was a bit too much for Joss Whedon to handle. Like, it felt like he was tired. And then you saw the press tour he did, and he was very, very tired. And, and so coming out of Avengers 2, there was a bit of sense for me that's like... Maybe, like, maybe, like, I'm going to get a little bit fatigued with these movies. And then I rewatched Captain America the Winter Soldier, and then I saw Civil War. And it is that, like you said, it's like good movies prevail. That, like, as long as these movies are of this quality, like, they don't, they never need to stop. Like, I will keep coming back. I will watch these movies because they've never let me down. Like, even, like... The, what like the Incredible Hulk, like the two thousand eight one, which is probably like it's the, the worst. worst. Yeah, that's like it's the worst one. Even that's like it's not that bad. It's a like, good movie. It's fine. It's not a great movie, yeah. but it's okay. It's but just... like other than that one, like I've liked all of these movies, and I greatly like a good deal of them. Like, Absolutely, even that's... like the lower ones, like Thor one, which is like has some issues, or Iron Man 2, which has some issues. I really like those movies. I've no, seen I, both of them twice, at least. Yeah, and you know, when I made my rankings, there are 12, not counting Civil War. The top 11, I really like. Yeah. And the 12 is Incredible Hulk, and frankly, it's been made forgettable just because they did Hulk so much better the next yeah. time they did it. But the weird thing with that Incredible Hulk is that William Hurt is back as General yes. Ross, now the Secretary of State Ross. I love that this they've movie. canonized it. That's, That's such a weird, like... It, I... I wonder if they're ever going to have him meet the Hulk. Like, is that is he ever going to meet Bruce Banner? Like, is that going? It to makes be- me think. What happened to Betty Ross? You yeah, know? that's like, true. Yeah. Anyway, no, we've probably got to wrap this up. I think this is our longest podcast to date. Yeah. Um, worth it for Civil War, but no, you're right. And I think Marvel is moving into a phase where we're getting to the payoff phase, and I think that's a very clear sea change in Civil War. And then I think while we're getting this payoff phase, they're very smartly doing things like Doctor Strange, Black Panther, Spider-Man, so that the next phase can start to grow. Yeah. I think they're making every right move here. I really do. And I, DC is going to continue sucking, but whatever. We got Civil War. Yeah. I mean, it's never been a better time to be a Marvel Comics character fan, which is what I've been my whole life. But it does leave us asking, I think, the most important question of all, Jonathan, what is so civil about war anyways? 